That's the Buggles from 1979 video, Killed the Radio Star. This is Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dan Druff. Well, tell us, this is the Druff and Friend Show. Now, that song is from 1979. And some of you also probably know, it was the very first video they played on MTV. And MTV back then was known as Music Television. It was a station only for videos, which now they play no videos. But at the time, this was revolutionary that you turn to a cable channel and can watch videos 24 hours a day. And that was the very first video they played to launch the network. Now, many people incorrectly believe that this song was written for MTV, that it's about music videos killing the radio star. That's not true. This is actually, you know, back in 79, there was no MTV. I think it started in like 82. So this was actually about moving pictures, meaning movies, and how they rendered stars of the radio. They used to have dramas on the radio a long, long time ago before just about everyone here was born. And it was saying that uh, video, meaning movies, killed the careers of those who were stars on the radio because uh, a lot of these people didn't look very good when they were put on the big screen. A lot of them had great voices and a lot of talent with their voice, but uh, didn't look very good on camera. Whole different skill set and whole different uh, set of requirements one must have to star in a movie versus uh, in one of these radio dramas. So that's really what the song was about. If you... Listen to the lyrics. Many don't know that. Now, the reason I played this song was by request. This request was from 650Guy, and 650Guy donated $25 to the free roll. Not to me, but to the free roll, in exchange for me playing this song. And I asked him, why do you want me to play this song? And he said, because I have been on so many streams recently playing poker that he is concerned that me being on video is going to kill this radio star. <laughs> but he's safe because, uh, number one, I'm not a radio star, and number two, uh, I, I think my brief recent career in the fall of 2017 uh, of, of being on these live poker streams has come to an end, at least for a while. But thank you for the $25. I'll take that, even though it is going right back out to the winners of tonight's free roll, which I should talk about because it's starting in three minutes. Right now, it is 9.27 Pacific Time, 9.27 p.m., that is, on Friday, October 13th. Yes, this is a Friday the 13th show. So, some of you might be afraid to gamble on October 13th, maybe you're, or Friday the 13th, that is. You might think it's bad luck. Maybe you should stay away from the poker tables. But I'll tell you why that logic fails, aside from it just being silly superstition. Even if you want to believe that Friday the 13th is bad luck, at a poker table, it is impossible for everybody to have bad luck. At worst, everybody will have average luck, but more likely some will have good luck and some will have bad luck. So if you're afraid to play on Friday the 13th, somebody else is having good luck on Friday the 13th if you're having bad luck there. So since somebody at the table has to have good luck, since it's a zero-sum game, except for the rake, then I wouldn't be afraid to play poker, especially in our free roll where you can't lose. So our free roll this week, 
I was a little worried that we would come up short. What I mean short is we always won at least $50 in the prize pool. And this week we were under that. But uh, thankfully, Gordman stepped up and gave some extra money. So now we're up to $65, and that's a nice free roll. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you need a separate account to register and play this free roll. But it's totally free. It does not cost you any play chips or, of course, any real money. The, the whole thing is totally free. And you will win real cash money that, if you win, I'll pay you by bank transfer, by Bitcoin. If you accumulate enough winnings, I'll pay you by cash or check. And there's even other methods which you might be able to think of where I could pay you electronically that I won't mention on this show, but I'm sure you can guess it. So these are all options to be paid. You're not getting lousy money on poker sites that you can't cash out or that uh, you really don't want. This is real money that you can get a variety of ways. Tonight, the $65 is given away as follows. First place gets $33, second place $18, third place $9, and fourth place $5. The generous donations we received for the free roll this week came from 650 Guy for playing that song, $25, Binks, who gave $8, and Gordman gave $32 at the last minute to bring us up to 65 Thank you to all three of you. Poker Fraud Alert has given away more money in our free rolls than any poker podcast or radio show in the world. You can look it up. If you don't believe me, find one that has given away more free money than we have that's associated with a poker radio show or poker podcast. We've been at this for five and a half years, and we've been giving away money every week, usually between 50 and $150, usually closer to 50 but often uh, we approach 100 or exceed it, and occasionally we've exceeded 500 this money, by the way, mostly comes from the listeners to this show, not from me. I'd like to take credit, but I can't. It's not from me. You have until 9.55 to get in the free roll. It begins at 9.30. Or shall I say it began at 9.30, which is a minute ago. But you, you can sit with a full stack all the way through 9.55, so you can still get in there. And make sure to make a separate account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. But you need to understand the rules to qualify for the free money. And you can read those rules at PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll. That's a list of the rules. You must know them, and you must follow them in order to win the free money. If you want to call into the show tonight, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Matt Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is located in a cabin near the top of Mount Charleston, which is a mountain near Las Vegas. It's about 45 minutes away by car. It gets snow during the winter. It's about 30 degrees at all times cooler than the Las Vegas you know. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. It's an old 70s rotary phone sitting in that cabin and forwards to me wherever I go. 702-430-1808 is the alternate phone number to our main phone number of 775-FRAUD-55. If you want to text me during the show, you can do that, and I may read your text on the air unless you ask me not to at the beginning of the text. That phone number is 775-372-8355. Yes, the same as our main phone number, 775-372-8355. I will respond to you, and in fact, you can text me before the show, during the show, or after the show. You will get a response 
And it's never too late or too early to text me on that number. It's a way you can always reach me. If you're ever just sitting there listening in the archives and you're saying, you know, I would like to contact Andrew. I'd like to say something to him. I want to comment on the show. And don't be shy. Like if there's a segment you hear that you like, that you dislike, that you think is funny, you think is amusing, you just want to make a comment, do it. It's fine. And you can even make critical comments. I don't mind if you say, hey, you know, this such and such segment sucked. I hated it. It was boring. It was stupid. You can say that. I won't get mad. Uh, I, I would like if you approach me respectfully. Don't just try to troll me and get me angry. But I, I don't mind constructive criticism at all. In fact, sometimes that's good. So I know what not to do. I can't promise that if you criticize something, I won't do it again because I may not agree with you and others may not agree with you. But I always like to get feedback from the audience. If anybody wants to email me at any time, my email address is dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. That's a lowercase. Dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. And we have a chat room that you can use to chat with other listeners of the show during the live program. There is nobody in there when it's not live, so don't bother going in then. But if you have a Flash-enabled device, you can go into the chat room. You also have to have a Poker Fraud Alert forum account that is in good standing. So just go in there. You can chat with other people if you're listening live. If not, then you can't. You can go in there and talk to yourself, though. That would be fine. It is open. There's just nobody in there. The call to listen line is one of my favorite features of this show. This is a phone number you can call to listen to the show at any time from any phone in the world that can dial. If you can dial the United States, then you can listen to the show through the call to listen line, and it does not require a smartphone. You don't need an app. You don't need a data plan. You don't need the internet. You don't need a computer. You don't need any of that stuff. All you need is any phone in the world that can dial a phone number in the United States. And that phone number is 712-775-8162. 712-775-8162. What if you have a crappy cell phone signal? What if you can barely get one bar? Will it work? Yes, it will, because it does not require a strong signal. Unlike when you play podcasts where it has to download a stream and that requires a lot of data to pass through, this does not. This is like a regular phone call. You can do it with a very weak signal and it does not eat eat up any data that you may have on your data plan. And there's no buffering. There's no pauses or buffering or any nonsense like that. It just works. It just plays and it works and it's great and it's easy. Just dial the number and it plays. 712-775-8162. 712-775-8162. That is the call to listen line. If you forget any of these phone numbers, just click on the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com and they will all be listed. It's that simple. You can listen in the archives if you don't listen live to the show. And I say that pronunciation on purpose, by the way. But you can listen to the archives. That would be... Again, by going to the radio tab, and you'll see the various formats you can listen. You can use iTunes. You can use Stitcher, which is an app. You can use TuneIn, which is another app. In fact, TuneIn can also be used to listen to the live show. You can use Google Play. You can download or play the MP3 directly from our server. In fact, that works on iPhones. You can just go click on that, and it plays. So there's a lot of ways to listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I want to make this easy. I, I, I hate when I go to listen to a show and it's very difficult. I hate when the interface sucks or when their app doesn't work or it, it's, it's tough to download. It's just, it makes me not want to bother. 
So I don't want that to get in the way of you listening. If you want to listen to this show, I'm going to make it easy for you. And I feel I've done so. If I have not done so, please let me know, and I'll try to make it even easier. Just text me and say, I'm not smart enough to listen to the way you have it set up. Can you please dumb it down a bit more? And I will. I will dumb it down to where a five-year-old can figure out how to listen to this show. But seriously, if, the, if you're having trouble listening or it's confusing, let me know, and uh, I will assist you or make it easier. So I think that's about it. Now, I have some bad news for everybody. Because we're starting late and because we're uh, on a Friday night, and when I say late, I mean especially because the show is just a late show. It's was scheduled for 9 p.m. Pacific. We didn't start till near 9.30. On the East Coast, it's after midnight. Cal Watt, we look, looks like we lost him. He said it would be a 50-50 chance if he make it till midnight. I didn't bother to ask him, what's the chance that you make it till 12.30? Well, I think I found out the answer as far as the chance of whether he would make it to 12.30 a.m. Zero point zero. So we don't have him. And Trader Ruski hasn't responded to me. I texted him radio at 9, and he hasn't answered me. So, now, I'm not mad at these people. They're not obligated to be there. But uh, maybe a little uh, lonesome tonight. Just just me. But I've done it many times before. And I'm sure we'll get some phone calls and whatever. I, I can do the whole the whole shebang by myself if I have to. The reason we're on Friday is because of our first topic. Our first topic involves a recap of my appearance on Live at the Bike. Oh, hold on. We have a co-host. We have a co-host. Thank you. Trader Ruski, hello. What's happening, Jeff? I, I thought there was no Trader Ruski tonight. I was, I was about to cry. I actually took a nap, so I was prepping for the show. Oh, wow. I've got some... I, Heated up some Starbucks and I'm good to go. Good, so you have some energy. Okay, now the only thing is, I believe I have you up too loud. I'm going to turn you down a little. Here we go. Okay. You know what happened was I I got this computer fixed, and then some settings got reset. But uh, I think we're I think we're doing pretty well. So anyway, I'm going to recap my experience on Live at the Bike. I played Five Five No Limit Hold'em on there with what was supposed to be a number of different Poker Fraud Alert people. It was supposed to be like a Poker Fraud Alert night. It didn't quite work out that way, but there was one other Poker Fraud Alert member who has been heard on this radio show before who was playing with me. In fact, he was right next to me. So I'll talk about that whole evening at Live at the Bike. And I'll also talk about the commentator of Live at the Bike, who was none other than the Hansen kid, Bart Hansen. He had a lot to say about me to put it lightly. So that'll be my first topic of discussion on here. And then we will move on to a continuation of last week's big topic. And that of course is the Las Vegas shooting. Now, no, I'm not going to recap the whole Las Vegas shooting and everything. And we did that last week. We did, we had a lot of discussion of it last week and we're not going to repeat any of that. I'm sure everybody's familiar with the story, but there are some new developments this week. Some of them are very confusing and uh, might I say disturbing. So I'm going to update all of that, tell you where it stands right now, and give my opinion. Trader Ruski can give his opinion, and we will see where that goes, and maybe next week we'll have even another update. But that's something of interest to follow because of its Vegas 
location and because of its tie-in with gambling. Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware have come to an agreement to share the legalized poker player pools. So in not too long, you will be able to play against people from all three of those states at the same time, from any of those states. So you will no no longer have to go to New Jersey to play people from New Jersey. You can do it from Nevada or Delaware as well. This has been something that's been talked about for a long time. It was kind of agreed upon in theory. It didn't really go anywhere for a while, but now it seems to be happening. So you can't do it just yet, but I'll tell you more about that when we get to that segment. Absolute Poker CEO, founder, and more importantly, cheater, Scott Tom, has been released from U.S. custody, and he has returned to Antigua. So we'll talk about that. And uh, he did actually spend some actual time in jail not very much but he spent some and he was very unhappy about that so we'll talk about that release and whether you can expect to see scott tom back in the u.s at any point i have covered over the last two weeks a disturbing situation on bovada and ignition where bitcoin withdrawals have disappeared and have been stolen i had a talk with bovada about this i had a very long talk with them because this bothered me. I wanted to see it corrected. And I may have been successful. It has not been corrected yet. But the wheels may be turning there to solve this Bitcoin withdrawal theft issue. To where you will not have to be afraid anymore to cash out Bitcoin. Right now nothing's changed. But uh, some, some things are on the way, I think. Thanks to me. I, mean, I, I, I don't want to shoot my own horn here. But it really was because of me. They were not going to change anything on their own. And I kind of pushed them into it. So I will explain what they might be doing, what they had to say to me, and also one way in the meantime that you can prevent this from occurring. Kind of a workaround right now. The PPA, Poker Players Alliance, put out a survey a few weeks back, and we read the questions out here. I have the results of that survey, so I will tell you what those results were and give you my opinion on the survey itself and what it really means. The Atlantic Club Casino, better known in Atlantic City as the Golden Nugget at one point. And in fact, in 1983, I believe it was the biggest casino in Atlantic City. It has been closed for almost four years, but it may be sold and reopened. We'll talk a bit about the saga of the Atlantic Club Casino and its many name changes and owner changes. We have a Poker Fraud Alert exclusive segment, a new segment which we'll be doing in several parts, called Inside the Evil Empire. And the evil empire in question is Caesars. Now, this is not my term. We have a listener to the show and forum poster who goes by Gamblebot's Chafed Penis. Not Gamblebot himself, but Gamblebot's Chafed Penis. He works for Caesars. And... He has decided to do a series of posts with uh, some insider reports on things that go on within the company. Not very flattering reports, but reports nonetheless. So I'm going to read his reports that he posted on Poker Fraud Alert called Inside the Evil Empire. And you can learn about some funny or weird or disturbing things that are happening within the Caesars Entertainment uh, Corporation. 
If you're not a gamer, you probably haven't heard of something called loot boxes, but it's actually a weird way that has been likened to gambling in the video gaming world. So I will describe what loot boxes are, and then we will discuss whether these are gambling, and a decision has come down recently as to whether or not this is actually gambling, and I'll tell you what that is. I have an editorial this week about Harvey Weinstein and the uh, hypocrisy of many liberals in Hollywood who have for a very long time supported feminist or women's causes who seem to either be in Weinstein's corner or not speaking out against him enough or were aware of what he was doing and said nothing about it. I'll tell you why I feel all that was happening and why I feel it is so hypocritical, maybe even beyond the obvious. So that'll be my editorial. And finally, I always keep this to the end because I I don't want people to be bored by this last part because I know it only appeals to certain portions of our audience. Baseball talk. I am excited because the Los Angeles Dodgers will be starting the NLCS, the National League Championship Series, on Saturday. That's tomorrow at 5 p.m. Pacific time. We already had the ALCS take place, uh, Game 1, today, and that ended just before radio where the Houston Astros won, and they took a one to nothing lead over the Yankees. So we're going to talk about which of the four remaining teams, that would be the Dodgers, the Cubs, the Yankees, and the Astros, which two of the four are likely to face each other in the World Series. So that will be our final topic for the night. If you call the show and I don't answer, we already got some calls at the beginning and I was not ready to take any calls, don't worry about it. It doesn't mean I'm ignoring you. It just means that I'm not ready to take calls. I will tell you when I'm taking calls, or you can just try, and if I don't answer, try back in 15 minutes or so. Just don't hammer the phone over and over and over again, or I may block your number. So I'm going to get started here by talking about Live at the Bike. Live at the Bike is a stream where you can watch live poker taking place, almost live. It's half an hour delayed. You see all the hole cards. It takes place at the Bicycle Club Casino. In the L.A. area. It's about five miles from Commerce. And they've been doing this for a long time. I, I don't know how far it goes back. I think probably ten years or so. And I know Cal Watt was involved at, at one point on the technical side. Uh, Bart Hansen, who is a listener to this show and a friend of Poker Fraud Alert, he is the commentator there again. He was the commentator for a long time, then he wasn't, and now he is again. So I appeared on there. For the second time in my life The only other time was when I played Limit Hold'em on there In 2011 I think it was in May 2011 I appeared again Because it was announced By two Poker Fraud Alert Forum and radio listeners uh, That would be Ryland and Saul Saul is known as Lollaman to some people It was announced that both of them Were going to be playing at Live of the Bike On October 11th So I said okay yeah sure I'll do it too Then Brandon said yeah I'll do it too Larry Laffer said, hey, he'll do it too. And even uh, Jay Jammy said he would come down. So we potentially had six people out of the nine seats would be from Poker Fraud Alert. And I was very excited by this. Even if not all six made it, I just I just liked the idea of a lot of Poker Fraud Alert people at the same table and we'd have fun with each other. And, uh, you know, it seemed like it would be really fun to do. So that's why I said I would do it. And I, I wanted a minimum of two people from Poker Fraud Alert to be there besides me. Now, once I committed to go, I wasn't going to flake on them, but that that's really what I was hoping for. 
because without that, it's it's not that interesting. It's only five five, no limit. Uh, there's not really any big name players at the table that are going to be of interest to watch. I mean, nothing against the people who are playing. It's just they're not really known, and it, it, it's yeah, it's not. It's just not something that's that interesting to see, unless the people playing are of interest to you. And I thought like a bunch of people from Poker Fraud Alert would be very interesting. Unfortunately. Like many things that Poker Fraud Alert plans, uh, it did not exactly work out as we were hoping. (laughs) So, Brandon did not come. Jay Jammy did not come. Larry Laffer did not come. So I thought it would be just me, Ryland, and Saul. That's what it seemed to be going into it. That's what I believed as I was driving down there. Well... Saul also did not come. <laughs> so, it's just me and Ryland. And even worse, it was just Ryland at the beginning because I got stuck in a horrible traffic jam. Horrible. Now, I don't live that close to there. It's about a 60-mile drive for me. But still, you know, I, I said, okay, I'll give it an hour and a half. It was like all freeway driving. If there's no traffic, I can knock that out you know, way under an hour. But I said, okay, it's, it's rush hour. I had to be there by five. So, okay, I'll give it an hour and a half. Well, it took me over two and a half hours to get there. It took over two and a half hours to drive 60 miles all on the freeway. Well, actually, no. It would have been over three, mile, three hours all on the freeway, but I gave up on the freeway. I decided to take my own route. I got off on the streets, which were not exactly speedy either, but it was, it was the right decision. Sometimes you get off the freeway when it's bad and get on the streets and it's even worse and you're sorry you did it. This time I actually made the right decision and like on the fly I figured out a route. and I, I didn't do it with one of these stupid apps like Waze. I just did it myself by looking at the map and saying, okay, well, these streets seem to be moving okay, so I'll get off the freeway. It was horrendous, the traffic the whole way, like worse than you'd expect even for the L.A. area. Had I known it was going to take me – over two and a half hours to get there, I would not have gone. It's just not worth it. And it's very frustrating. Like, I, driving two and a half hours where it all moves, you can relax. It's, 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 it's all right. You know, I'm used to driving long ways, so it, it, that would have been fine. But two and a half hours weaving in and out of traffic, trying to get, you know, jumping lanes, get ahead of this car, that car, you know, get off the freeway, change the route, go down the street, then the streets back up, go to a different street. It, it's very, very stressful. I hate driving under those conditions. So, I was supposed to be there at 5 o'clock, with the stream starting to record at 5.30, and then you would see it at 6 o'clock, because it's on half an hour delay. I did not get there until, like, 6.10 or so. So I missed 40 minutes of the recording, and you guys didn't see me appear until, I think, about 6.40. But it's all because of the traffic. It was horrible. Anyway... My plan going into this, since it was only a 5-5 no limit, which is it's not peanuts. You know, 5-5 no limit, you can lose a lot of money if you play wild and run bad. But at the same time, it's not a high limit game. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm just going to have some fun here. I'm, gonna, I'm going to play an aggressive style. I'll, I'll splash some money around. I'll splash some chips around. I'm not going to worry about it. And, you know, hopefully the table, of you know, it's not likely to have expert players it probably at best has some grinders who grind things like two five or maybe even five five for a living 
but I'm not. I, I knew I wouldn't be up against like world class players, so I, I figured, you know, playing a style like that, uh, they may actually have some trouble dealing with it. Maybe I can actually make some money if I run well. So that was my plan going in. I was not going to show up there and just be a nit. The problem was, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, most of you who listen to this show play poker. Some of you don't, but most of you either play or have played a good deal of poker. And sometimes you just come into the game and right from the start, you're like in the wrong mindset. It's, and you can't just shake it off and say, okay, I'll be in the right mindset now. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes just when you come into the game, you're just not the way that uh, you'd prefer to be. You're not entering it with a, with a good attitude. And that's kind of what happened here. The, the traffic really sapped a lot of my energy and excitement for the whole thing. And I was also stressed because I was so late. I was worried to give away my seat. So, so I, I got there. And to their credit, they held my seat. And I sat down. Eric Ryland was right there. I'd never met him before. So I got to meet him for the first time. He was very excited to meet me. Very, very uh, over-exuberant about meeting me, Eric Ryland. By the way, he, he drove in for, from Vegas for this. Though I think he drove in the night before, so he had plenty of time. But he drove in from Vegas, and he told me that he listened to Poker Fraud Alert Radio all the way from Vegas. So he, he met me for the first time, and I met him for the first time. But right from the beginning, I just, I just felt kind of off. I felt like the stress of that whole trip down there took away the mindset that I really wanted to have there. And by the way, this is the same reason I don't ever play on the same day that I drive to Vegas for the World Series. Like, I, I have considered before, like, if I have an event at 4 that I'll, or 3, whatever, that I'll just get up early in the morning and then drive to Vegas and I'll have plenty of time. But no, I don't want to do that in case the drive stresses me out in some way. And then I'll arrive there with the wrong mindset. And Andrew just kind of worn out from driving all those hours. So I, I said, no, I want to sleep. I want to go to a hotel, sleep, then get up and play. That's what I want to do. But here I couldn't really do that. So I came in already with kind of a, a different attitude than I had planned to come there with. Now, I didn't sit down and say, okay, I'm going to be a nit. I just, thought, I just didn't have it. I just didn't have that yet. I just wasn't excited anymore to play. Well... Very soon after I started playing, like the third hand, I got dealt king-queen offsuit. I opened with that. I got flatted by, like, I don't know, two or three people. And the board came king-deuce-three with, uh, with two clubs. I think the king was of clubs and three was of clubs. So it was king-deuce-three with two clubs. So I bet... And a guy to my left, who seemed like a... Just my immediate impression was this guy was like a solid player. So he called. He called himself Surf on the, on the stream. I don't know what his real name is. But Surf called my bet on the flop. The turn was an offsuited jack. I'm thinking, well, I hope he doesn't have King Jack. If he raised me big there, I was going to fold it. But I bet, and I was happy to see he just called. The river was an offsuited five, so flush did not come in. Five looked pretty safe. The funny thing is, before I made my final bet, I thought, what if he has ace four of clubs? Like that, that was on my mind. Like, you know, the five, it seems pretty safe, but what if he's got ace four of clubs? 
So I bet 200 and he goes all in. I go, God damn it, he's got ace-four of clubs. <laughs> I should have said it on the stream, too, because like I knew that's what he had. I just, I just had a feeling he wasn't bluffing me here. I didn't think he was going to call me down like that with a pair of fives in and in a no-limit game. So the only thing that made sense was, was ace-four of clubs. And it didn't make sense if it was ace-four offsuit either. Just, it, the only thing that added up with this guy is he had ace-four of clubs. So I tossed it. Sure enough, he had ace-four of clubs. So it was a good fold. But that wasn't a happy start. Like, I'm already down, like, four or 500. I think I was down, like, 500 bucks from that hand. Maybe 400. I think four-something. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But is that huge money? No. But, you know, you're at a 5-5 game. That's, that's something. So... Then I, I played like a, another hand right after that, and you know, totally missed the flop, and that guy flopped a straight draw, and he bet me off in the turn because I just check folded because I had nothing. So immediately I'm down. Immediately I'm just losing, and it wasn't getting any better. Like I was getting just a combination of very card dead, and when I did play, I was just not winning. Not because anyone was like outplaying me or running me off uh, better hands. There, there was one hand where I was run run off, but even Bart Hansen said on the stream. That he would have folded too, and Bart Hansen is a very good player. You know, he's a he runs CrushLifePoker.com. He's a, he's a poker coach. He uh, he's done a lot of great videos. So this is this is someone who knows what he's talking about. And even he agreed that uh, my fold, while had I been able to see the cards, I would not have folded. And and, and I wasn't sure I was going to fold. I thought about it a long time. But there was a guy on the stream who called himself Skills with a Z. That's S K I L L Z. And uh, some people likened him to my Chico Loco character. That I do on this show And for good reason So he was a Mexican guy He was actually wearing a L.A. Dodgers cap He Said that he grew up in the ghetto Actually a very similar backstory to Chico Loco That's what's funny is Chico Loco's uh, backstory Is that He grew up in the ghetto Well it's, it's actually a revolving story Sometimes he's supposed to be illegal But uh, this, this guy I don't think was illegal But anyway Chico Loco was supposed to have grown up in the, in the ghetto And been in a gang And then uh, Kind of cleaned himself up uh, through poker. Like poker, kind of cleaned up his life. But sometimes he has trouble getting away from his uh, ghetto roots. That's uh, that's Chico Loco's backstory when I make the prank calls with him. This guy wasn't too far from that, from what he said of himself. Anyway, I didn't really see much about his play style at the beginning that was very significant. I saw that, yeah, he played a number of hands, like he made a number of loose calls pre-flop, but beyond that, he seemed to be pretty reasonable in the way he would play, in that he didn't seem to be a maniac, he didn't seem to be uh, doing anything that was really notable, other than, again, uh, seeing too many hands pre-flop. So, people were doing a straddle in this game, where you just put out, uh, when you're under the gun, you put out $10, and then you're last to act. So, he straddled. And I found myself with jacks in late position. So obviously I raised. And I, I think I got him and one other caller. And the flop came 4-3-2 with two spades. And I had red jacks, so the two spades obviously were not good for me. But the 4-3-2 I didn't love because that's a very coordinated board. Now, if he check-raised me there, I was considering shoving it in. Just thinking that he might be doing that on a draw. But the problem, when, you, when the guy straddles, especially a loose player who straddles, he really can have almost any two cards. So you can't rule out anything. You can't rule out two pair. You can't rule out a set. You can't rule out uh, five, six 
or Ace Five, or yeah, there's so many ways he could already have flopped something very big, or just flopped a flush draw, or just flopped a straight draw, or maybe both. So the truth is, if he put a lot in on the flop, I was going to probably call him with the jacks. I wasn't thrilled about it, but I was probably going to do it. So I bet the flop. He checked. I bet he called. I said, "Okay." I bet he's chasing some kind of draw. Turn offsuit at seven. Seemed like an inconsequential card. He checks. I bet 175. He makes it 425. Now, the problem with 425 is if I were to call the remainder of that, then I'm pretty much pot committing myself from that point forward. So my decision really at that point, given what I would have had left if I called the 425, would have been, yeah, do I commit all my chips to this or not? So I would have gone all in. It was either go all in or, fo- or fold. There is, uh, because I, you know, there's a lot of draws out there, so he's probably calling it all in. And I don't have that much more to get all in. In fact, if he doesn't call the all in, that's probably good for me unless he has complete air, because then I just take it down with a hand that's probably vulnerable. So I sat for a long time, and I kept thinking, wow, I, I wonder if he's got like 7 to 5 suited. So now he's got the uh, uh, you know top pair and the, and the straight draw and, and the flush draw. Maybe that, or maybe he just has a, you know, something seven suited, like queen seven suited, or any, you know, anything seven suited. But then I thought, well, what if he flopped the straight? What if he just turned two pair? What if he flopped a set? What if he had pocket sevens and just turned a set? There's a lot of ways where red jacks are just absolutely crushed or perhaps drawing dead. And again, this guy was not playing unreasonable at this point. Later on in the stream... Skills drank a lot and just tilted, and he playing super crazy. At that point, I would have called him all day. I would have snap called him. <laughs> I would have snap shoved him. But I would, uh, at this point, not only didn't I have much experience with him yet, but he wasn't playing unreasonably. So I thought, I thought, I thought. A lot of me just really wanted to call that, and I think maybe on a different day I might have, but. I thought, no, I don't want to put in the. I, I don't. I haven't put in that much money yet. I'll have to put in a lot more here, and I could be drawing dead. And so I said, screw it, and I tossed it. Well, it turned out he had nine six spades. So yeah, he had a pretty good draw. The seven didn't really change anything, but yeah, on the flop he had a good draw, where he had the gut shot and the flush draw. But I was still seventy three percent to win that hand on the turn. Now Bart Hansen agreed. That it was a good fold because normally when someone check raises the turn like that, they're very strong. He said usually that it's usually the, it's the flop. If they flopped a big draw, that they try to f- push you out. They don't wait to the turn to do it. Usually the turn is more indicative of a made hand. And that's what I thought too. And I also just thought there are so many ways I'm just completely crushed and I have no way out of it. So I folded. Other than that, uh, I didn't really make bad folds. So it wasn't like I was being run off of uh, better hands or people were bullying me at the table. It wasn't like that at all. In fact, I was just not in many hands. At one one point, people laughed at me because my uh, VPIP rate, which has to do with the uh, uh, amount of money I I voluntarily put into the pot, was 7%, which is extremely low. Too low. But it was because I was dealt trash after trash after trash. I mean, real trash. You know, 7-4 offsuit, 8-3 offsuit, 10 deuce offsuit, over and over and over again. And then the few times I wouldn't get that, uh, I'd get something better, then I would just miss the flop and check fold. So 
There's another one other hand people criticize me for that uh, is the pocket nines hand. And again, near the beginning of the stream, I, I had uh, pocket nines, and a guy opened to eighty five dollars. This is a five five game. So there's a straddler, so a limper. So it goes ten dollars, ten dollars, and eighty five dollars. And I've got nines on the button. Like, uh, you know, I, I'm just not deep enough to set mine with nines, and uh, nor do I want to play nines post flop because when someone does that weird thing, like eighty-five dollars on top of two tens, that it's kind of like a hand they feel a little uncomfortable with playing post flop, and that's usually like tens or jacks. So I didn't want to have to face tens or jacks, where a good flop for me is also a good flop for them, aside from me hitting a set. So I'm thinking, okay, well, what if the board comes low? Do I stack off? You know, what do I do? So I said, no, nah, I don't want to do it. Just it's, it's, it's not worth it. This is just too weird. So I folded it. And it's because of the size of the raise, because of the $85 raise. The guy made it 40 I was going to call it. Or maybe or maybe even 3-bet. Probably 3-bet. So, also keep in mind, I have not played No Limit Cash in years. I'm just not a no-limit cash player. I don't enjoy it. I only went there because I wanted to be part of this Poker Fraud Alert game. I am mostly a limit player. Mostly limit hold'em. Some Omaha 8 or better. Some PLO 8. Some Big O. Some PLO even. I don't even like that very much. No-limit hold'em, I just don't play. In cash. Tournaments, yes. Cash, no. And it's a different game, no limit hold'em, you know, between cash and tournaments. Someone, uh, Willie McFML, who listens to this show and posts on the forum, he had an interesting observation watching me play, saying that it seemed like I brought my no limit tournament game to the cash game. And I thought, hmm, you know, he's actually he might be right there. That might be uh, that might be a fair criticism because I was thinking, well, you know, what would I like not have done? In the tournament that I did here, or vice versa, and I, I couldn't really say I, I couldn't come up with anything that was really any different, and it should have been. So he's probably right about that. But I, I didn't play many hands, and yeah, you know, there was no egregious mistakes I made. There were a few other hands I'm not going to get into that could have gone either way, as far as you know what the right way to play them was. But there was no like. Big mistake I made, nor was there any kind of like great play that made people ooh and ah. There wasn't that either. I was hoping for one of those. Like I was picturing some things I'd like to do, like if certain hands come down a certain way, some traps I'll pull, tricks I'll pull. You know, I didn't get an opportunity to do that. Just uh, I was either missing everything or I was hitting something that it was unlikely anyone else hit that board. You know, like I have trip eight and the board's eight eight four. Well, okay. How are we going to get action there? So, when it was all done, I lost uh, $630 on that stream. That was, uh, I was never up, never even close to up, never close to even. At the worst point, I was probably almost 1000 down. Most of the time, I, I was kind of you know, hovering between somewhere of 800 down and 500 down. I finished 630 down. So... That was uh, that was the way that went. Didn't play many hands. Uh, I actually started to play a few more hands towards the end than I normally wouldn't play, just for the entertainment's sake. Like I, in the small blind, I uh, I flatted twenty five dollars, I mean twenty twenty dollars more. Yeah, I had five dollars in already, 
with seven six offsuit. It was like raise call. I called too. Just, you know, just just for fun. I, I normally wouldn't do that. I know that's a crappy hand, but I just uh, I'd been playing so few hands that I figured I'd, I'd mix it up a bit and hope to get lucky. And I actually flopped trips there. So I, on that one, I did get lucky, but. I I left the game kind of feeling frustrated. Not that I lost six hundred thirty dollars. Yeah, I would, like I would have liked to win, but that's not that much money. I play for a lot more normally. But I just didn't really get to play many hands, and it just didn't. I, I didn't think it made good viewing. I didn't think the people who were watching it got a good show. I didn't think I did anything very impressive on there. If anything, I looked kind of just uh, too uh, too tight and. Uh, Really not wanting to put money in Unless I really had something So I just kind of came into the game without the, without the Best attitude Kind of thanks to the traffic And then just the way the cards came down It was just, you know, to immediately start off losing With that king-queen hand on the river And all. it was like, it just kinda, I wasn't tilting, it just kind of took uh, Took some of the excitement out for me So you can go watch it if you have a Live of the Bike subscription. Unfortunately, they don't make it available to the general public. So if you missed it, you missed it. But you didn't miss much. It wasn't that exciting. Now, what about the other Poker Fraud Alert people? Now, I already told you the three did not show up. Three were not going to show up. But there were still me, Ryland, who was there, and Saul. But Saul did not come. I don't know why. But Saul, who was one of the original two organizers of this game, told Ryland, oh, I'll be two hours late. And then he just never showed. So, just me and Ryland, the Poker Fraud Alert game, which was very nicely promoted by Live at the Bike. They actually tweeted on the official Live at the Bike account that it's going to be Todd Wattellis and, and uh, you know, the rest of the Poker Fraud Alert crew, or something, something like that. Very nice tweet to promote me as almost like the headliner of that game, which I thought was funny. Like, I, I don't ever see myself as like a game headliner. Like, oh, it's going to be Todd Wattellis, we've got to watch him. Like, I don't, I don't see myself that way, honestly. So, like, like at best, I'm kind of like a... Uh, the, a, a fringe uh, name in poker, someone that you might know if you follow poker, but not like a big name by any means. So for for me to be like, oh, watch Todd would tell us this uh, this Wednesday on Live at the Bike, I'm like, oh, that's kind of funny. But the, yeah, they were promoting poker fraud alerts, and I, I felt bad that it was just me and Ryland there. But it doesn't surprise me. Unfortunately, we have. Uh, a site full of people that uh, with good intentions, but not always. Uh, they don't always come through with the execution. So, to be fair to the other people, nobody promised. The, the, the one I was most disappointed in not showing was Saul because he was one of the two that originally arranged this. Everybody else besides Saul and Ryland, including myself, just joined on afterwards. But for one of the two people who to arrange this, not to show at the last minute, just to not show up was kind of crappy. He didn't have to, but it just kind of sucked that the Poker Fraud Alert night was only uh, me and Ryland. Now, Ryland, he was interesting. <laughs> he, he, uh, he had a fold in this game that was very, very widely criticized. First of all, he was being very, very tight pre-flop. As tight as I was, he was even tighter. He was folding hands like ace-jack suited, ace-queen to like one raise, often to like my raise. So like I'd open with king ten offsuit and he'd have like ace jack suited and fold, and he was directly to my left. So we played like no hands together, not intentionally. That's just the way it ended up. But in one of the hands, which I was not involved in, 
he had kings in the big blind after being extremely tight all the way up till then. So it was like, uh, raise 25, call, call, call. He gets kings in the big blind. He knocks it up to like 100, and he gets two callers. So three people see the flop, and the board's queen, 8, 8. That's a pretty damn good board for kings because it's unlikely someone with an 8 would have come along there at that point once he kicked it up from the big blind and was seen as a tight player. And the two guys who came along were not... They, they weren't likely to be the types who would call a re-raise like that with an 8 in their hand. Maybe with something like 9-8 suited, they'll take a shot, but most 8s, they're folding. And pocket 8s is, of course, pretty unlikely with two, with two eights on the board. So you're pretty happy with, with Queen-8-8. Eight, eight. And it didn't seem like either of these two were thinking of re-popping it when he popped it from the big blind, so it didn't even look like they had queens and were deciding what to do. Like, he popped it and they just went, like, call, call real fast. So I knew their kings were the best hand. I, I knew kings were the best hand. So I'm waiting for Ryland to just, like, fire out of bed on the flop. But no, he checks. I'm thinking, hmm, that's odd. I go, oh, that's clever. He's going to pretend he has, like, ace-king and he's missing. He'll hope they fire at it and then he can check-raise them all in or something. So it worked. He checked. One of the guys bet. It was the button who bet. And the small blind raised it to 425. So it went, like, bet 125 and then small blind raised 425. Check raised to 425. Back to Ryland, big blind. So Ryland's like, what the hell? So without even thinking much, he tossed the kings. I couldn't believe it. And I knew he had the kings because this is so weird because he showed me he had kings, but then he forgot he showed me. So like after the hand was over, he's like, I had kings, I had kings. You believe I had kings, right? You believe I have kings. Like it was weird because he had just showed me. Like he kind of nudged me like, kind of like, oh, look what I have here, which is fine because I was out of the hand. So it wasn't like collusion or anything. But then, but then he forgot he did that. <laughs> so he kept... Uh, he kept asking me if I believed he had kings, and of course I did. I saw them. So I could not believe that he folded there. He not only folded, but he quickly folded without even thinking. And I thought that was a terrible fold. I thought, you know, when, when you see that, you're you're thrilled. When you see that, uh, you either just flat it, knowing they're not going to bet into you anymore, or or just shove at that point, and just be happy to take down what you have. So, anyway, uh, the guy who was in the small blind had pocket deuces. <laughs> and the guy in the button had nothing. He had ace high. So it was ace high, deuces, and his kings on a queen 8-8 eight, eight board, and he folded. Not very smart. And he was regretting that the whole time. He didn't want to believe the guy next to, the, the, you know, the guy in the small blind who was to my right had deuces. He just wouldn't believe the guy. The guy said it, but he wouldn't believe him. And usually people don't lie about their hands there because they know everybody is capable of receiving a text from their friends a half an hour later as to what everyone really had. So there's no point to lie about your hands there because they'll find out anyway in 30 minutes. So the guy right away, after the hand was over, said he had deuces. (laughs) Then he did. So that was interesting. And... uh, on the stream, there, there was uh, a number of people from Poker Fraud Alert in the chat for Live the Bike were interested. There was a girl in the game named Marley. That's M-A-R-L-E. And she was a, a pretty girl in her 20s with dark brown hair. And it turns out her name is Marley Cordero. That's C-O-R-D-E-I-R-O. Marley Cordero. 
And apparently she even appeared in some video for some small band I hadn't heard of where she takes off most of her clothes and you can watch this video on YouTube. You can see her uh, in her underwear. This is years ago. I think this is like six and a half years ago. She does look a bit different now than when she was in that video. She's in that video. I think she's 26 now. So she was around like 19 when she was in the video. Looked a little bit different than today. She had like more of a tan back then, kind of had more of a model look where now she, like back then she had kind of like this hot young model look. Now she kind of has like the, the like cute pretty girl look. It's kind of like a different thing. Like you, you don't look at Marley now and think, oh, uh, she's a model. Like you, you don't, you don't think that when you look at her now. But if you looked at her back then, six and a half years ago, she did kind of look like a model. And that's not criticizing her. I'm just saying that that's, uh, um, she's still very pretty. And uh, you know, you'll you'll notice her at the table. Like the people on the stream, people watching the stream noticed her immediately, and and thought that she was pretty, and she was. But um, she does look different than when she was in that video. But they, the the chat was very taken by her. <laughs> I got several messages from people uh, asking me to pass their phone number to Marley. So uh, that was not going to happen. I was not going to be uh, passing any numbers of chatters. To a girl at the table, but and she was like, she was a solid player. She and I, I had a feeling she would be, and she had a boyfriend at the table. Uh, boyfriend was a nice guy. His name was Mike, and just uh, yeah, Mike. If, the best way to describe him, he's like a twenty-something everyman grinder. Like just think of a guy in his twenties that grinds like two five no limit in Vegas, and that's. That'll be Mike. That's a perfect way to just picture him. Like I, and when I say like a typical guy, not not a guy who who's fat or ugly or, or weird looking or extremely good looking, like just just like a typical twenty something normal guy, average normal guy that you would picture grinding two five for a living in Vegas, and that that's Mike. But uh, he did pretty well for himself. You know, I got a pretty hot girlfriend there in Mar- Marley. I don't know their uh, their backstory, but uh, they came together. So they came from Vegas. They're both Vegas grinders now. Ryland is from Vegas. He's also a Vegas grinder, though he plays a lot online, too. And everybody else I didn't know. I, th- I think some of the other ones were from... I think everybody else is from the L.A. area. And the guy to my direct right who pulled the trick on Ryland, he was I think the Pocket Deuces guy. He was originally from St. Louis, and someone recognized him from... Uh, who listens to this show, recognized him, and messaged me about that. And I actually said to the guy, I wanted to kind of freak him out. I said, are you from St. Louis? And he looked kind of surprised. He says, uh, yeah, yeah. You just kind of seem like a guy from St. Louis. So I let him think that for the whole stream, that I just somehow picked out that he was from St. Louis, that he just seemed like it. And then at the end, I told him the truth. Now, I want to get into the commentary, though, and the food. Because that's probably what everyone wants to know about. I probably bored you guys with a, with a poker talk. I was known six and a half years ago, and I didn't do this intentionally, but I was known for eating vast amounts of food on the stream because it was free and because I was hungry. What had happened six and a half years ago was I woke up, I had not eaten anything yet, I drove down there. By the time I started playing, I I got hungry, and I hadn't eaten in many hours because I had just been sleeping a long time. So my stomach was empty, and and, uh, I ordered like like three plates, I think. One was a fruit plate, one was... uh, like a side dish, and one was was like a chicken kebab, something like that. I forgot exactly what I ordered, but this is six and a half years ago. But on the stream, it looked huge. It looked like 
You know when they say the camera adds 20 pounds? Well, it also added 20 pounds to my food six and a half years ago. And people were laughing about that. They couldn't believe how much I was eating. In fact, they even tricked Bart Hansen, who was commentating back then, too, into saying that I once appeared on the show Man vs. Food and won. <laughs> and Bart, Bart took it seriously. Bart's like, this is back in 11, you know, Bart's like, yeah, we just got uh, word that Druff, that, that he appeared on the show Man vs. Food, and he, he won it. So that's probably explaining why he eats so much food here. Like, they, Bart totally took it seriously. They were, they were, <laughs> so they were like, getting him to say all these things about me that weren't true. So that was back then. But since then, it's become kind of a joke. And I had promised if I ever appear again on a live poker stream, I'm going to try to eat as much food as possible. So I was going to do that at the 100-200 one that I appeared, the 100-200 limit game in Sacramento that I appeared on last month. But, and I, I ate a good deal, but not as much as I wanted to. And I decided to really go all out for the bike. So I was all ready. I fasted. Like a Jew on Yom Kippur, I fasted. And I was all ready to eat all this free food that they would offer me at the bike. They'd give me a menu, and i just keep ordering and ordering and eating and eating, knowing it would not cost me a dime. And then I found out that as of about a month ago, they charge for the food. Which is really crappy. Because they make money off Live at the Bike. You know, to watch old episodes, you have to subscribe. So they make money off this. It's like it's like a real business. Why can't they give you free food? So I was very frustrated by this. And I was about to just abort the whole thing. Because I, I was just kind of pissed off that I had to pay for my food there. And they just changed it like a month ago, I was told. But I only found this out once I was there. Well, Ryland saved the day. Ryland wanted me to eat so badly that he promised he would pay for my food. I felt a little bit bad for a second. I'm like, you know what? F it. He's, he's going to get enjoyment out of watching me just gorge myself here, so fine. He can pay for it. I wasn't expecting him to, but he offered, and I, I didn't say no. So he paid. I, I, I was the one who tipped the waitress, but, uh, but he was the one who actually paid for the cost of the food. So first I ordered a pastrami sandwich and french fries, and I made sure to get tomato on the side because tomato on the side was kind of a running joke from the forum. Where a subway once didn't want to give me tomato on the side. It was a, it was a subway in Vegas that told me that I could have tomato only on the sandwich, and I said no, no, no. Just take the same tomato that's on the sandwich and just leave it on the side. I'm not asking for extra tomato. Just leave the tomato on the side, and they wouldn't do it. They were. I was told the the owner told them they can't, and then they actually called the owner and put me on the phone with him, and he he scolded me for wanting to have the tomato on the side. This really happened to me in Vegas. So I I posted the story on not on Poker Fraud Alert, but on. Uh, Donk down when it existed, and everyone laughed at it. So people love to make tomato on the side jokes about me now. So I, I made sure to order tomato on the side too, and even flashed it for the camera when it came. And also a fruit cup. So that was my, my first course, so to speak. Then uh, after I was done with that, I said, okay, time for the next course. <laughs> so I ordered a whole second meal immediately. I, op- I ordered salmon with uh, mashed potatoes. And corn on the cob. And then, after eating two full meals like that, and as you can imagine, those are two pretty large meals, 
I finished it off by having uh, a plate of donuts and a large slice of apple pie. And this is all in four hours. So, stuffs a lot of food down. And I thank Ryland for generously paying for all that. Now, Bart Hansen, uh, he wanted to have some fun with this whole thing. So he was trying to give me shit there during the broadcast. Mostly about the food. and uh, You know, people give me such a hard time on these streams for eating sandwiches or french fries or anything you have to eat with your hands and then touching the cards and chips. Now, granted, that does raise my chance of getting sick because the chips and cards do have a lot of germs on them. And then if I'm eating and then, you know, you know if when my hands touch the food, then yes, this can transfer the germs into my body and I can get sick. Okay, so I, I think I'm safe right now because we're two days later and I'm not sick, but... Uh, Yes, the, I, I am taking that chance. I will acknowledge that. I'm not going to pretend like that danger doesn't exist. It's, it's not a horrendous danger. It means I'll probably get a cold, which you know, I get pretty bad colds, so it's not something I want. But uh, beyond that, though, they're making much bigger of a deal about it than it really is. Because, And if you watch the stream, you can see this. I always wipe my hands in between before I touch the cards or the chips. So I don't get grease all over the cards or chips. I'm, I'm, I'm not that discourteous. I'm not a jerk like that who's going to make a mess. Because it pissed me off if somebody did that to me. Yeah, so I, I make sure my hands are, are clean before I touch chips. Or touch the cards. And you'll watch me. You can watch that. Uh, I'll do that in between. So Bart was uh, was commenting about the thing. Oh, there he goes. He's grabbing the he's grabbing the sandwich. Up oh, now he's back to the chips. Oh, he's back to the sandwich. Now I'm back to the chips again. So greasy. These chips, if you see, these are normally white chips, but they get to be kind of brown because they get kind of greasy from things like this. So he uh, he was doing that, and the chat room was laughing, and uh, he was making other uh, comments like that over time. And he kept trying to figure out how much I was eating and keep a calorie count, and uh, he, he was having fun with that whole thing. So, uh, yeah, Bart was, uh, and I'll give him credit, he was, he mentioned Poker Fraud Alert, he mentioned this radio show, he in fact even mentioned that usually it's on Wednesday, but this week it's on Friday, so <laughs> people even knew where to find it this week, and he mentioned that, that he enjoyed it, and he was a friend of the show, and uh, so it's very nice of him to say, because they, people respect Bart, people respect his commentary, people respect him as a poker player, and, and... That, you know, if, I, I think there probably will be some new listeners who heard him say that he listens to this that will want to tune in to see what this is, if they remember that is. But uh, uh, So I, I really appreciated that. He also mentioned that I was one of the people who was very much involved in calling out Absolute Poker and one of the very early people who was calling them out for the cheating that was going on there and that I appeared in 60 Minutes. So that was nice of him to point out all this stuff about me there and uh, place me in a positive light there and, and mix that in with... Now, he was... He was talking a lot of shit to me. Not, nothing that bad. Like I, I was reading the comments in the forum, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what's Bart saying? Because like people are saying, oh, Bart is just you know, owning Druff here. Bart's just, just uh, really giving it to him. Like, oh, my God, what's he saying? Like, is he just calling me a fish? Is he, uh, is he bashing me? Like, I didn't know what he's saying. Like, I couldn't picture Bart being that mean to me because, you know, we were friendly with each other. So I, I, but I'm thinking, okay, maybe he's just doing it for entertainment and taking it too far. But then when I went back and watched the stream, I'm like, no, no, it's you know, this wasn't bad. 
Like any, any of the critical stuff he said was really just, just for fun, and you could tell it wasn't being said from a, a mean or nasty place. And uh, so, so I, I, I enjoyed uh, Bart commentating there. And I, I, in fact, watching it, I kind of felt afterwards like, hmm, I, I wish I'd given them more of a show. I wish I gave them more stuff to talk about because most of the time I'm just folding. And again, it wasn't really out of fear or anything. It was just that uh, I, I wasn't getting hands to play. And then when I did, I just wasn't really in the mood to play them obnoxious. Like, not obnoxious. Like, like I, I, w- I wasn't in the mood to play them crazy or play them aggressively, which was my original plan. So, uh, but I, I enjoyed Bart's commentary and I, I, I looked forward to having him commentate on it because I know him at this point. When he commentated on me back in 2011, he didn't know me at all. Now he listens to this show. In fact, he knows me better than I know him because he listens to so much of this show. And people get to know me pretty well just from hearing me a lot here. Now there's, of course, you're just hearing the, the radio side of me here. You don't get to see me in my personal life if you're just a listener to this show. And uh, yeah, there's some differences. But you're mostly hearing me here. I'm not putting on an act. I'm not a different person on this show than I am in real life. And people who know me in real life will verify that, that you're basically hearing me. You're hearing the real me on this show. So, so yeah, I, I enjoyed that part. I thought Bart did a good job, and I didn't mind the shit he gave me there. And he came down and found me after the show. Looked like Bart was kind of drunk, though. Like he, he didn't sound drunk on the broadcast, but then when he came down and found me afterwards, he seemed a little bit drunk. Not like fall-down drunk, but he seemed, he seemed a little bit drunk and he had a beer in his hand. And he, he actually found me moments before I left. Because I, I didn't know if he was coming. I didn't even know, know where to find him. I, I, like, I would have said hi to him, but I, I didn't know where to find him. Like, I didn't see him around, so I was just going to take off. And I was kind of just wandering around. Uh, I forgot for what reason. Oh, I know what I was doing. I was wandering around while I was just like checking the Bravo app to see what games were running at Commerce to see if I wanted to go down there. And then Bart found me. We talked for a while. And then I went to Commerce. And that's the happy ending here. There is a happy ending. I've been kind of a downer so far in most of the way I've talked about this. But there was a happy ending, and it did not involve the bike, but it had to do with this trip down to the bike because Commerce is five miles away, and they don't run Limit Hold'em at the bike above 2040. So I didn't want to play 2040. I wanted to go higher than that. So... I was ideally looking to play anywhere between 40, 80, and 100, 200 limit hold'em. So I saw Commerce had a 40, 80, 60, 120, and 200, 400 running. So I drove down there. Only five miles away. I found that there were seats open at the 60 game. They had started a second must-move game, and there were seats open at a shorthanded game. I said, great. Sat down. It's actually a pretty good game. But it barely lasted. I, I won the first few hands, and I lost like five hands in a row, and then you know, I was down about 500-something dollars, and then the game broke. And I'm like, God damn it. So I couldn't get into the main game. I'm just stuck. Can't get into the 40 game. I'm thinking, well, this is crap. You know, I just quickly lost another 500-something. Well, as I was contemplating what to do, the, the 40 actually opened up. So I got into the 40, and boy, was that a good 40 game. Now, Commerce, I hate the frickin' rake there. It's $6 rake per hand, which is brutal. It's brutal. 
I think one of the dollars goes to a jackpot, but still. And they also rake every hand if there's no flop, which is awful. It's a reduced rake, but it, it, there, there shouldn't be any rake. It should be no flop, no drop. But, and I hate that stupid jackpot that they're raking for. So I, I just – it used to be a time charge that was reasonable, but now it's just awful. But it was a great game. I'll say that. So I just started to own that 40 game right off the bat. First hand I play, I win. Next hand I'm dealt, I play, I win. Next hand I'm dealt. Like, like I've, I'm dealt four hands, I've won four hands. Like I've really won four for four in the four, first four I dealt without even folding. And it just went, I think I won like the first ten hands I played. And, and the players in that game were mostly crap. There are a few, you know, kind of aggressive Asians that you could tell were regulars there, but even they had leaks in their game. Like there was no one in that game that was particularly good. They ranged from kind of like okay down to terrible. So I was just running well, and I was way better than everybody in that game. So that combination produced a very quick uh, $5,600 win, <laughs> which is tough to do at 4080 Live. Like, I wasn't there for 10 hours or anything. I was like there for, I don't know, maybe uh, three hours, and I did this. So I won five and a half racks there, more than five and a half racks. So when it's all said and done, even though with the uh, small loss of the 6120 and the small loss of Blythe of the Bike, I ended up uh, going back home $4,500 richer. So that's the happy ending. So any frustration I had was gone. That was a nice way to end. Trader Risky, you still with us? Did I put Trader Risky to sleep before you even say anything? Oh, no. Right. Okay, good. I'm here. Can you yeah. hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. So, so now, did you uh, watch the stream at all? Yep, I did watch the stream, parts of it. So I saw the folding of the pocket nines. So what, I no, thought he had bet less than 85, though. No, it was 85, for sure less. Than, and, in fact, I rewatched it. It was 85. And, in fact, uh, someone in the chat room, the chat room loves to give me crap. So, like, the chat room, anytime there's, like, a, a close play, which could go either way, they they always want to go with like whatever I didn't do was the correct way to do it, so so they so they immediately uh, were giving me a hard time for the the nines, but so one person in the chat room defended me I don't know who it was but they said to Bart Bart had he called, that would have violated your fifteen x rule the fifteen x rule is a thing that Bart talks about that you need uh, uh, fifteen times whatever you're calling to set mine otherwise it's not worth doing, so he was saying I didn't have fifteen times eighty five dollars in my stack. So therefore, uh, the the nines was not a, that was not a correct thing to call. So and then Bart was saying, well, "Yeah, but it's just one raise. You never know what the guy has." And the guy only had king nine offsuit. So like the the problem is like as, as watching it and seeing all the whole cards, it's easy to see like like a guy raises with king nine offsuit and I've got nines in fold. And you go, oh, "Wow, you know that, that that super tight fold. That's terrible." But to me, as, as someone I can't see the whole cards, it really looked to me like the guy had tens or jacks. And I think, okay, well, what if I call this eighty five, and then what do I do? If the board comes low, do I stack off? Like, what do I do? So that, that was my problem. That's why I said this is just uh, – I'm not deep enough here to to do much after the flop play if it comes low to determine whether I'm ahead or behind. So that's that's why I laid it down. Uh, what, what did you think of Bart's commentary? I thought it was good. I thought he gave a lot of props to the 10-hour uh, podcast. <laughs> No, he kept making comments like yeah, that. Yeah, that's but, right, he uh, did, he did. <laughs> but I thought it was good. 
And yeah, you know, people gave Ryland crap about uh, being like being too uh, close to me and and, and you know, putting his arms on me. One time, giving him a massage. And Ryland was, you know, pe- Ryland was a, a little bit uh, physical at times. He was, he was starstruck. Yeah, he was. A bit, that, that, you know, but he was just excited to meet me. He he's seen me on these forums since he was sixteen. He even told people that at the table that he was he started posting on these forums when he was sixteen, which is true. And he's twenty eight now. And so so I'm someone he's seen so many years, and he listens to this show. And we finally met. And, and Ryland is just kind of his personality. Ryland is just someone who gets over-exuberant and over-excited. So he, he, he didn't mean badly. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't bothered by these. I wasn't creeped out. Now, like if I was like a, a girl and he's touching me like this, then I would have felt a little bit funny. But I, knew, you know, I know Ryland's not gay. He actually he has a girlfriend back in Vegas. I know he's not gay. I know I wasn't being like touched by some gay dude who's attracted to me. Ryland's just a young guy who, who kind of grew up watching me on these forums, listening to me on these shows, and finally met me and was excited about it. So, okay, you know, that's... Uh, but, uh, uh, so, so, you know, he got crap for that, and they also gave him crap about the Folding the Kings and the other things like that, but one thing that I want to say is that it's a lot easier. It's much, much easier to sit at home and watch this on the stream where you have no money invested, where you can see all the whole cards, and... You can say, oh, if, well, if I couldn't see this, I would still think he had this. Well, that's easy to say, but I'm telling you, when you see the whole cards, it uh, it really changes everything. Anyone can feel like a, a poker genius when you see the whole cards. It, it, even if you, you try to put it out of your mind, like, okay, well, if I hadn't seen this, I would have done this. Well, yeah, you can say that, but once you've already seen it, you can't really it, – it, it changes your judgment. So uh, when you actually put someone on one of these streams – and there's also a little bit of pressure just knowing that you're being watched – and you'd like to think that there isn't, but there really is, unless you play on there all the time. But if you don't play on there that much, like I don't, there is a little bit of pressure that you're being watched, and if you do anything stupid, everyone's going to think you're a fish. Everyone's going to criticize you. Everyone's going to make fun of you. Like, so so there's, there's that pressure, which you usually don't have in poker, where usually if you make a mistake, uh, either nobody sees because they never see what you had because you fold or you muck, or at most a few people see it and then they forget about it. But on a stream, it's different. So it's it's there's that factor too. But you know, for me, I wasn't so much worried about that. But it was it was more just when I came there, I was uh, I just wasn't in the mood to play aggressive. So uh, if it was closer, I would probably go down and play again. Like I wouldn't rush down there. Like I have to go play because I really don't like no limit cash. But if it were closer, I would do it. But to go sixty miles in, in traffic, and it's it's always at this same time you have to be there. So that's the problem. I wish they had one at a different time when I could get there without traffic. So that's probably why you're not going to see me there anytime soon. Because it's just too much trouble, traffic-wise. And a little bit distance-wise, too. But you never know. I've been on two streams. I I enjoyed the Limit Hold'em one more. Just because I enjoy Limit Hold'em a lot more than No Limit Hold'em. And also, Limit Hold'em I know so well that I, I'm, I'm very confident it's unlikely I'm going to make any kind of uh, mistake there. Maybe a small one, but I mean, you're not going to see it where you're going to watch me play the limit hold and go, oh, wow, Druff, you know, what's, he, what's he doing here? What, that's, that's crazy. Why, why would he do that? He's a fish. Like you're, there, There's not going to be much about that. You're, you, and you can go back and watch the Stones broadcast, and you'll see you won't see any mistakes there. And I'm, not, I'm not trying to brag or anything. I'm just saying because I play so much limit hold. I've played this for so many years. And I've been a long-term winner in the game, even at, at high limits, that 
there I can go play, and even on the stream, I know that uh, even if I lose, it won't be because I played badly or, or, or made some kind of mistake. With No Limit, you know, you can... Uh, I don't play them. I don't play No Limit Cash that much, so I, I knew there was a realistic possibility I'd make some dumb mistakes in that game. It was fortunately only 5-5, five five, so I wasn't worried about it. But I, I wouldn't... Like, if someone said, oh, you want to come down and play twenty five fifty? No, I wouldn't want to do that, because I... Uh, uh, I'd be afraid that I would make some mistakes at 2550 just not playing much No Limit Cash that would cost me a lot of money. So I'm, I just really came down there for fun, and I'm not really a, a No Limit Cash player. I've played enough of No Limit tournaments in, in recent times that I, I feel I can be competitive in those, but in No Limit Cash, I, I, I hardly play. So it's uh, something I just did because supposedly a number of Poker Fraudler people would be there. But, yeah, it all worked out. I won $4,500 overall, and even if not on the stream, but at least overall for that little trip. And got the Hanson kid commenting on the whole time, and at least, you know, people had some fun there. And I know some people even were texting Bart Hanson on his home number, not his home number, his cell number, that he doesn't give out. And we're sending him joke text messages, like pretending to be other people. Like someone was pretending to be Marty, and someone was pretending to be uh, Six-Toed Pete, and a few others. <laughs> and Bart was reading these on air. So, people from our site just love to give a lot of crap and to troll these commentators on these uh, these broadcasts. So that uh, that happened again this time. All right, I, I think I spent longer on this than I, I wanted to spend. I think I spent longer talking about this than I actually spent uh, playing hands on the stream. In fact, someone tweeted to me out of frustration with all my folding pre-flop. The person tweeted to me, uh, you're playing so few hands, I, I really believe that you just came down there to eat and not to play poker. <laughs> and it, it looked like that. It looked like that was my focus of coming down there just to eat. But I just wasn't getting hands. All right, 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. I will take calls now. I saw some calls coming in. I will take them now. 775 372 a three five five. Oh, I see, I see. We have uh, LOL Wow, who's also known as Gay Sex in the forum. He's in the the chat for some reason, and uh, he he listens every once in a while. He's like the type of guy I would expect not to listen, but he's listening. I'd love to hear from him on the phone. I've never met this guy. I've never uh, talked to him on the phone. I I would love to hear from him on this show. He probably won't call in, but I'd love it if he called in. Caller, you on the air? Draw. Yes, is this Raw Wolf? Yo, it is. What's he done? Well, I'm just about to move on to the the, the Vegas shooter topic. But what, what would you like to talk about here? Uh, man, I wanted to talk a little bit about Bitcoin and uh, also about your uh, episode on Live at the Bike. If we had like you know four or five minutes, okay. it's up to you. Okay, go ahead. So, what, what do you want to say about Bitcoin? Okay, number one to the audience, if if you're not going to talk, I'm just I'm going to throw it out there, man. Everybody needs to buy a Dragon Chain because they know I just gave out bit, bitcoins. I just gave them out. I've literally given out over four hundred in my life, just giving them away. Dragon Chain is about to explode. We've got about twenty days left. If y'all want to join, just jump on. If not, it doesn't matter. Fuck all y'all. Well, it doesn't but, matter. Hold on. How, cares, how, how is, it's going to really blow up. How, okay. How, how, so, is, how, how would someone buy Dragon Chain? 
Where would they go to do this? Uh, you have to you have to trade it with Bitcoin or Ethereum, but you need to open an e wallet. That that's all. Whatever. If they can't figure out an e wallet, fuck them. They don't need to get them. But you ought to jump on Dragon Chain by December. By December fifteenth, it's going to be really big. Okay, so just you've got twenty days left, something around there. Dragon Chain. Just remember, I told you. If you want to look up something, go to JMO's uh, Twitter. JMO. Everybody knows him. Look him up on Twitter. Check him out over the last three months. Like ninety days of JMO is cryptocurrency uh, kryptonite. It's it's obvious. Okay. Well, I, I will. So, t- I guarantee you, this is going to be confusing to anyone who's not uh, familiar with with uh, cryptocurrency. Like like very familiar with it. But uh, okay, go, go on. What else do you want to say? Okay, I, I also wanted to say, uh, you know, when you went on there, dog, like straight up, girl. You don't understand how many people, like, care about your value in a poker game. So it's okay to uh, to order 10 different dinners and all that act like, you know, that's fine. <laughs> you know, eat all you want. That's fine, Druff. But the way you show your ability is through the poker. And Druff, I mean, straight up, man, I really love you, dog. I- I've listened to you for 10 years, but you did not bring your A game to live at the bike. So we can talk about that if you want to, but you did not bring your A game to live at the bottom. But, okay. but, but I've already, t- I already talked about. It. I've already explained the whole thing. Like, there's not much more to say. I, yeah, yeah, you explained it from your point of view, but that's not really the way poker is. I don't really know you understand that. that. Like, you didn't. You explained it from like you thought you dominated, but you didn't. No, so we know I, no, that, no, no, like, no, that's not what I said. You I, saw it from like a dude from 2003 no, and we're in 2017. No, that's not what I said. I, 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 no, no, no. I said that I came down okay. there. I said I, got, okay. I said I came down with uh, a plan to play a different way than I actually ended up playing. And I, I didn't believe it. When I was there, I wasn't saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sticking to plan. I, as soon as I got there, and especially after I lost that first hand, I, I kind of just thought, you know what? The, the whole plan I, I had coming down here, I kind of just – I just don't feel it. I just, I'm just not going to do it. I just don't feel it. I'm not going to do well, it. Well, I, I agree with that. You know, you know why? Because Rollin did not help you. He actually hurt you. Which is, I'm not fucking with the dude. If, if I was going to play with you, I'd be, you know, all excited and, oh, I'm a draft. Let's play. But, but dude, like, sold out your hands on the stage. You know what I mean? It's like when the, when the. Uh, the New York uh, Rocket, you know, kicks first, and the rest of them do because they just they see the first one kick. <laughs> okay, that's what you were doing, and Rollin gave it off. And so, if I had just been sitting in the three seed, I'd have had all your chips. <laughs> like it just it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> all right, so I don't think you can really go for that in the future. But and I'm not fucking with Eric, but he just he sold you out. He couldn't help it. He was too giddy. He was too excited. Well, I wouldn't say he sold me out. He was, you know, he made occasional comments that were a little annoying, like where he'd say, uh, he'd say, well, they weren't annoying. They, they showed your hand. Well, and so any of us in the trenches, we knew what you had and then you were busted. And so Rollins nice, but. I don't, I, I don't know if they took him seriously. So the, he just did. The problem was – here's the problem is that he, he had he had a wrong impression that I, I was never going to bet when I didn't have it or something, which you'll see a few times I did actually bet when I didn't have it. Uh, but the he, that's why he was actually folding things like ace-jack suited and ace-queen to my raises because he was thinking I must be raising with the nuts every time, which wasn't true. Uh, so the problem was the time – Right, but, but look, 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 if you play three-handed with me, I'll give you 20% of your money back and I'll just play you 
and Eric heads up. Like, y'all have no chance. Are you kidding no, see, that's I'm not, nobody from Alabama. If no, you want it for real money, we can do it. Okay, we, we, we might do that. Speak. You might do that. You see, to judge this from one game after I drove two and a half miles, two and a half hours in traffic and was frustrated, it's, it's a different, uh, a different story. Now, I'm not. Now I'll tell you, I know, not, but but I, you had a guy selling you out on your sidelines. He was directly next to you, and he laughed every time you had a hand. Like I could, but he, I could but he didn't know. I didn't. I didn't. I, I didn't just, show him the hands. Though. Are he, you kidding? <laughs> Jeff, I'm saying he correctly guessed. You're way better than me at poker. If you play with, against me, heads up with Eric at the table, I will bust you every time. Okay, I, I think you I think understand you're, what I'm. I understand what you're saying, but I think you're giving too much credit to what Ryland was doing. Ryland, he happened to get no, lucky. sir. You're giving too much credit to your ability. No, he, he gave off more than 25 percent of your hands because he was just he was face. he was guessing it happened to get it right because he saw me. Uh, let me explain. I'm explaining here. If he saw me putting in a lack okay. of action. He just assumed automatically I have to have something huge. Now, when he said this, some of the times I really did have it, and that was annoying when he said things like that. But um, there, there would have been other times I would have been betting with a draw or betting with error if I thought the opponent didn't have it, where, where he also would have said that and been wrong and actually would have helped me. It just so happened the times he said it, it happened to match up with me really having it. He, he wasn't making sick reads on what I had, he, and he wasn't seeing my cards. He just happened to just always think if I'm betting I have it and then would announce that, which would have helped me if I didn't have you know, It would have helped me if I didn't have it, but, but uh, if I did when he says that, then it hurts, and it, it may have hurt. I don't know if they let... Yeah, you know, he said a lot of stuff. I know. Druff, Druff, bro, you're older than me, so you grew up in the in the pre moneymaker world. So I'm I'm not fucking with you directly, but I'm telling you straight up as just dudes that understand poker. If you want to play me heads up and have Rollins sit at the table, I'll bust you. <laughs> That's okay. So, and I, I'm not I, near I, as good I, as you when really, you hold them. I'll bust you at one at two hundred. Well, if you want to play limit hold'em, you're really okay. gonna, if you want to do that limit hold'em, you really be in bro, trouble. Bro, you can't play limit hold'em with me if Eric's at the table. Okay, I, I think I'll, I'll take you up on that one. <laughs> that one I'll take you up on well, for sure. When when do we need to do it? I, I don't. Know. I'd love to fly to Vegas and film this. Okay. When do you want to do okay, it? Okay, we, we 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 can talk about it. Okay, let's let's we'll talk about this later, but. Uh, yeah, if you want to play me with, with 100, 200 limit hold'em or some limit hold'em game, that's a different No, no, story. Eric has to be at the I table. I know, I understand. I understand Eric would have to be at the table. But, uh. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll have to discuss that one. Okay, well, Rod Wolf, anything well, else? Hey, before... Separate from that, man, I had one question for you. Yeah. Have you looked at Laura Loomer? L O O M E R? Don't know who Laura that is. Laura Loomer on the. Don't know who that is. Okay, she's reporting a lot of the stuff on uh, Las Vegas, man, and I, I'm really interested in the, uh, not that this crazy, you know, uh, side talk about what happened, but she's, she's talking about the, the time frame between uh, the shootings, and I really hope you address that in your show, because I, I, yes, you bring yes, a lot of, uh, yes, like, we, real information. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to talk about that tonight. In fact, we're just about to move on to that. So so thank thank you, Raul, for calling. I know you listen to the show. I appreciate it, and uh, you've, you've been part of this uh, for a long time. So uh, thank you for calling. And, and I'll, I'll really be in contact about that game if you really, really want to play it. And, yeah, I'll, and I'll get Ryland yes, to be Yes, I do. I'll thank get you, Ryland. Okay, thank you. Yes. That's an interesting – I thought you were challenging me in, in No Limit. He wants to – he wants to play me limit. Just to, he just wants Ryland there to like give away my hands in some way. That's I guarantee that's not going to happen. Oops, I keep I keep connecting him accidentally. Okay, there we go. You there, Trader Risky? I'm here. Yeah, 
It's kind of a strange. By the way, Druff, I think for live at the bike next time, go down at around 12 or 1, play some limit to commerce or the bike. Yeah, that's probably a good idea is just to play limited limited commerce. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I think that's the best thing. Yeah, the traffic thing wasn't that wasn't the right move. I mean, you're trying to drive to fucking the bike for a six o'clock game. Uh, You know, that's like a joke. Yeah, it was worse than normal, but I agree that was probably not a good idea. And it, it, it was stressful. And, uh, you know, I, I don't tilt, but I'm also not – I'm not someone who has, like, ice in my veins with no emotion. So I, I things like that, like traffic coming into it, the, it can affect me. It can affect how I play. It can affect uh, my, my mood, my attitude. Even if I don't want it to, it can. And uh, it definitely did. So anyway, let's, let's move on here. I want to talk about the Vegas shooter and – the information that's come out and Raw Wolf wanted to hear us discuss a big thing that come out that, that came out with it this week. And that is this weird changing timeline. So first of all, they still don't know the motive. I thought maybe, maybe, you know, in the, in the time between last show and this show, which was actually nine days. So we, we had a good deal of time, maybe in that time, we would have a little clarification as to why he did this. But nope, we know no more today than we did nine days ago than we did actually 12 days ago when this happened. We, we know no more about this shooting as far as the motive. Nobody can figure it out. There's really no indication as to why he did this. There's not even, there's not even something you can really guess at. You, you can come up with some theories, but there's really no evidence to support any of these. He was not suffering financially from what we can see. It seems like he had money. Uh, it, it didn't seem like there was anything traumatic going on in his life. It, it didn't seem like uh, there was any health issue. It didn't seem like that he was acting super erratic leading up to this, to where he just went insane. It, there was really nothing... It, 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 there was no kind of traumatic breakup, like where he uh, got dumped by his girlfriend or divorced by his wife. Like, like these things didn't happen. There, there was nothing that has been found yet to indicate that uh, what a possible motive would have been. So we still don't know. We may never know. But what's of more interest over the past week has to do with this timeline. Uh, there is, I think I called him Jose Campos earlier, but his name is Jesus Campos. And he is a security guard for the Mandalay Bay, and he is the one who got shot through the door. And the narrative that we discussed last week and that had been accepted as fact, because the police gave it as fact, was that some kind of alarm went off at a room a few doors down from where Stephen Paddock's room was, where he was uh, shooting the people from. He broke the two windows and uh, was shooting people through the through the windows down at that concert. That somehow, while that was going on, an alarm rang related to the door a few doors down. And that the alarm automatically notified security that something was wrong up there and that he went up to go find out what was wrong in that room. Not Stephen's room, but the one a few doors down that, that the door was showing some kind of alarm. 
So I assumed, okay, probably from breaking the window or from the vibration from the, from the, the, the gunfire that something shook the door a few doors down and caused this false alarm to occur. I, I was sure the two had to be related. So supposedly, Jesus Campos, the security guard, he went up by himself. This is the original story, not the story we have now. That he went up by himself and that Stephen Paddock, who had cameras on the hallway that he installed, saw a security guard and figured, oh crap, the jig is up. They've caught me already. They figured out, you know, it's it's coming from right here. They're going to bust in the room very shortly and arrest me. So he shot through the door to try to kill the security guard, hit him in the leg, and then the security guard, you know, got away down the hallway and Stephen didn't come out to chase him. So, uh, Stephen Paddock at that point figured, okay, that's it. The police must be right behind, killed himself. And even though they didn't bust into the room until an hour later, he was already dead and he didn't fire another bullet after shooting through the door. So Jesus Campos was hailed as a hero. That he was the quick first responder to get up there. And that uh, his presence up there him getting up there that quickly from that alarm caused Stephen Paddock to wrongly believe that the police were on their way when in reality it was going to be a while till they'd get there. But that he thought that just somehow they caught him too quickly, shot through the door, and then shot himself. Therefore saving many lives on the ground because he left more than a thousand rounds of ammo in his room unfired that could have been fired. They could have killed many more people. So I had believed, and many people believe, that Jesus Campos' presence up there saved many lives. Though there was something weird. We didn't see a picture of Jesus Campos. He was not interviewed anywhere. You think a hero like that in one of the most talked about uh, mass shootings in U.S. history, in fact, the deadliest one in modern U.S. history, you would think that someone who had such an effect on it, a positive effect, would have been a big hero. Someone that would want his uh, picture everywhere, especially since it seemed that Stephen Paddock acted alone. So it's not like he had to worry about ISIS coming after him or something like that. It's, it's, it seems like the perpetrator of this is dead and that there were no accomplices so that nobody would retaliate against him anyway. So why were we not seeing pictures of Jesus Campos? Why were we not uh, getting you know, having him interviewed? Why, why were we not finding out anything about him other than his name? But then it got even stranger. Because it came out a few days ago that Jesus Campos actually did not interrupt the shooting. And that Stephen Paddock did not stop firing after shooting through the door and hitting Jesus Campos. That in reality, Jesus Campos came up to investigate that alarm before the shooting started. What the hell? That is a pretty damn big difference. So first you have this alarm that goes off supposedly during the shooting, which you have to think is related to it, even if it's a few doors down. And then the security guard's presence there makes him think that 
the cops are just about to bust in, so they the guy kills himself. But then you find out that Campos was up there before the shooting started, meaning that they had nothing to be suspicious of. And that it really was just a coincidence that an alarm was going off a few doors down. And that apparently Stephen Paddock was not spooked because after shooting at Jesus Campos, then he started firing on the crowd down there. Now, some people thought that maybe this start made him start doing it earlier than he had intended to. Maybe he was getting ready and he wasn't quite ready to start and he figured, okay, I better get going. I just shot a security guard. But uh, that changed the narrative completely. And everybody wondered, okay, how do you make that mistake? Because at first it was said, the, the timeline was that, uh, the old timeline was that, uh, in fact, I'm going to bring it up here. I, I think I know what it is by heart, but I'm going to bring it up uh, Old timeline versus new timeline Vegas shooting. Let me see. Um, let's see if I can get one that's easy to read for this. Producing the show during the show. Now this sucks. Time, time, I'm trying to look at time.com. That's a terrible site. Time Magazine and, and Newsweek are both huge has-beens. Um... Let's look at the Daily Mail. They usually get it right. Even though the Daily Mail is kind of a tabloid, I yes, they they have it laid out so well. The Daily Mail, which is a UK publication, uh, it's a little bit tabloid esque, but boy, they get the facts. They dig in depth. They they do much better coverage of all U.S. news stories than all of the U.S. media does. It's it's very embarrassing that like a, a UK tabloid does a much better job covering. U.S. stories than the U.S. mass media, but they do. So they have a beautiful separation here between original timeline and new timeline. So the original timeline was that at 10.05, Paddock first started firing upon the crowd, and that's still agreed upon in this new timeline they gave. But what changed was that in the original timeline, at 10.14, nine minutes later, is when Jesus Campos was shot. And that after that, he stopped shooting. And at 10.17, which is just uh, three minutes after Jesus Campos was uh, shot, uh, officers got up there within three minutes who were already on the 31st floor, supposedly, because they were hearing some story about uh, you know, shots being fired from the 31st floor. It turned out it was on the 32nd floor. So that they got the call from Campos saying, hey, I just got shot up here, and they realized they were on the wrong floor and came up one floor three minutes later. And by then, uh, the shooting had stopped, and eventually they got into the room at uh, 11.20, supposedly because... There was no more shooting going on, so they figured it wasn't a rush to get in there. They wanted to be careful. That was the original timeline. The new timeline is that instead of Campos interrupting the shooting nine minutes in at 1014, that he got shot at 9.59 p.m., six minutes before the shooting. That's a pretty big difference. So the new timeline 
is that he got shot first, and then Paddock started shooting. And then it took all the way until 1017 for the officers to get up there from the 31st floor to the 32nd floor. Okay. Well, that changes everything, too. Because if they were there trying to find who was shooting at the concert, and they got reports that it sounds like gunfire is coming from the 31st floor, and, and they go up to 31st, and it turned out it's actually 32nd. Okay, that's a mistake that's reasonable. But you would think if Campos got shot at 9.59 and immediately radioed down to hotel security at 9.59, that the people on the 31st floor would find out immediately, the cops on the 31st floor would say, oh, okay, we're in the wrong spot. Guard got shot up there. We're gonna, we, uh, we'll go up and, uh, and get him. In fact, why didn't anyone come up in those six minutes between when he got shot and when Paddock started firing at everybody? It took them 18 minutes on the second timeline from Campos getting shot and notifying everyone he got shot to the officers getting up there to go see what was going on, including that the officers arrived on the 31st floor five minutes before going to the 32nd floor to try to figure out the shooting. So that was the timeline that was given, and that was given on uh, October 9th, four days ago. So the, the, the conspiracy theorists went crazy because there have been so many conspiracy theorists about this because of the blackout of information about some things. Uh, the mysterious Jesus Campos that we're not really seeing much of, uh, the lack of motive, the lack of any kind of video footage that's not being shared with us of anything in the hotel of, of Stephen Paddock bring, bringing the guns up or whatever. We, we've seen nothing, seen no footage. Just the general lack of information about Paddock, the lack of a motive. There's been so many conspiracy theories about this. Some even going as far as claiming the government did this on purpose, which I think is ridiculous, but there's even ones like that. But boy, did they go crazy once, you know, here they were questioning the whole Jesus Campos story. And then they have to come out and admit that that story they gave actually wasn't true. That Campos wasn't uh, the hero who stopped everything. He was actually, uh, he just happened to be up there before the firing started. And and uh, Paddock shot through there because he was probably just nervous and thought that uh, you know, Campos was up there to get him. But that didn't stop him from firing on the crowd for the next uh, nine minutes. So that was the story we had as of four days ago. But guess what? It changed again since then. <laughs> this this is insane. I mean, how how they, can they get the timeline that wrong? This isn't like the old days where everybody wore, wore a wristwatch, and if you did not uh, set the the watch properly, or if uh, it's a little bit slow, a little bit fast, it might keep the wrong time. This used to happen all the time. I'm sure Trader Ruski remembers too. I'm sure everybody who's older remembers that uh, you know someone say hey what time is it you look at your watch okay right now it's it's 958 well i've got 1001 i've got 955 well what time is it really i don't know you know i think my watch is right no i think mine is right like so nobody knew you you never knew whose watch was right unless you got like got on a phone and called time that was the way you'd get the accurate time 
But but nowadays everybody has the same time on their phone. There's there's uh, networked devices that people carry around. Everybody carries around, like your smartphone, that will give you the accurate time. And, and so the police and security forces of the Mandalay Bay they should especially have the right time because for them, knowing the right timeline with any crime is essential. You always want to know exactly the time to the minute that everything happens for for police reports and for investigation. So how can they be getting this wrong? How do they not know the time that Campos radioed them, hey, I just got shot? Like that that, that should be very significant. Okay, your, your security guard is walking around the hallways looking for an alarm and gets shot through a door. How often does someone get shot through a door in a hotel, in, in a big hotel like the Mandalay Bay? Like how, how often does that ever happen? Wouldn't you say when the guy radios down that's a significant event that they should have some kind of log of? So how could they be making these mistakes? And I don't understand. But it's it's it happened again. They changed the timeline yet again. This is from the uh, the Washington Post. I'm reading here. It says, "Uh, this was yesterday, or sorry, this is today." Uh, Las Vegas police said Friday that the gunman who opened fire on a country music festival far below his hotel suite did not shoot a security guard six minutes before that rampage. <laughs> uh, come on. Contradicting a timeline they had offered earlier this week. The change marked the latest shift in the official narrative of what happened before and during the massacre on October 1st. Authorities said the gunman, Stephen Paddock, fired from his high-rise suite in the Mandalay Bay, killing 58 people, injuring hundreds more before killing himself. So he also gave an update, by the way, that uh, the injuries related to the massacre had increased uh, up to 546. And of those 546... 501 have been released, 45 are still hospitalized, some are in critical condition. Uh, the FBI, sorry, they said that the FBI has made, quote, significant progress tracking thousands of leads and conducting hundreds of interviews, but that doesn't really mean anything. But the, the timeline, uh, they're really not giving a good explanation for how this is happening. The undersheriff, whose name is Joseph uh, Lombardo, is he the undersheriff or the sheriff? Whatever, either either the sheriff or the undersheriff. He said he was offended at the criticisms that he was taking. And uh, he he was very, very uh, frustrated with the amount of time that his investigators in his department in Las Vegas uh, Metropolitan PD that they have to dedicate to sifting through the timeline, that he's frustrated that he has to spend so much time figuring out the exact timeline. Come on. (laughs) He said, there's no conspiracy between the FBI, between LV and MPD, and the MGM. Nobody's attempting to hide anything in reference to this investigation. The dynamics and size of this investigation requires to go through voluminous amounts of information in order to draw an accurate picture. Okay, true, but wouldn't you say the timeline of a guy getting shot, that, that should not be voluminous information. That should be very simple. Okay, we got a call at this time that the security guard was shot. And it's not even like a matter of two minutes. It's not like the original timeline was 9.59 and they found out later it's 
we're talking about at first they report that it was at 1014. Then it goes all the way back to 959, which is a 15 minute difference. And then, uh, then they say actually it was not uh, six minutes beforehand. And what happened was after so after they said that uh, after they first said that uh, this, is, this is where all the confusion went down. So they said on Monday, this was this past Monday, four days ago on the ninth, that uh, it happened six minutes beforehand at nine fifty nine, and that uh, what had happened was they were looking for the source of the gunfire. And that they didn't know, once they went up to the 32nd floor, they weren't even aware that Campos had been shot up there. They were just going to look for the gunmen, and then also found Campos shot on the 32nd floor when they went up there at, uh, at, at 10.17. So the MGM, the next day, said there were, quote, unspecified inaccuracies in that report. And then they directly contradicted what the police had said. So, uh, so, so MGM said that uh, the timeline that Lombardo uh, reported on Monday was incorrect and that uh, Jesus Campos said that he had been fired at within about a minute of the gunshots being fired at the window, which now puts the time about... Uh, 10.06. So that at 10.05 p.m. he started firing at the window. At 10.06 he fired at Campos. And Campos uh, reported that immediately. That, that's what Mandalay Bay said on Thursday, saying the police were wrong. So who's right? So on Friday, today, Sheriff Lombardo basically agreed with what MGM said, but said that uh, the 9.59 time when the, he claimed the shooting took place back on Monday, that that wasn't inaccurate because uh, he said, it wasn't inaccurate when I provided it. <laughs> How did that make any sense? What does that even mean? Is he saying that a time traveler went back and changed the timeline? Because... It was inaccurate when you provided it because it was wrong. It's either accurate or inaccurate. There's no in-between. He either got shot at 9.59 or he did not. And if he did not, then your information on Monday was wrong. He said that he was told that this time had been written by somebody in a security log. So he said that upon investigation that they learned that, uh, that Campos found a barricaded door on the 32nd floor, which was uh, Paddock's door, at 9.59 p.m. And, uh, and he said it was in, quote, close proximity to 10.05 p.m. When, when, he was, uh, when he was fired upon. And... He says he attempted to relay that information via his radio and it was confirmed because he'd also relayed that information via cell phone. So the timeline associated to both of the sources has been verified. <laughs> okay, so how'd they get it wrong then? So this has really raised questions 
as to whether this whole thing is being handled competently. Because this is a, a, a very simple fact here that's being bungled. And if they're getting that wrong, what else are they getting wrong? If they don't know something simple like when Jesus Campos got shot and radioed it in immediately. It's not like he got shot and laid there on the ground for 10 minutes and then called it in or they found him later. Like He called it in immediately. So how do they not have that time? It also uh, raises some questions as to why it took them so long to get up there. Why did it take till ten seventeen? If he got so so okay, they're settling on ten around ten oh five ten oh six now. That he was shot. So how did it take another twelve minutes to get up there? So. He also changed the the story and said that he felt that Paddock was targeting officers, police officers, that is. That, he said, as our officers started to arrive, it is readily apparent to me that he adjusted his fire and directed it towards the police vehicles. Well, that may be true, but that also may be just to buy himself time. If the police, or, or, or be able to create more chaos if the police can't direct people to safety. So that that doesn't mean they're, he was trying to target officers. It major means that he felt the officers were going to hinder his plan. Now, he did acknowledge that. He said that uh, he wasn't sure if it was a vendetta against the police or if it was like preventing the wolf from getting to his doors uh, uh, sooner than later. So he chose to fire upon the police vehicles. And it also turned out they got another thing wrong. Remember we heard that uh, Paddock checked into the Mandalay Bay on September 28th and then fired upon the crowd on the night of October 1st. So basically he had three to four days to get the weapons up there, so we thought. Well, it turns out he did not check in on September 28th. He checked in on September 25th. <laughs> How do you get this wrong? I, I don't get this. Like, these are simple facts. Okay, so let's. I'll place myself. I'm going to pretend I'm in charge. Yeah, in this but drop. Hold on. Let me just add a comment about yeah. this because I thought about this too. You know, it could be that, you know, sometimes they'll give you like three nights comped, and so you know, and so you get the host. They make a three night reservation, and then you want to stay longer. They add on three nights. Right. So uh, it could have been something like that. Yes. Uh, yes. There's a good. There's a good chance it was. But th- but let me. Uh, that still doesn't change the point I'm about to make, and that is. Let's say I am the investigator. I, I'm the I'm the police investigator. I'm the lead investigator for this. They they send me in, and they say obviously everyone's going to fully cooperate. I don't need warrants for anything. You know, just, just everything like the, the Mandalay Bay. They're going to pretty much give me everything related to this. They're not going to refuse to cooperate. Okay, so it's very easy. I would go in, and I would say I want every piece of information on Stephen Paddock at this hotel. I want to know every single day he operated. He he, he occupied this hotel. From uh, you know, in, in the year 2017, even back in January, I want to know about. List me every date he stayed here, every room he stayed in here. I, I want to know everything you know about him in your system. 
and then they'd give me a printout, which would be very easy to come up with. It should be very easy to, to print out uh, every date he stayed and every charge he made and everything like that, what rooms he was in. It should all be right there. And then I would see, okay, he stayed in September you know, September 25th, 28th uh, on this reservation, 28th to, the, to October 1st on this reservation. Like I, I would see it plain as day. I can't see how this would have been missed unless the people doing this were, were just incompetent and just called to the Mandalay Bay and go, uh, can you tell us the date of uh, Stephen Paddock's day? The, uh, it says on this reservation for this room number, uh, September 28th uh, through October 2nd. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Like I think that's what happened. And by the way, Jeff, it is confirmed. Like he was, he didn't change rooms after the three days, right? He was in that room for yeah, six days. It seems like it. They haven't, uh, they haven't said that he's changed rooms. So I'm assuming it was the same room. So, yeah, I, like, like, how do they? It just sounds like they just ask a quick question, get a quick answer, and don't ask further questions. It sounds like there's just not a, a thorough investigation here, which is amazing given the high profile nature of this. This has been the biggest story in the country ever since it happened. And how how do they not how are they not combing every little detail there? Like they shouldn't be coming up with this a week later. Oh yeah, yeah, he was actually there three days earlier than we thought. Ah, yeah, we we kind of messed that one up. Like how 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 does that happen? So th- this is really making people ask questions. And I'm not being a conspiracy theorist, but it, it does make me question the competency here. It also makes me question. What was going on there to where they couldn't get someone up there that quickly after a security guard got shot? Especially, how is that not communicated if they're looking for a shooter that's shooting at the concert that they believe is in the Mandalay Bay? And in fact, they think it's someone on the 31st floor, which is pretty damn close to what it actually was. How do they not also have the information that one of their security guards got shot at the same time? Like, shouldn't that, shouldn't that be like... Like very relevant, shouldn't that be? Like, like, shouldn't there be a control room somewhere in Mandalay Bay that someone there knows this? Like, like, you know, I, I would picture the control room. Like, oh my God, we're you know, we're looking for a shooter in our, in our hotel, shooting down on the ground. Um, hey, guess what? I I got a call at ten oh five from a guy, one of our guards, that he got shot on the thirty second floor. Okay, he must be on the thirty second floor. Let's go up there. Like, h- how was that not figured out? Even if there are different people taking the calls, how there are two significant things that happen at the same time. One, a guard was shot up there. Two, a guy's firing at the window. So, one should have to do with the other, I would think. So, well, didn't and did they say today something about him like nailing the doors shut? Yes, yes, uh, he did that as well. Though it ended up not really mattering, but yes, he did uh, barricade the door shut. And in fact, that has to do with what Campos found. Suppose- right, but not to his room, though. That's to, like, the stairway that was next to the room. Right, so then right. Then he had to go one up or one down to get there, right? Yeah, and I don't understand why he mailed the, why he mailed the, nailed the staircase down, maybe to slow down police. I wasn't sure about that. But, yeah, he, he tried to barricade the, the, the door to the staircase, to where, uh, like, with a bar to where it couldn't be opened. And then he was also trying to drill the doors to his own room shut so they couldn't get in very well. So that was, in fact, I think there was even, uh, there was also some report about Campos that he was hearing some sound of drilling coming from, from uh, the room, and that's why he was standing outside of there. So it, it sounds like now that, there, that, that Paddock was probably getting ready, like he was probably very close to starting anyway, 
but he was still getting everything ready with the drilling and everything else, and then a security guard's outside his room. And he's thinking, oh, crap, if this guy comes in here, it's all over. So what do I do? What do I do? Okay, well, I guess i got to kill this guy. So, you know, it's not like he's going to feel... And, and just wait till the Rio next year, Jeff, when you try to tell them you want to do not disturb... Oh, I know. There's no chance. <laughs> I know. There's no chance. Uh, you know, like, like, it's a, like last year, every year I, I ask them for that and, and demand that they don't come in. Because they have the policy in the Rio, they have to come in every three days no matter what. And I always talk them out of it. And the way I talk them out of it is I said, look, what's the big deal? I'll come down here. I'll show myself every three days. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen? And they're going to go, oh, yeah, what's the worst that's going to happen, huh? <laughs> so and what am I going to say to that? Like, what am I going to say? Do you play video poker? We see that on your account. Yeah, we see you're a video poker player. We see that, uh, yes, and you seem to stick to the, uh, the most positive expectation video poker machines. And you, you like to put up due to that stirb on your door for a long time. And, uh, huh. You fit the profile. That's uh, – and you know what? What's also interesting we've just noticed is that you have a girlfriend who's about two years younger than you. And Stephen Paddock had a girlfriend two years younger than him. This all fits. In fact, we're, we're placing you under arrest right now. That's what they're going to tell me. So uh, th- this is very strange. And I understand that there's a balance. There's a balance when something like this happens. Oh, there's the crickets again. It's the crickets. There's there's a balance where the police need to keep some things to themselves, either because it'll compromise the investigation to reveal what they know. In some cases, I don't think here it would, but that can be the case sometimes. Or that they want to make sure they don't want to give wrong information. They have to go back and correct it and look like fools. So sometimes they, they really would like to hold back and not give the public information until they're absolutely sure of what they're talking about. So that's understandable, but yet at the same time, you have something like this that happens, and the public won't accept, oh, yeah, we're looking into it. Uh, come back in a week. We'll tell you what happened. Like, that's not going to fly. So there's got to be something in between where they can give out some details and say we're still investigating the rest, and then people just have to be patient, as, as tough as it can be. And that's fine, and I understand all that. What I don't understand is how they are bungling very simple details that should have been known right from the start. And that really makes me wonder how competently this is being handled. And furthermore, I, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but it is a little bit weird that we have not seen the security guard, that he has not been presented in any way. Why are they hiding him? It is a little bit weird that we're not getting a, a completely clear picture of Stephen Paddock's life. At this point, they should have been able to track down what properties he owned, what, you know, what his net worth was. You know, what, what, and I don't see how revealing this would really compromise anything at this point. So let's say, hypothetically, they, they, they find that he owns uh, eight different properties, some apartment buildings, some single-family houses, whatever, and they list them all. Okay, this is what he owns. This is how much he owed the bank. You know, this is what we've determined to be his total assets. This was this much was liquid. This much was just uh, was assets in real estate. This is what he was worth. Okay, that, that, that helps the public understand that he didn't do this because of uh, financial problems, right? Like a, you get a, a picture of how wealthy he was or wasn't, and you know a little bit more about him, and I don't think it would compromise anything. And this is something that you can look up in public record. 
So I'm not understanding why that is still so mysterious. We still don't know the full picture of what his real estate ownership is, uh, what what wealth he did or did not have. It does seem like he had money from what we're what we've heard at this point, but who knows? We don't know how much. You know, there's there's rich, and then there's really rich, and then there's really really rich. You know, like like how rich was he? So we're not getting anything like that. We're not seeing any video. Of him in the Mandalay Bay, which is strange. And you can say, oh, well, why would they release that? Well, they this stuff gets released all the time. We, we see video from casinos all the time where, where a crime takes place when we see a video. So why, why in the biggest crime that's ever taken place in a casino, why have we seen no video? And again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting conspiracy theories, but I'm saying these are all non-standard. These are all a little bit weird, especially with how high profile this is. Of why certain things that are usually released are being hidden. And why they're getting basic things wrong. Yeah, but I could understand the video as far as if there were other people involved or they saw with him and they may not want to, you know, I don't know. If they're investigating other people, they may not want to show what video they have. Because they may see him walking around with somebody at certain points. Yeah, we we have a I, I have a weird message in the chat room from Disposition, who's a regular listener. He's I don't think he's trolling or anything, but he says, uh, "Keep prefacing." I think he means uh, prefacing that you don't want to be a conspiracy theorist and then say strange lies. What, what lies am I saying? I'm not. I, I I don't believe I'm lying about anything. I'm 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 reading these reports that are inaccurate. And I just I just don't understand. I, I don't have a theory. I really don't. If I, I did, I'd give it to you. He's saying they've lied about the timeline. Well, oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't understand it. I don't understand how it happened. I don't know what you're uh, what you're trying to say. So I hope eventually all of this comes out. And that we even get a better picture of what went wrong with both the security slash police response to this occurring and the wrong timeline we're being given. And I'm hoping we can eventually see this Jesus Campos and there can be an interview with him. There's supposed to be like well, a- well, I think I thought he was given some award today. I'm pretty sure he was on the news today. Was, I, I think he was going to appear and then he didn't appear. Like he, at the last minute, he canceled. No, I think he appeared and he had like a crutch or something. I saw that see. on the news. And I was in the middle of 12 other things. I thought. No, no, here it is. Listen to this. Las Vegas security guard Jesus Campos disappears moments before TV interviews. Now, we do see a picture of him now. Uh, but it says, uh, where in the world is Jesus Campos? It's like a grainy picture. It almost looks like a last It's been nearly photo. two weeks oh. since the horrifying shooting. Get off, in- get off here. Chucker Carlson's forcing his way onto my show. I'm reading Fox News. Uh, the Mandalay Bay security guard shot by Stephen Paddock in the moments leading up to the worst mass shooting in modern history was set to break his silence Thursday night with five television interviews, including one on Fox News. Except when cameras were about to roll and media gathered in the building to talk to him, Campos reportedly bolted, and as of early Friday morning, it's not clear where he was. It's so weird. And then uh, Sean Hannity claimed that he canceled. 
So it says, little is known about Campos with few pictures to emerge of the security guard and no apparent online footprint surfacing to provide details of one of the most central figures in the mass shooting. Like, why, though? Why is he hiding? I guess you could say he's scared, but... Very strange. Um, but anyway, the current narrative is, is, is that seconds after Campos was shot, he started uh, firing at the window. So I... I what it sounds like right now is that once he saw the security guard outside his room, we figured he had to try to kill him and then just start firing immediately. Otherwise, they're going to stop him. And it makes sense. You know, you, you set something like this up and then there's a security guard outside your room, like, nosing around and thinking, uh-oh. Well, I can't let them in here. So... That's probably what happened, but who knows? I, I don't know what to believe anymore. I do not know what to believe. Now, something else that's definitely wrong has been the reports on the gambling he's been doing. You guys have probably been hearing that he has been gambling as much as... One million dollars. Times five is gambling a five million dollars in a night. You've probably heard about. And uh, by the way, you you hearing the sound trader risky or no? The, the one I just played. No, I didn't hear that no. one. Okay. I'm gonna try it one more time. One million dollars. Did you hear that? I heard that All one. All right, good. The, the miracle of Skype. So for. The media to talk about his gambling, you would think that they would try to understand it. You think they try to get someone on who understood it before they shoot their mouths off about this? And they did put on a few people. They, uh, they found some video poker quote experts, and some of these really are experts. I'm not, I'm not making fun of the experts, but they they found some of them to put on there who explained it. But even then, the media didn't really change their story. I, I want to explain to everybody what coinin is for video poker. Because some of you know, some of you don't know. I mentioned it on the last show, but it's it's worth mentioning again because they're pressing this $5 million in a night crap, and I, I want you guys to understand what that is. When I was in Lake Tahoe in January, I gambled $500,000, half a million dollars in video poker. I really did. Does this mean I have a massive gambling problem like Team MLK says I do? I could see him calling in saying, you just admitted you, you gambled half a million dollars on video poker. You, you, re- you must be broke. You, no wonder you're losing all your money. Benjamin's mom's supporting you. I, I can imagine the call I'm going to get here. But the reason I gambled $500,000 in video poker was because that's just coin in. I'm not actually risking 500000 because this is just money being cycled through the machine, most of which is going to be returned by hitting hands. It is actually impossible to cycle in $500,000 into a machine like that at the limits I was playing and not get the vast majority of it back. Simply because you just cannot run that bad. Uh, similarly, it's like saying uh, you're never going to sit down at a poker table and, and lose uh, 100 straight hands you play. Never going to happen. So, 
coin-in just means that you're wagering a certain amount through the machine over and over. It doesn't mean you're putting it in the machine. Because remember, anything you win, you can cycle back through. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm playing $5 video poker per credit, which means it's $25 a hand because you're playing five credits per hand. Okay? So let's say I insert $300 into the machine. And I hit deal, and it deals me uh, two jacks. So I've already meet, I've got jacks or better. So I draw, I don't hit anything, and what I, what I get is my money back there for hitting jacks or better. So I wager $25, I won $25, I have the same money I put in, haven't won anything, haven't lost anything. I have now gambled $25, according to this machine. Let's say I gamble uh, 10 more hands, or 9 more hands. After that. And six of them I lose. So that's $150 lost there. Uh, Then I hit uh, two, three of a kind into the other hands and and get, uh, so it returns $75 for each of them. And then uh, the other two hands I get jacks or better and get my money back. Again, I'm even. But I've, quote, gambled $250 already. Why? Because I've run a $25 hand 10 times. So as long as I'm not losing this original $300 I put in, I can keep cycling this over and over and over again. As long as I'm kind of like circling around even, I have not risked more than $300 at any point, And yet I could run up tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of coin in. So that that explains coining, and, and and a better way to think about this, if you're a poker player, a regular poker player, is you have a certain buy-in for whatever poker game you're playing, cash poker, okay? And you're going to win hands, you're going to lose hands, you're going to win hands, you're going to lose hands. If you add up all the hands you won in a long session, it'll seem like you just kicked ass. If you add up all the losing hands, it'll look like you got clobbered and, and you lost a staggering sum of money. But if you add them together, the difference is what you ended up winning or losing. So if you won $51,000 worth of hands, you lost $54,000 worth of hands, you, you, your net result's minus 3000 But those two figures both sound huge. But if you add them together, $3,000 is, you know, that's much smaller than the other two figures. So that's the same way with video poker. So that's what coin-in is. So the $5 million they're talking about is coin-in. Now, is $5 million a lot of coin-in? Yes. I, I, do, I have not put in $5 million of coin-in in video poker in my lifetime. So yes, that's a lot of coin in. I don't believe necessarily he did it in one night. I did hear that he played all day and all night video poker, that he loved video poker. I do not believe he was supporting himself on it. I believe he was supporting himself with his real estate investments. I think video poker was a hobby, and I think he understood that if he stuck to games that were either positive expectation or very, very close to even, slightly negative, that he would either win or break even or come close to breaking even. And then he'd also earn some comps along the way so he could enjoy this hobby and it would cost him relatively little money in the long run. Especially since he was good enough to stick to perfect strategy. He memorized the strategy. He didn't make mistakes. He was very focused. That's what I was told by this insider, which I told you guys last week, that he was very good at that. He didn't make mistakes. He didn't... uh, he had all the proper, the proper strategies memorized. He could play quickly. So he would put in a lot of volume 
but he stuck to the best machines. Not always positive expectation machines, but he stuck to the best machines, and that even if he lost overall, it wasn't very much. But I believe it was just a hobby. I believe this is just something he loved. For whatever reason, he loved it. That was pretty much his life, was just sitting and playing video poker all day. He had other things, he had other investments, he had the girlfriend, but it was mainly, everything in his life kind of revolved around video poker. He'd play it all day and all night. He uh, he met his girlfriend while playing video poker. She was a host at Atlantis in Reno. He ran up the tier points at all these different properties to get the highest players club card, including at Caesars. He was a seven stars. So he just lived for playing video poker. How does this figure into what he did? It probably doesn't. I think the only way it could figure in, and I I don't think I discussed this last week. Maybe I did. I think it might come out that Stephen Paddock had Asperger's. And the reason I think that is there's a few different signs that he did. Uh... He, he wasn't social. He loved uh, video poker and would, would play just an extended number of hours. He was very good at memorizing all the strategy and at playing it almost like he's a computer without making a mistake. Uh, he seemed to enjoy these super long sessions of video poker, which, to be honest, is kind of a, a mindless thing to do. Um... Something that one trait uh, of people with Asperger's is they, they seem to have an easier time doing repetitive tasks than others who don't have Asperger's. It's, it's much easier for them to just keep doing what many people would say is tedious or repetitive over and over, and, and it doesn't bother them. So uh, he was an accountant, which you know, that by itself doesn't mean anything, but uh, a lot of times people with Asperger's, are gra- they gravitate towards those type of professions. Uh, he was slovenly and unkempt, people said. That was, that's a common thing that happens to people who have Asperger's. They just uh, have trouble keeping their appearance uh, normal. And he definitely lacked empathy to have done something like this, which also can be a trait of Asperger's, where they, uh, they have logic, but they don't have uh, that much empathy sometimes. They, they don't understand the uh, tr- trying to feel what other people are feeling, and that makes it easier to murder other people. Because if you think about it, what stops you, the listener? What stops you from from killing other people? Well, one thing obviously is the uh, the fact that you'll go to prison or maybe even be put to death for it. But the, even if you can put that aside, even if you could be guaranteed you'd get away with it. What would stop you? And then one big factor would be the guilt of doing so. The the thought of that you're killing another human being who, even if you don't like them, at least has that in common with you and that they're uh, that you're snuffing out another life. And that not only will you be taking a life, but anyone who loves them will be uh, devastated by it. And you, you think about what 
your actions would cause, and you would feel bad and not do it. Where someone who has no empathy, uh, they, they don't think that way. So it's easier for them to do things like this. Uh, other mass shooters in recent times, I, I believe, had Asperger's, such as Elliot Roger and uh, I think Adam Lanza, the guy who shot the, uh, the school up, the, 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 the first graders. So, for some reason, that's not being discussed, but I, I've seen signs in what's described of this guy. It's also possible that something, since he's 64 years old, which isn't really old, but it's obviously not young, maybe there was some kind of health problem that caused his brain to basically malfunction, or maybe he already had the ability in him to do this, but that uh, whatever was preventing him from actually going through with it before went away because of some change in his brain that lowered his inhibitions. But we may never know these things. Like they, The autopsy only shows so much. So far they have not seen any evidence of a tumor or something pressing against his brain that would have caused this. There, there was a, a mass shooter many years ago, I think in the 60s, that when they... He, I think he was the one who was shot from a tower in uh, Dallas or something at a school, at a college. Uh, I, th- I think when they killed him and then did an autopsy, they found a tumor that was pressing against his brain that probably changed the way he was thinking. But they didn't find that here with Stephen Paddock. So we may never know. But I think I think the constant video poker play all day and all night... To where some, I, I've heard rumors, I can't, I don't have this with any kind of certainty, but I've heard rumors that he may have actually played the most video poker, at least in number of hands, of anyone in the state of Nevada, which is crazy. But as far as like sheer number of hands played, that he may have actually played the most. So that might be a symptom of whatever he had going on that allowed him to do this. Because just about everybody on Earth could not bring themselves to do that, to just fire out a window at people at a concert, just kill randoms like that. Only a very tiny percentage of people on this planet would, number one, want to do that, and number two, even be capable. There there was a certain percentage that might want to, but then it came down to it they couldn't actually bring themselves to do it. Like just thinking, oh, this would be cool to do, or what if I did this is different than actually doing it. So there's it's really only a tiny percentage of people that would do this, especially if you take away any kind of ideological reason. So if you take away terrorism or anything like that, just someone who just does it to kill for no apparent reason, there's very few people that would do that. So you really have to wonder about the mind of a person like that. Is, just the, is this just the way he was? Or, or did something external cause that? Like some kind of disorder or some kind of disease? Or did he already have it in him and then the, something pushed it over? I don't know if we'll ever find out. But I'm, I'm so sick of reading these stupid things about the gambling $5 million a night. So just to clarify, I do not believe that he was a super high limit player. I do believe he probably played video poker like higher than I did. I think he was probably a high but not super high limit player. I think he probably ranged between middle limits, like what I played, and and high limits. I play kind of middle-high, really. 
So he probably ranged between middle high to high, but not very high. That, that's the information I was given seems to indicate that. So he was not like a huge whale at the casinos. He was not. I think just the sheer volume is what allowed him to get some of these comps. So just a lot of inaccuracies out there. A lot of inaccuracies. And hopefully we'll find out more in the coming weeks. So this is less mysterious. 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. I see LOL Wow is still in the chat. Call in. I'd love to hear from you. I'm not even kidding. 775-372-8355. I mean, I, I promise not to give out your phone number or anything. Call from a different phone. I don't care. Go down go down the street to a pay phone. I'm not looking I'd to like get... to hear any theories anybody has. Yeah, that too. I'd like I'd like to uh I'd like to hear any theories too. I'm just fascinated when there's someone in the chat who like I've I've, I've always kind of wondered about. And he doesn't listen to the show that often, but occasionally he comes in and listens. This is one of those nights. So but if anybody wants to call and give your theory, you could do so. 775-372-8355. Otherwise, we will move on and maybe find out next week what else we can gather from this. Speaking of next week, I haven't decided yet if we're going to do this show on Thursday or Wednesday. I think we might do Thursday just so... It's not five days to the next show. It's just too soon. I like doing then six and then six again and get back to Wednesday. But it's possible I can't make it on Thursday. I have something on Thursday that I may have to do, in which case I would not be able to make the show. So just check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert. Twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert. You can follow pokerfraudalert on Twitter. And as soon as I know, I will... Announce it, or you can also check uh, just pokerfraudalert.com. You can see like a banner at the top. It'll say, or near the top, it'll say like a blue, it's kind of blue skinny, not really a banner, but kind of like a little line with blue, light blue with black print on it that says when the next show will be. Okay, so getting back to poker. Legalized online poker has existed in the U.S. for four years now. More than four years. And it's funny because I, I listened to some of the older shows recently. Not not in full, but I just called the call to listen line when I was walking the dog. And I heard a show from 2013 where I was talking about the new legalized online poker sites in Nevada and how it might be coming to California soon. And I said, but you know, be careful because you know, don't just assume it's going to come to California real soon. It may be as late as 2015 or even 2016. (laughs) I wish. We're almost to 2018, and it's nowhere near arriving in California. But this isn't about California. It's about Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware. Those are the three states which currently offer legalized online poker 
to U.S. residents, but only if you live in those three states. Otherwise, you cannot play. Live or you have to physically be located there. It doesn't matter where you live, but you have to physically be located in one of those three states to play on one of these legalized sites. Furthermore, you can only play on a site that has a player pool for that state. So if you're in New Jersey, you can only play against others in New Jersey. If you're in Nevada, it used to be you could only play with Nevada, but now you can play with Nevada and Delaware. But Delaware is really so tiny and has such a tiny player pool that they're pretty much a non-factor. They're just a, a small state that you can play additionally from, but it's, it's, it doesn't really matter very much. The main two are Nevada and New Jersey here. So there's been long discussions, long assumptions that one day... Nevada and New Jersey would merge their player pools, thereby making some of these games better. Why? Because these legalized online poker rooms have been fail sites. They have not done well. It was expected that they would bring in a lot of money. It was expected that once you take the illegality out of it, the difficulty with depositing, all that other stuff that was holding back online poker before. And yet still online poker was thriving before those Black Friday busts. Once you take that away, this should really kick ass. Now, sure, you can only play from those states, but that should, it should still do well. Uh-uh. WSOP.com, which is a combination of, of Nevada and Delaware, has... Anywhere between 130 and 244 cash players on every day. That's it. That's it. I mean, at the same time. like Not not the total user base, but as far as uh, at the same time, at most, you have 244 players, which, which is a joke. To compare it, PokerStars, which doesn't even have U.S. players, as you know, usually has uh, anywhere from like uh, 6,000 to 18,000 people on at the same time playing cash. Here we have uh, no more than 244 people. So that's a joke. They're not making much money on it. They're not making any money on that. In fact, I was told that they are losing money. At the cost of running this, between licensing the software and paying the customer support people and processing the deposits and cash outs, blah, 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 uh, you know, all, all the compliance they have to do legally, that that is far more than they're bringing in a rake from 244 people on at once, at most. So that's, that's definitely a failure. In New Jersey, it's really no better. In New Jersey, they do have a few more sites. They have uh, WSOP. They have Borgata, and then they have PokerStars. So there's three distinct sites. Borgata is Party Poker. WSOP is, is, is 888.com. And then uh, PokerStars is PokerStars. And they also, at most, have 200 people or so on. None of these sites I mentioned ever have 300 people. Never. Maybe every once in a while in Blue Moon, but for the most part, no more than 250 people on which is pathetic. That's not what they pictured when they started these sites. Now, as you might realize, action on an online poker site leads to more action. 
What do I mean by that? Well, I'm sure everybody who plays online poker has experienced this, where you think, okay, I'd like to play, say, uh, 5, 10, no limit right now. So you open up the online poker site where you have money on there. And you take a look. Is there a 5, 10, no limit game going? No, 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 no. Okay, well, this guy is sitting by himself, but I bet he's really good, so I'm not going to lay him heads up. No, it's not running. Okay, I'll close this off or do something else. But if you opened it up and saw a game running with six people playing, then you'd probably sit down and play yourself. So you, the difference between you closing the software and keeping it open and sitting down and playing, the only difference is existing players. So the more existing players, the more new players will go actually sit down. That's the reason that card rooms pay props, brick and mortar and online poker. The, the reason props are hired is exactly for this reason. This is nothing new. This has been known for many years in poker. Well, Nevada and New Jersey realized that if they combined their player pools, then this same effect would occur. That it wouldn't just be doubling from 250 to 500. It might be changing it from 250 to 1,000, because once you have more games running, then more people will also sit and play. So they're hoping that will work. But the problem was that they, they just... They were never against combining pools, but they just weren't doing it. And part of the reason was it's not as simple as you think. Because, for example, uh, which state is governing the laws as far as the play? Is, is, it, is it Nevada? Is it New Jersey? You know, who's, whose regulations are going to be followed? You can say, okay, well, each regulation will have to do with which site is played on. But if, it's one, if one site is the skin of another site, if they're all feeding to the same table then there has to be standard rules governing each game. So the two states have to cooperate. Also, who collects the rake? How much percentage of the rake does each state keep? How about where are the servers physically located? Because there's only one server running the game. You can't have two servers. You can't have a server in New Jersey and a server in, uh, in Nevada running the same game. One has to run it. So which state's going to do it? So there were questions like that that had to be answered, and there weren't simple answers to it. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's not simple. Now, with Delaware and Nevada, it was probably easy because Delaware was so inconsequential, they probably just piggybacked on, and Nevada probably got the better end of the deal as they as they deserved. But uh, New Jersey and Nevada, they're pretty much similar markets. New Jersey a little bit bigger because they have three sites, and, and uh, Nevada only has one, but they're, they're all of about the same size. So... It has been announced today, it's breaking news, that New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, that his office has announced that the government has, uh, that they've reached the agreement with Delaware and Nevada in pooling online poker liquidity. Now, I don't know what they're going to do is since there's three different sites with three different networks there in New Jersey. So I don't know which ones or, or which one will be partnering with WSOP.com. I have to imagine it's probably WSOP.com partnering with itself. But what PokerStars could do at that point is PokerStars could maybe you know, find a way to open up 
or piggyback on somebody else's license there and then merge with their player pool. They, they, they may not need to be licensed there. They can just find there, – there is a second licensee in Nevada that's technically running, but it's, it's, there's no one ever on there at South Point. It's called Real Gaming. Maybe Real Gaming can become relevant again because it can be uh, a portal into the New Jersey games. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying that's a possibility. So this has been announced just today that this agreement has been reached. So it's it's not clear exactly how they're going to implement it. It's not implemented yet, but an agreement has been reached and it probably will be coming fairly soon. So I will read you the actual announcement. And this is good news, by the way. This, this is what's needed, because these, these single-state rooms have been failures. And I think the only state that's capable of running a single-state room and maybe being successful would be California, because the population is so large. But everywhere else, there just is not the population to support it. And that's why these sites have been failing. So this is an announcement uh, directly from the governor's office. Governor Chris Christie announced today that he has reached an agreement with the Nevada Governor Brian Sandoval and Delaware Governor John Carney to allow Internet gaming patrons in New Jersey to play online against players in those two states. Uh, New Jersey's entry into this multi-state agreement will increase jackpots and opportunities for play while also providing an incentive for operators to expand Internet gaming offerings upon locating their gaming servers in the state of New Jersey. Operators will be able to allow their customers to participate in games such as poker, tournaments, progressive slot games with with players in all other states where they're licensed. Regulators in all three states will have to approve an operator interested offering uh, offering games to persons in each state and approve the game software that will be used. So so basically saying that no state's going to be forced to accept games they don't want. They'll have to approve any game that's being run and anyone that's running the games, but, uh, but they will all be able to share player pools now if they want. So here's a problem. Here's the reason they did it. New Jersey's really been slipping into the toilet with their poker revenues. In July of 2017, they hit an all-time low of just $1.7 million revenue from online poker, from all three sites combined. You may think to yourself, oh, $1.7 million is a lot of money. No, this is for three sites combined that are spending a lot of money to do it. So it's an all-time low. It's going down. So they've decided that they've got to do something. So you will be able to play both cash games and tournaments against people in these other states. You just have to be located physically in one of these three states, and they have to work out all the details, but it's been agreed to. They're probably going to work on it, and it's probably coming in the future. And hopefully, once this gets going, hopefully other states will join. And then it's just kind of a matter of having access through your state. So let's say, for example, you live in Nebraska. I'm not saying Nebraska is going to add it, but let's just, I'm just picking a state out of nowhere that's small that's not going to really be able to run successful online poker on its own. 
But let's say you're in Nebraska and they say, okay, Nebraska has just agreed that we can share player pools with New Jersey, Delaware, and Nevada. And so even if Nebraska com- contributes very little, now everybody in Nebraska can start playing on those sites with everyone from New Jersey and, and Nevada, which is significant. So maybe we'll have more and more states joining in and eventually they'll all be together and it'll almost be like a federal room, a room that's uh, accessible almost anywhere in the U.S. There will be states that will not do it, like Utah, you won't see it, Hawaii, you probably won't see it, and Wyoming, you probably won't see it. So there's certain states that probably won't want it, but there might be a lot to do. So if it's easy for them to do this, if they could kind of just join onto an existing network, that will take away a lot of the barrier to entry here. So this this is good news. This may actually provide a boost to the very awful legalized online poker market, which has been a failure. So much of one that uh, Ultimate Poker, which was the first legalized online gambling site in the U.S., they went under. They're gone. They were in New Jersey, they were in Nevada, they are both gone. I want to talk about Scott Tom and what happened with his case. Remember, he surrendered to U.S. authorities through a plea bargain. He came back from Antigua and let them arrest him and process him. But, of course, this was agreed to beforehand by his attorney as to uh, the way this would all work out. So he didn't just uh, throw himself to the wolves. But here's what happened with Scott Tom, the Absolute Poker founder and later cheater who played under the Grey Cat account and personally cheated me out of at least $6,000 playing me heads up. Actually, got cheated out of more than 11000 overall, but uh, on that site. 6000 was heads up. So Scott Tom, his plan was to not spend a day in jail. And he, he now keep in mind, he's not a U.S. citizen anymore. He was a U.S. citizen originally, but uh, he actually gave up his U.S. citizenship quite some time ago. And instead, he took citizenship in St. Kitts and Nevis. Now, I've been to St. Kitts and Nevis numerous times, including this year. Sorry, it was last year, end of last year. But uh, St. Kitts and Nevis, is it's a small Caribbean island, the Eastern Caribbean. And something they're known for is that you can buy citizenship. If you pay a certain amount to process your citizenship and also bring a certain amount of money to the island, which is the key, I think you have to have uh, $250,000 in assets or more then they will let you become a citizen. The reason they do this is because they want to bring money into the island. They figure if you have money, you're going to spend money. You have to spend money living there. So it'll help their economy, and they know they won't have to take care of you. They don't want to take on citizens who are going to be a burden on them, but they're happy to take on citizens who bring money. They're going to spend money and pump money in the economy. So that's what Scott Tom did. And he renounced his U.S. citizenship, and he became a citizen of St. Kitts and Nevis. He also may have citizenship in Antigua and Barbuda, which is where he was uh, living. 
Interestingly, he operates a party boat service out of Antigua. You can actually rent a party boat there with uh, water water slides and a bunch of other stuff. It's like a, if you want to hold a big party on a boat right off the coast of Antigua, you can do so. And there's actually been some, some celebrities who've been there. I think even Justin Bieber's been on it. And Scott Tom owns it. He st- that, that was his new business venture, probably with the stolen AP money. But that, that's what he started up, and he still runs that in Antigua. So what he wanted and what he was requesting was to come back to the U.S. to settle this charge against him, the various charges, to settle it, to be done with it, and then to leave the U.S. and go back to Antigua and, 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 and say cancer or whatever and just live out there. Basically, he didn't want to be a wanted man anymore. He wanted this to be behind him. He wanted to be able to enter the U.S. if necessary. He didn't want to be subject to arrest if he went to countries that had a extradition agreement with the U.S. He just wanted this over. So after all this time, he was able to get the U.S. to agree to this. And all of these felonies that were that he was charged with, they were reduced to one single count of transmission of gambling information. Sorry, it was accessory after the fact to transmission of gambling information, which is, is basically nothing. Because keep in mind, he he was running AP. He was he was the CEO there. He started it, and he was the CEO. So to bring the charges for that all the way down to accessory after the fact to transmission of gambling information, that's a joke. And the reason they did it was because that was the only way they were going to get him. He was not going to agree to come back to the U.S. and face a bunch of serious felony gambling charges. And keep in mind, none of these charges had to do with the cheating. He was never charged with anything having to do with the cheating or stealing the money that disappeared when Black Friday came down. He was not charged with any of that. He should have been, but he was not. They were trying to charge him with just running an online gambling site illegally for U.S. residents, but they decided that they're going to bring it all the way down to that one stupid charge. And that was basically in exchange for him coming back to the U.S. and turning himself in. If there's only one small silver lining here, it was that Scott Tom actually believed through the plea bargain that he would not spend a day in jail. What happened was that he came to the U.S., they arrested him, they quickly processed him, and then uh, released him right away. He was bailed out and he was released right away. So he, he did not spend any real time in jail. Like, he didn't spend any time in jail. Maybe like an hour or two. But what pissed off the judge in this case had to do with something that Scott Tom did that showed how confident he was that he was not going to spend any time in jail. He actually bought a plane ticket home for September 30th 
even though he had not yet been sentenced. So he was so sure he's going to be flying back home to Antigua, he actually bought a plane ticket to fly home for September 30th, shortly after the trial. So this pissed off the judge, whose name is Barbara Moses. And she decided to slap a little bit extra on him. She was pissed off that he actually was so presumptuous that he bought a ticket home before she sentenced him. So what she did, as kind of a middle finger to him for doing this, is she gave him a seven-day prison sentence. where he actually had to spend seven days in prison. Moses said that Scott Tom buying that ticket was a, quote, bold move. And that she purposely gave him a sentence to make that ticket useless because he would be in prison on September 30th. She was mad that uh, he had already decided what his judgment's going to be, what his sentence is going to be before she gave it to where he bought a, a plane ticket to leave. She also was unconvinced that the processing through the jail system, where he was just released immediately on on that bail, uh, represented any kind of real time serve. She felt that he didn't really spend any time in jail, so she said, "I I want you to I want you to spend at least a little time in jail, and you haven't spent any." So she gave him seven days, which is still a slap on the wrist. He also did have to pay a $300,000 fine plus some administrative fees, but big deal. He probably stole many, many millions out of AP. And probably still has a lot of that hidden away somewhere. And then he's making money from that party boat he's running there too. So unfortunately, it's a happy ending for cheater Scott Tom. And none of this super user cheating or the theft of funds even came up in any of these proceedings. Now, 10 out of 11 Black Friday defendants have now faced the music. The only one left, the only one that has not been, quote, brought to justice, though truthfully very little justice was served in these cases. And for those that it was served were the ones who were least deserving, people like Chad Ellie, who listens to this show, by the way, uh, the payment processor. He probably he and uh, Brent Beckley spent the most time in prison, and uh, Beckley deserved it because he's one of the AP guys who also stole. But Chad Ellie was just a payment processor, and he got like five and a half real months in prison for just processing payments. So it's it's disgusting that he got this time that he had to spend in real prison, and and people like Scott Tom spent seven days. So. The only person of those 11 who are charged on Black Friday that has not had their case through the court system at this point is PokerStars founder Isai Scheinberg. But it's pretty much assumed that that's never going to happen, that uh, PokerStars' cooperation with immediately refunding all the players who had money on the site, plus the fact that they paid $750 million to buy Full Tilt, of which that money was later used to refund the Full Tilt players who were screwed by the original Full Tilt, plus the AP and UB players who just got their money back recently, that 
Scheinberg cooperated so much that they're probably just not going to bother to charge him. So for those of you that were hoping at least Scott Tom would have to be a fugitive his whole life, what sucks is that he's not. He's no longer a fugitive. It's all over. But he probably won't be coming back to the U.S. maybe occasionally to visit his dad, who still lives in Vegas. That's pretty much it. He's made a life elsewhere, and he just didn't want to be a fugitive anymore, and he got off with this... uh, very light sentence and a light fine given all the money he probably made from it. 300k is probably nothing to him. So you might be forgetting that we have a sponsor. In past shows I played it at the beginning of the show, but I've decided that uh, today I will be playing it during the middle of the show, which is right now. But we do have a sponsor here, believe it or not. And that sponsor is an attorney. It's an attorney who handles mediation and arbitration between poker players who might be having issues with one another of where one feels the other owes money and they can't figure out uh, an agreement or settlement between each other. And... uh, this attorney who sponsors Poker Fraud Alert Radio and now listens to every show. He's not just a sponsor, he's also a listener. He is someone who's completely impartial and neutral that can help you out here. But for more information on this, listen to this very detailed ad. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on this site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money... Or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally. And he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar. And he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. 
Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Welcome back. And really do support our sponsors. I know not all of you need him, but really just keep the information around. Because he's, it's not just someone who's uh, patting my Jew wallet so I can lose a little bit less money running the site. I actually do lose money running the site. So I appreciate anyone who helps lessen that loss. And, you know, he did. Not that sponsorships cost very much here, but, you know, it, it helped for sure. But. Honestly, I when he told me about the service, I thought this is this is a great idea. So that's definitely who I would recommend if any of you need someone like that. And you never know when it'll come up. So you should save it even if you don't need him right now. So let's go on here. Trader Risky still with us? Uh oh. I think the herbal tea has kicked in. No, oh, no, no herbal no. tea yet. Really? I'm, I'm, I'm good for at least another fifteen minutes. Okay. Now I'll be up for a while. Okay. That is good. I'm starting to feel a little bit tired here, but uh, I actually, when I, when I was playing this ad, I, I went and ran to the refrigerator to get a cherry coke, and the reason I got that, I usually just drink water during this show. But I said, you know, I need a little caffeine, I think, to, to help uh, keep me awake a little bit more here. Caffeine, it's, it's good for me here in that it doesn't keep me awake if I don't want it to. But if I do want it to keep me awake, it helps. So, like, I can fall asleep after drinking caffeine, but it does make me less tired if I am tired and want to stay up. So I get the good of it, but not the bad of it. So I ran over there and grabbed some. Hopefully I will get a bit more awake. I think it's kind of like I'm looking at the agenda and there's like so much more to do. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, there's so much to talk about. And it reminds me when I was on the cross-country team or the track team. Like I was on both of them back in high school. And the hardest parts of these races, of these long-distance races, would be the middle. The end, you knew the end was coming. So then you could... Give it your all at the end, and you knew you were about to be done, no matter how tired you were. Beginning, you weren't tired because you just started, but the middle, it just felt like there's so much left to go, and yet I'm already so tired. So, it's kind of like that in the middle of the show sometimes, when I'm tired. When I'm not tired, I feel like I can go on forever, but uh, today I feel a little bit tired, and I also, my, my throat is kind of hurting a little bit from talking. So, that's what happens when you have a very, very long show with very few breaks. In fact, uh, Eric uh, Bensamokin may get lucky. I may play his ad again if I need another break. I was going to play it anyway at some point, but uh, at least I have something to play now. Like, today I was very happy that the ad is two and a half minutes, so I could uh, run out there and get the soda and get back here in time. So, always feels good when I feel I've had an, a positive impact on something in poker. 
I like to feel that the site helps people. I like to feel that uh, when people read things on this site that allow them to make proper decisions or find something they may not have found that would be helpful, I think that's uh, something that has helped many people. And often I don't ever know about it. They just lurk and read it and that's it. And I never know that they, they use the things they read here. I had someone come up to me during the World Series of Poker and thanked me for a post I made that directed him to the best video poker machines in his area. He lived somewhere in the South. I think he went to, uh, actually, I forgot which one he went to. Maybe, uh, Mississippi. So anyway, he went to certain video poker machines that I suggested in one of my posts that were highest returning. And, uh, not only did he make diamond in a day, but he also hit a Royal for 20 K. So he was very happy about that. And, came up to personally thank me for it, even though we had never met before, nor who is he a poster on my forum. He just found it by Googling. And he just uh, knew who I was, so he found me at the World Series and, and, and thanked me. So I realize that people get help that way, but it makes me feel especially good when I actively do something and make an impact. And I believe this may have happened here, though I'm not sure yet. I've complained on recent shows that there are a growing number of disturbing incidents on Bovada and Ignition where Bitcoin cash outs are just disappearing. They're just disappearing into thin air. And where they're actually going is to other people's Bitcoin addresses that are somehow intercepting it and changing it to their own Bitcoin address. And because of Bitcoin's mostly anonymous nature, these people can't really be found. And it actually appears that uh, as soon as these Bitcoin addresses are changed, that the address that's been changed to will then quickly dump the Bitcoin by selling them, usually for other cryptocurrencies or some other way where it's easier to hide who they are. They just keep selling them, selling them till it's impossible to trace down uh, who did this. So something was going on. Maybe it was malware. In these people's computers, maybe it was an insider in Ignition slash Bovada. Maybe it was a rogue payment processor just stealing. Could have been any of these things. I have to think it's most likely an insider within Bovada and Ignition who's doing this. Not with the company's blessing, but just uh, a rogue employee. But either way, it exposed the fact that there's a big hole in the way that Bovada and Ignition process Bitcoin cash-outs. Because if you do a Bitcoin cash-out on these sites, you do not even get a confirmation screen giving you the address it's going to. So you copy and paste the the long Bitcoin address that you want the funds to go to. You hit submit, and it says, thank you for your submission. Your reference number is such and such. And then you get an email that... uh, a cash out's been done. Okay, has been requested, not done. They got to review it first. But at no point are you ever given back the address you submitted, which is important to get that because then if you have that confirmation, then you can bring it back to them if you don't get the Bitcoin and go somewhere else. But without that proof, then they can claim that you just submitted the wrong address. They can blame it on you, and they can even blame it on malware on your computer That because there, there is malware out there that will look for when you copy and paste a Bitcoin address 
and then it will quickly change it to one of their addresses, and you'll never know. So whether this is Bovada and Ignition's fault, like a rogue employee, or whether it's just because some people's computers are infected with these types of malware that are hijacking Bitcoin addresses, there, there are two big vulnerabilities to the Bovada Bitcoin cash-outs. Vulnerability number one is just what I, des- what I described, where the address just changes. You submit your Bitcoin address, and somehow it changes along the way to somebody else's, and you don't get it. The second vulnerability, and this has also been happening, is that people are just requesting Bitcoin cash-outs from other people's accounts. They just somehow are accessing certain people's accounts and requesting Bitcoin addresses to their own Bitcoin address. And then by the time the person finds out, the money's already gone. And the way they really prevent them from finding out is right when they do this, they start spamming the person's email really hard. So the confirmation emails get lost in all the spam and they only find out once the Bitcoin have actually, has actually been sent and the money is taken out of their uh, Bovada or Ignition account. So this is what we talked about in the last two weeks. I contacted Bovada and I said, I want to speak to a manager here. Because I knew I need to speak to a manager in the Toronto office. That's where you have the managers who really have any kind of power. Uh, they would not give me one of those managers, but they put me out with a supervisor. Now, a supervisor is kind of useless. A supervisor is just uh, one of the more senior reps there in the Philippines. And they don't have any kind of power. But they, you know, they, they have a little more power than the first-level reps, but they're like a second-level rep that really can't do anything either. But that was as high as they would transfer me, which was annoying. But I had a long conversation with her. And at first she was trying to dismiss it. Oh, you know, if it's malware, you have to check your computer. Oh, if it's, uh, you know, it, it's not rogue employees in our company, we, we don't, you know, that's not happening here. It was just, I, I was getting a combination of denial that it's actually going on or blaming the victim that it's their fault somehow. So I just kept reasoning the following. I said, look. Even if it's not Bovada's fault at all, even if the person has malware on their computer, the problem is you can't expect everybody to be a computer genius to be able to keep this stuff off all the time. Because it's very hard to keep all this stuff off. You really have to be very diligent and, and very knowledgeable with how to avoid this to not get this stuff on your computer. Uh, for example, uh, you know, I, I, I know some people who are very, very intelligent very intelligent people who just are not computer experts and they get malware all the time. And then they call me over and I, you know, I come over and take it off for them. Now, I don't get it because I, I know how to avoid it. Every once in a while I screw up or, or, or something mysteriously gets on there, but it's, it's rare. I'm, I'm good at avoiding that. But that's because I, I'm very technical. I know a lot about computers, but a lot of people, even very intelligent people, do not have that expertise in this particular area, and they can't prevent it from happening. So it's not really fair for Bovada to say, if you have malware on your computer, tough luck, you lose. They, they have to have some security features in place so the customer can figure out if something's been hijacked. So I said, first of all, it's absolutely horrendous that you don't have a confirmation screen and confirmation email that repeats back to them the Bitcoin address that they submitted. Because if they had that, 
then if it was wrong, if they submit one address and then it, it changes to another address, then they can immediately call back and say, wait a minute, something changed here, cancel it. Instead of letting the whole thing process Because it takes like two days to process So if you notice that somehow that address changed When you get the email Then you can just call up and say Hey, cancel the cash out, something went wrong here And that's that, and then nothing will get stolen The problem here Without a confirmation email, without a confirmation screen You cannot see that this has happened You have no way to know That's problem number one Problem number two is that Since Bitcoin is basically anonymous and people can cash out to any address because it's different than other cash outs. If you call Bovada and say, yes, I'd like to cash out to my friend's bank account, they'll say, no, we're not going to send a wire to your friend's bank account. You say, okay, can you send a a, a check to my friend's name? Again, they're going to say, no, we won't do that. We'll only send it to your name. But with Bitcoin, there is no account. There is no name. There's simply an address that is not attached to any individual. So it's very easy. Once someone gets on your account and then and then submits a withdrawal request, once that Bitcoin's sent, which you won't know it's been sent until until it actually gets sent, then it's too late. So I said for number two, there needs to be a way for people to turn off Bitcoin cash outs until they're ready to turn them back on again. So that is, you should be able to turn them off and then not turn them back on until you actually call in there and then give some kind of password or security code to allow them to turn back on. And the good thing about this is they record every single phone call, so even if someone in the company, some rogue employee tries to take your info and call in and pretend to be you, they'll go back and review it and hear that it's not your voice. Because I don't believe that Bodog, or, you know, the Bovada is actually in cahoots with this. I don't believe the company itself is stealing. I think that there might be rogue employees stealing. But the problem is they don't want to help you if you cannot prove it. Because it is true, and I mentioned this to the rep I spoke to, that people could take advantage of this and just say, oh, you know, I made a $9,500 cash out and it went to a different Bitcoin address. So send me another $9,500. Well, how do they know? How do they know you're telling the truth? They don't. So they, they just default to not helping you because they're afraid people are going to roll them for double cash outs. So if you had a confirmation email that would be both in their system and on your system you could show them, then you could prove it. And if you disable Bitcoin cash outs until you're ready to make one and that they don't let you do one until you call up and give them authorization in your own voice, that would again be some proof on your end and something else they could easily implement would be some kind of two-factor authentication. Meaning something like where it sends you a code to your cell phone when you do a Bitcoin cash out. And if you do not enter that code that you received, it won't process the cash out. That would also be a great way to stop these unauthorized cash outs like this. But right now it's a very insecure system where all someone has to do is log into your account and request a Bitcoin cash out, and they can steal money out of your account that way, and there's, it's irreversible. And even if you make the Bitcoin cash out, if someone changes the Bitcoin address in process, you have no way to know, you have no way to stop it, you won't know until you just don't get the Bitcoin and it goes to somebody else. So I said, 
Bitcoin, it's a completely different animal. It's completely different than wires. It's completely different than checks. You have to put additional security protocols in place to prevent things like this from happening. You can't just blame it on the victim. You can't just say, tough luck. Oh, we can't prove it, so sorry. You have to take additional steps, like what I mentioned, to solve this issue. Or at least make it much, much more difficult on the thieves. So... As the conversation went on, I could tell that the woman I was speaking to, the supervisor I was speaking to, went from very skeptical of me to agreeing with me. And it seemed like she wasn't just jerking me off here. It seemed like that she was really agreeing with what I was saying and seemed serious that she was going to bring this to the attention of management there. I also asked her to please let management just listen to our phone call so they could hear me in my own words explain it to her rather than her just telling them what I said. I like them hearing my own words. So that's what was done. And I, was, I asked if the management could call me, and she said, oh, yeah, they'll, they'll probably call you. I can't promise. Well, I didn't get a call, so I'm like, oh, great. Nothing's going to happen. Well, yesterday I got a call, and it was someone in the Toronto office who – said that he was part of the player advocacy team, whatever that is. And he told me that they have reviewed this and they listened to the call as I requested and that they agree with me fully, that they agree that the Bitcoin cash out process is not very secure right now and that it needs improvement. And they thanked me for bringing that to their attention. He said that the player advocacy department has now uh, submitted this to to upper management to make a change in this procedure. And that he thinks it's going to happen. He said that he will call me back sometime in the near future when he has more information, when a concrete decision has been made to actually change it. But that he thinks it's going to happen and that so far everybody agrees with me. He did acknowledge that it was my phone call that set this all in motion and that uh, they hadn't really thought about it and considered it before, even though there were he didn't admit there were problems before, but I guess when people called up and complained, you know, I didn't either didn't get to upper management or they didn't really think about it that deeply. But he was, it was this phone call that I made that really made them think and really made them realize that uh, this is a problem. So it looks like this might be corrected soon. And I'll give you guys more information as is provided to me. But as I said to them, Everyone benefits from this except for the thieves if you make this change. The players are helped. Bovada is helped. The only one who, who uh, doesn't like this would be those that are stealing. So anytime the only people who are negatively affected are the criminals, you've done something good. So hopefully that will really take place and that you can feel safe to do Bitcoin withdrawals again. In the meantime... You can still do Bitcoin withdrawals, and right after you make it, I would suggest you call up customer service because they record everything, and I'd record. I'd suggest you record it yourself too, and ask them, "Can you repeat to me, or maybe you repeat it to them, what the last four digits are of the Bitcoin address that you provided, and make sure it's the same as the one you submitted. Make sure the one that they're processing." is the same one you submitted. And if they say, yes, it is, if, if it's matched, if they give you the last four and it's the same last four as what you have, 
Not only do you see it has not been changed yet, but even if someone changes it down the line, now you have this phone call on record that they told you it was this address. So then you have something very strong to go back and and force them to make it right. That's what I would suggest in the meantime. It's not perfect. Also, if you find the account that's associated with your Bovada account or Ignition account getting spammed with just like tons and tons, like thousands of messages, if that happens all of a sudden and you have a lot of money in Bovada or Ignition, get very, very concerned because that might mean that someone just accessed your account, requested a Bitcoin Cash out, and is now spamming you so you won't see the confirmation email. So if that's the case, call Ignition Bovada immediately and tell them that you want them to check for any kind of pending cash outs and if there are to cancel them. Only if you see that spam. I don't just mean like a few spam messages. I mean if you're just suddenly inundated to where you just get thousands of messages coming in at once. Well, the PPA did a survey as the Poker Players Alliance regarding the direction that they're going to go. PPA was funded 99% or more by the big online poker sites for all these years. They they're supposed to be a a lobbying organization to help make online poker legal in the US, but the problem was they were pretty much doing the bidding for the giant online poker sites like Poker Stars and Full Tilt back in the day. They Pretended to be a grassroots group that were representing the players, but you can't do that when you're getting 99% funding from corporate entities. So it's very clear who they had to answer to, even though they claimed they were independent. But it's been a while since then, and they're getting less funding from these poker sites than they were before. There's no full tilt anymore, and Poker Stars has lost their enthusiasm to some degree for the legalization in the US. They've just seen how the New Jersey site's been a failure. They just they they're not very bullish on the future of US online poker at the moment. They don't want to sink that sink as much money as they were before. So the PPA does not have the funding they once did. So the PPA did a survey, presumably to figure out what direction they should move next, probably Funding-wise, like uh, they want to see what people want and also what directions they might be able to go to get better funding. So here are some questions. I read these before, but I'll tell you the results in some of these. How do you feel about the current state of poker in the United States? And you can choose all that applies. You don't have to just pick one. You can pick uh, a few of them if you want. Poker is as popular... As it has ever been and continues to grow. Trader Risky, you still there? Trader Risky, there? I'm here. There you are. Okay. What percentage of people you think responded poker is a, responded yes to poker is as popular as it has ever been and is continuing to grow? And these are poker players? Who's... who's yes. Who's... Uh, yes. I'd say... 50%. Very close. 44% said that. Uh, only 7% said poker has reached its peak and is now on a plateau and will soon decline, which is interesting. That's what I would say. Would you say that? 
that hit its peak and it's gonna like it's kind of like hanging if it's gonna decline soon. Yeah, I'd say that. Actually, I'm sorry. There's uh, there's that, but then this other one too that they got a lot more response. Poker's popularity has been on decline in the U.S. since Black Friday shut down the leading online poker sites. That's what I'd really say. So that that one got 44 percent too, and then other was 11 percent. I don't know why other. And this this adds up to more than 100 because you can select more than one. But it it only added up to like 108. So most people picked only one of these. So I, I think people are too optimistic uh, to say po- it's as popular as it's ever been and it continues to grow. That's just not true in the U.S. And for them to say that with the exact same frequency as those who said it's been declining since Black Friday, some, some people are not watching very closely. Now, the next question was, why do you believe more states have not licensed and regulated online poker? So... And these are, again, separate questions, so you, they don't add up to 100%. But elected officials have misconceptions about online poker. 71% said that's the case. Elected officials don't feel the issue is important, 57%. I feel it should be a lot higher than that. It should be like 90% of that. That's really the biggest issue. Elected, elected officials don't care about online poker. The gambling industry is not working together and funding the fight. 43% said yes. Not enough money is going towards lobbying. Ah, we see where they're going here. 22% said yes to that one. Uh, poker players are not organized enough, 20%. Uh, the arguments and approach for legalizing online poker are wrong, 13%. It should be a lot more than that because the PPA has been doing this forever. They, they tried so hard to legalize online poker by claiming that poker is not gambling, which is a stupid argument. Uh, there is not enough money generated through online poker, 8%. Well, that's that's actually true, too. If these sites in New Jersey and Nevada did better with their online poker offerings, then yes, other states would have grabbed it by now. Uh, and then also, uh, poker players do not care about the issue. 7% said that. Next, uh, what are your expectations of the PPA? Alert poker players when their voice is needed to address relevant uh, legislation, 74%. Uh, Coordinate uh, lobbying at the state and federal level, 68%. Provide legal support and resources to poker players, 32%. I I don't agree with that. They shouldn't be providing legal support. Uh, Ensure a fair and honest game for online and live poker players, 57%. It's so interesting because – so I was saying this for years. They they had a giant email list of of poker players, and here they could have spoken up during the AP and UB scandals and the Full Tilt scandal and stuff like that. They could have spoken up and and stopped – these sites from getting the business they were. Same with Lock Poker. They could have done that too. About about Lock Poker scam. And they didn't. They stayed silent. And I was really frustrated by this. I said, you know, just I know this isn't your main goal, but at least represent the community a little bit. At least at least care about the community a little bit and, and if there's a site that's definitely acting wrong, if there's a site that's definitely out there stealing from us, let everyone know. So like average poker players who don't follow 2 plus 2 or, or sites like Poker Fraud Alert that they can find out with your giant mailing list. And for years I was told, no, that's ridiculous. We can't do that. That's not what people really want. Well, yeah, look, we got 57% uh, click that. And again, that doesn't mean 57% yes, 43% no. That means 57% of the respondents actually found that was significant enough to click like, yes, this is one of our expectations. In fact, almost as much as the lobbying thing, 68%. So almost as many people wanted them to do that as, uh, as to lobby, 
which is their real purpose. Uh, represent the voice of poker players in the media and government hearing, 68%. Advocate for licensed and regulated online poker in the U.S., uh, 74%. Advocate for legalizing live poker in the United States were not available, 61%. Uh, spread awareness about the PPA among general public and poker players, 51%. Uh, be funded by poker players, 26%. And be funded by industry, 36%. So I don't know how this two only add up to 62% because where do people think the funding is going to come from? So those were the answers there. So they also asked later, should the PPA expand their mission to include supporting online gambling and daily fantasy sports and sports betting legislation? So basically, they're asking: Should we should we continue focusing on making poker legal online, or making all gambling legal online, including daily fantasy sports, including sports betting, including things like online slot machines? So the reason they want that is because they realize there's not much money in, in pushing for poker anymore. So they want to try to get that sweet money from these online casinos and especially from the daily fantasy sports industry. The daily fantasy sports industry has very deep pockets at the moment. So only 58% said they wanted that. Only 58% said yes. 42% said no. So only a little bit more than half of the people who responded here want to see the PPA expanding to fighting for other forms of gambling to be legalized. But that's probably the main takeaway from all this. They really, really do want to expand to that to then get more funding. And I think they're seeing the Daily Fantasy Sports. They're having their legal battles, and they'd love to get some of that lobbying money from them. So the PPA will probably soon be the PPDFSA. Okay, so... We'll talk quickly about the Atlantic Club Casino in Atlantic City because I think it's an interesting story. Uh, Trader Risky, have you ever been to either the Atlantic Club Casino or the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City? Obviously, I'm not talking about the Golden Nugget in, in Vegas. I know you've been there. Or the Bally's Grand Hotel and Casino, not to be confused with the current Bally's in, uh, in Atlantic City. Have you been to any of those? Have not been to any of those. I have only been years ago to whatever, the Taj Mahal or whatever it's called. Well, it, it kind of makes sense because the Atlantic Club in its various incarnations, it had its peak in 1983. And that was before either of us were old enough to gamble. And here's the, here's the history of the Atlantic Club. First of all, New Jersey legalized casino gambling for Atlantic City in 1976. In 1980, they built the Atlantic Club, but it was known as the Golden Nugget, and it was owned by none other than Steve Wynn. So in a way, this was the win of Atlantic City in 1980. So three years later, it was the top-earning casino in Atlantic City, the Golden Nugget. In 1987, 
Bally Manufacturing, which uh, made video games also. Uh, they they were also entering the casino business, hence the name Bally's for some casinos now. They bought the Golden Nugget in 87 from Steve Wynn, and they decided to change the name to Bally's Grand Hotel and Casino. They did something similar in Vegas when they bought the old MGM Grand, which currently is called Bally's. That's the same Bally's as you know today in Vegas. That that was the MGM Grand property in Vegas that had that fire in 1980. And later in the 80s, it was bought and changed to Bally's. So around the similar time frame. But back to this one. Bally's remained until 1998. But what happened was that Bally Entertainment was actually bought by Hilton. So they decided they didn't want to be called Bally's anymore. That even though the property wasn't sold, it was just the, the, the parent company was bought. They changed it to be called the Atlantic City Hilton. Then in 2005, seven years after that, a company called Colony Capital bought the Atlantic Club, or what was called the Atlantic City Hilton at the time. They also bought Resorts Atlantic City. But in a deal with the Hilton Corporation, they actually still kept it as the Atlantic City Hilton. So still the Hilton, but it wasn't really owned by Hilton. But that licensing deal ended in the middle of 2011. So similar to what happened with the Las Vegas Hilton that became the LVH, which is now called the Westgate. They did the same thing over in Atlantic City. They changed the name to ACH. So it went from Atlantic City Hilton to just ACH. And then they said, yeah, forget ACH. That's kind of a weird name. Kind of sounds like a bank transaction. They changed it to the Atlantic Club. And that was the last name it was known as. That was changed in 2012, and then in 2014, it closed. Early 2014, it it shut down. In its final two years, they tried to make it a locals casino. They tried to market it to locals and not to tourists, but they could not save it. The whole place was run down. Nobody liked it. It was was, uh, really seen as as a has-been. So... Outsiders, people who came to Atlantic City from elsewhere, they didn't even think of the Atlantic Club. They would think of things like Borgata, uh, even the Taj Mahal before it closed, of course Caesars. That's where people would go. No one thought, okay, I I want to go down to the Atlantic Club. Locals knew it, but it wasn't enough. So Trader Ruski, uh, I want to ask you this next question. It was again sold. It was sold. Well, actually, before I get to that, I'm gonna, I, before I ask you this, I'm going to tell you one more thing. There was a licensing deal that Poker Stars attempted to make with the Atlantic Club. They wanted, to, they needed to have some kind of uh, brick and mortar presence there when they wanted to open a room in New Jersey. So, Poker Stars actually coughed up. They, they actually made a deal for fifteen million dollars to get their license through the Atlantic Club. So what what they were going to do is they were going to acquire the property 
for uh, fifteen million. But that uh, four of the four million of the fifteen million would be used to to upgrade uh, to make upgrades there. Well, somehow I don't know how they got away with this, but the, the owner Colony Capital backed out of the whole thing with Poker Stars, but somehow we're able to keep the eleven million that was already paid. Isn't that weird? I don't know how they got away with this, but Poker Stars coughed up eleven of the fifteen million to buy the property and got nothing. There's some sort of legal loophole. I don't know how. So kind of shady company, this Colony Capital. Then they they announced in uh, in December 2013 that it would close, and they were going to sell it to Caesars. So Caesars currently owns it, but it was actually uh, actually they, they were uh, it was going to be a joint sale. Now just Caesars and Tropicana were going to be owning it. So how much total between these two companies was kicked in to buy this property, do you think? Huh. Um, I have no idea. $20 You're very close. $23.4 million to where Tropicana paid uh, $8.4 million. And what they got for that was just the gambling tables and slot machines. And then Caesars got the actual property for thirteen and a half million, so that added up to twenty three point four. So yeah, it's not very much money twenty three million for a casino, but the thing was losing so much money, and it was it was in disrepair, and it was thought that it, to, to even be a viable property again, it had to just be wrecked and, and rebuilt. That uh, really what was being bought there was the land and the license, and then the equipment inside. So. That was done, but then nothing's happened since, and it's been sitting closed, which is really quite a far way to fall from, if you think back in 1983, it was the biggest earning property in Atlantic City. If you went to Atlantic City in 1983, uh, the happening place to be was the Golden Nugget, which was the same property. But the reason I'm telling you guys about this now, almost four years after this took place, is that... It looks like there may actually be a new buyer and that it may reopen, strangely enough. But there actually is a purchase agreement that's uh, tentatively in place. And if that takes place, then there may actually be, this may actually be rebuilt. So the press of Atlantic City is reporting that it may be soon be sold. Here's what they're saying. It says, Atlantic Club deal in the works. The owners of the closed Atlantic Club casinos uh, hotel said that they are close to reaching a deal with a buyer. That's obnoxious. As a hygienist, Jeez. Each Stop. Day as a chance okay, to I can't make a difference. One more when time. I- it, it opened two ads. I apologize, guys. That was loud. That pisses me off when that happens. I, I figured the press of Atlantic City would not have obnoxious like autoplay ads, but I, I shouldn't expect this of anyone. The first one was really loud, too. That woke me up. Okay, so the... Is Dale Schooley, the director of acquisition from... Uh, Florida-based TJM Property said they have a contract with a group and are waiting for the hard money for the deal, which is expected to come later this week. 
but he won't name the company. This is various groups have been interested in the property over the last couple of months. Uh, apparently, they were bought. I didn't even know about this. They, it was bought from Caesars by this TJM back in May of 2014. So I, I thought Caesars still owned it, but I guess they don't. But nothing has been going on there. It's been totally dead. It's been closed. Nothing's happened in almost four years. There's been a few attempts to sell it, but uh, they've all failed. But supposedly, there are two two different developers interested in it, and one of these is about to go through. Claim later in the week they will get, quote, hard money for the deal. It is unclear whether they will reopen it as is, if they will bulldoze it and rebuild it as another casino, or if they will do something else entirely with the property. But for those of you that may want to go back to the Atlantic Club or try a new casino in Atlantic City, this may actually come back, which is surprising because Atlantic City is, is shrinking every year, their market. I don't think they need new casinos. They need fewer casinos. I was just there in uh, in April. Not at the Atlantic Club, obviously, but in Atlantic City. And I wasn't impressed. I was not impressed. It, uh, it, it really does have a vibe of decline. It, it has... You walk into a lot of these properties and the carpet's all beat up and the elevators have graffiti in them. There's, like a, there's a lot of, of a rundown look to it. I know the Borgata is nice, but that's really like everything else is pretty flawed over there. Caesars is decent. The Borgata is nice. Everything else is pretty much crap. So just in general, Atlantic City is, is becoming a has-been because there's so many other options to gamble on the East Coast. And I've talked about this before. There used to only be two options in the U.S. to gamble. It's Vegas and Atlantic City. So if you live in the East, you go to Atlantic City. If you live in the West, you go to Vegas. But it's not like that anymore. So many different options. And in some of these areas that have other options, you don't have to go to a place like Atlantic City that has a crime problem and is kind of seedy and may be out of the way for you. So... A lot of reasons not to go there. And it doesn't... It, it really is like a small Vegas. And a lot of the appeal of Vegas that draws people in who don't even gamble doesn't really exist in Atlantic City. That's the way I described it to Benjamin as we were pulling up in, into the city. You could see the casinos in the, dif- in the distance. I said, look, Ben, out there, look, it's uh, that's Atlantic City. It looks like... And he says, oh, that looks like Las Vegas. It's, yeah, it looks like a small Las Vegas, right? He said, yeah, it looks like a small Las Vegas. So, yeah, that's what it is. It looks kind of like a small Las Vegas. But it's really missing a lot of the allure that brings people from all over the world to Vegas. Well, speaking of Caesars, this is uh, a first in a series an exclusive from Poker Fraud Alert, a look into what's referred to as the evil empire, Caesars Entertainment. Now, it is important for those listening to understand that what I'm going to read here are not reports of my own. These were posted on the Poker Fraud Alert forum from an individual who claims to work for Caesars. 
Actually, I think I think he may have uh, quit his job there, but he did work for Caesars. And he started a thread called "Inside the Evil Empire." If you want to read it, you can go to the casinos in Las Vegas section of PokerFraudAlert.com's forum. So this is what he wrote. And again, I have no way to verify any of this, but this guy seems pretty reliable from other posts he's made on the forum. So I think I believe him. So he's telling different stories. He says that you know he's not really preparing this. He's just uh, thinking about stuff that happened while he was at Caesars and is just typing it out. So... He said, regarding the story this summer about the Rio being infected with Legionnaire's disease, that was an extremely LOL moment for me, given what I know about the inner workings of the evil empire, especially during budgeting season. Here's how it would go on the East Coast. This is where he, he worked on the East Coast, not in Vegas. You look at last year's revenue numbers, show no growth in those numbers, but somehow show growth overall. So, so, so how do you show growth at the bottom line is you're, you're, when you're projecting top line no growth, you hack away at expenses. The evil empire is great at hacking away at expenses to, quote, drive growth in the bottom line. That's why if you've been a customer there, you, you, your experience probably sucks shit. So what he's trying to say here is that uh, if they're not making if, – if they're not growing, if their uh, business is not growing in revenue, the way they – simulate that they're still growing is by just cutting expenses even in, in in essential areas so they can indicate that they're growing as far as what their profit is every year. They made more money this year than last year, so therefore they're growing. And he's saying that's artificial because uh, all they're doing is cutting money where they shouldn't be, cutting expenses where, the, which, where it's, it should still they should still be spending money. So he says, so where I worked, one of the preferred methods to do that was hacking out maintenance, which is just fucking so laughable. Where I worked, properties are fucking old, like built in the 70s and 80s kind of old. I'm too lazy and don't give shits enough to look up if some of the properties were older, but it's entirely possible. Those of you who, who own houses and cars or anything, or anything mechanical know that the older mechanical stuff gets, the more it needs investment to keep it working right, or the problem just gets bigger and more expensive when shit finally goes wrong. Luckily for the evil empire, as we hacked away at maintenance, a huge issue never popped up in our region. But we were hacking away mid-six figures to low seven figures away from that area, which, the, which given the amount it would cost to remedy any problem is fucking laughable. If something falls apart in a 30, 40, 50-year-old building, it's going to cost an absolute ass load to fix. Many, many times the 500K to 1 million you're saving by hacking away at the maintenance department. So when I heard of the Legionnaires thing at the Rio, it doesn't surprise me in the least. I'm sure they were hacking away at their maintenance budget too, causing a massive headline-grabbing problem that probably cost them way more in fixes and lost business than they saved in maintenance salaries. Smart management. He's saying that sarcastically, of course. So I think that's pretty accurate because I've had experiences at the Rio where it takes forever to get a maintenance man, and when the maintenance man finally comes... All I have to do is make some kind of quick comment like, you know, it always seems like a long wait for maintenance here, but I know it's not your fault. I, yeah, I think they just probably don't staff enough here. All I have to say, do is say something like that, and the guys just go off. They go, oh, man, you don't even know. You know there's only two of us working the entire Rio during the World Series? You know that? Like they, they start just going off about how overworked they are, how they've cut down the maintenance people, how there used to be this many, that now there's only two, or whatever the number was, so... 
I've had several maintenance men complain to me, just, just <laughs> vent to me, the customer, about how much the maintenance budget has been cut there. So I, I, I thought that was interesting. It, uh, number two, the employees. This is about uh, cutting employees from there, including ones that are important. Uh, in my role, I had access to payroll data, so I knew what every position in my region made. Not surprisingly, the evil empire doesn't pay their employees very well. A typical housekeeper made between 27 to 32 k per year. Unsurprisingly, where I worked, the poverty rate was damn near 40%. So when you add in all the taxes, uh, uh, union dues, etc., I would guess the average housekeeper probably cost the company 40 to 50 k, uh, including benefits. So as I mentioned in the story, number one, the evil empire was always looking to grow the bottom line by cutting expenses in housekeeping, like maintenance was were the areas to cut. Again, I, I uh, reveled at the abject stupidity of this. So you're saying you're going to cut 20 housekeepers this year to save $1 million in expenses. Are we going to do that in year two to save another million and again in three to save another million and so on? Are we planning on having one housekeeper per floor by the time the cutting's over? We're supposed to make tens of millions in the bottom line, guys. Cutting a 40K housekeeper isn't the way to profitability. How about we try to grow the, the top line? Just, just typing the last question makes me laugh. No thought was given how this would affect the guest experience. Cut all costs. So he's saying here that the problem is here, even if they think they can cut some maids and save a million dollars, for example, they can't continue doing this. So this might create some kind of false growth the first year you do it, but you can't just keep cutting more and more maids each year. There'll be none left. So he's saying that this is a stupid solution. Even if even if they think they're saving money and if they think they can get away with fewer maids, that it, that they can't really incorporate this into a long-term plan because they can't just keep cutting more maids each year. He also says, um, there is an employee cafeteria where the employees could eat for free. I stopped eating there in my last year because the food had become such shit by that point. Uh, surprise, surprise, another area where expenses were cut that I'd rather strap on, the, strap on the Kevlar vest and go pay for food. I was fortunate enough to have the means to do that. The regular employees did not. Uh, you, you would have to go to the cafeteria and, and see your housekeepers and porters and other very low-paid people with their plates piled high with food. Then you realize that this is the only meal these people are eating all day. They're struggling to survive. You see that shit enough coupled with the absolute depressing nature of working there where I worked it wears on you. You feel really, really sorry for these workers, especially when you know that they're viewed by management as a dis- dispensable cog in their dog shit operation. There's just no joy at all. Not saying you should be having a dance party at work, but there should be some sense of satisfaction you get for going to work. Where I work, there was none of that, at least not for me. I'm the most capitalistic person out there, but even seeing that, that, this shit got to me. So what what he's saying here is that the employee room, they do have a, a place for uh, they, uh, the cafeteria where they can eat for free where he was working. But he was saying that they made they degraded the food to s- something so lousy, such poor quality. And uh, he feels like that these workers are already so poor that this is just demoralizing them further. And that they're just that it was just tough to watch these people that this is what they're going to eat all day. And they'd pile their plate as high as they can of this terrible food. Now, one could argue back, in fairness, that they don't have to provide any food. But there, there's also the argument to be made that if 
if the food can't meet some minimum standard of quality, I don't mean it has to be gourmet or high quality, but if it can't be some minimum quality, maybe it's better not to give it at all. Mumbles badly added to that story, saying, I remember when Caesars Atlantic City changed the employee break room meal to hot dogs and beans back in 2010. <laughs> that became the, the break room meal in, in the Caesars Atlantic City if you're an employee. Hot dogs and beans, according to Mumbles badly. Number three. I'll preface this story by saying I, ha- I have a degree where I have letters after my last name. Uh, I, I, th- I say this not to impress anybody up here, but to say that when some MBA comes up and starts blowing financial smoke up my ass, I'll usually be able to figure out what's up. Uh, maybe he means he's a CPA. I don't know what, he th- what this guy is. But he has some kind of letters after his last name like that. Uh, might not be immediately, but if I have a little while to chew on shit, I'll be able to dig out the bullshit. If worse comes to worse, I'm connected enough sharp guys where I sh- I'm, con- I'm connected to enough sharp guys where I can shoot out an email or fire off a call and, and say, "Hey, I'm seeing this. Am I out of line in my conclusions? I'm fully confident the answer I get will be balls on." So one day, all the management, including your floor managers, housekeeping managers, restaurant managers, you get the idea, were called into a ballroom for a presentation by the GMs, the general managers of the area. The presentation was about how the evil empire from that point forward was going to be at about 25 to 30 different entities. Now, he's referring to the bankruptcy thing, where they split it into a bunch of parts. A quick tangent. I believe the operations of most companies should be able to be figured out by most people, like Walmart. They sell a wide variety of goods while keeping costs down. McDonald's sells food and beverage items. The evil empire sells casino gambling, food and beverage entertainment, lodging, and some retail items to make money. That's it. You guys reading this should be able to understand how the evil empire makes money. With this new corporate structure, shit was so convoluted that you'd actually have to sit down and map out what the fuck was going on to figure out what was feeding into where, etc. Back to the presentation. So the general managers were... Uh, we're saying the company is going to be split this way. Um, bad parent. This would house the $15 billion or whatever it was dead along with a few properties. Entity number one would have X number of properties. Entity number two would have Y number of properties. Entity number three would have Z number of properties. These three entities would pay a management fee to the bad parent. The bad parent meaning the company is going to commit the, the, the part of Caesars that would, would uh, declare bankruptcy uh, to manage the operations. The, the, the GMs are telling everybody this will help the company out of its financial troubles so the bankruptcy can be pushed off. The crowd is nodding and smiling in approval, thinking that the company they work for is figuring their shit out. I'm sitting there. I was like, what the fuck? I'm asking myself, how could, how could the bad parents survive this indebtedness if they can't make it work when they had 100% of the cash flow from operations flowing into it? Now the bear, bad parent is going to have 100% minus uh, whatever percent of the cash flow, so the, the debt's going to all of a sudden be under control with less cash flow? Are you out of your fucking minds? Again, I felt sorry for the people I was in the room with. These people don't have finance degrees. They, they, they know their world of table games, slot ops, uh, housekeeping, etc., and now they have some MBAs telling them that things are on the way to being fixed. I felt sick of them being lied to, got on the horn to someone I know and said, here's the deal. I think it's fucking dog shit, but just wanted to make sure I'm not missing anything. The guy said, yeah, you're fucked. And this dude is probably one of the smartest guys I've ever come across with this, with this confirmation uh, I knew at the time that the, my time at the evil empire was not long. Now, now, by the way, I want to stop here and make my own comment. They are out of the bankruptcy. They, they did warm out of this. <laughs> so maybe, maybe the idea wasn't that dumb in the first place. So I, I, I think they got lucky. It wasn't going well for a while. But getting back to this, 
So the sick thing about this whole financial engineering bullshit they tried to pull is it's a fucking scam. The creditors lent billions to, to make this uh, leverage buyout possible, and they were expecting to get their interest payments in principle, the amount they lent, uh, back at the, term, at the end of the term of the loan they put up. This reorganization was basically trying to fuck the creditors big time. I believe the thinking was we're going to go back. We're going to bankrupt the parent, but we'll have the three or four entities that have the great properties in them that will be solvent. The creditors can't touch those because they'll have the good properties in them. Uh, they'll only be able to lay, lay claim to the assets in the bad parent. This is such a fucking scummy ass business. Maybe want to puke. Uh, it was laughable to me that they thought that they were going to get away with this shit. Creditors are rich guys too, and you know what rich guys hate above all else? Someone fucking with their money. I didn't follow how the reorganization went, but I think the evil empire is out of bankruptcy, and I think as part of this is that the, the guys will still have some equity stake intact. It's a fucking joke. These morons leveraged up the company at the height of the gambling revenues in AC, only to see revenues decline for a decade straight. They deserve to get punished for making a shitty investment, but at last they got saved. It's a shame. Yeah, Handicap Me came on here at one point. He knew a lot about this, and he said that uh, it's not as simple as it might sound, because they creditors are actually sometimes second lead holders they they a lot of times bought this debt on uh i I believe that they bought this not at full value expecting to make money for it basically they gambled knowing that caesars was in trouble so when they got screwed it was kind of semi-expected this might happen when they bought it so it's hard to feel sorry for them I, i believe that's what handicapping was telling us when he called in so Anyway, those are, those are the three stories. He claims he's going to post uh, 17 more of these. He, has, he claims he has 20 stories to post. So we will see. I will go through them and uh, maybe read some more on the show as they get posted. I want to talk a bit about loot boxes. A, a loot box is something in video gaming. And the only reason I'm bringing this up is because it has a gambling element to it. And because I'm done with all the poker talk so far. There's really no more poker talk or mainline gambling talk. So now we're going to get into the kind of fringe topics. So if you're here just for poker or gambling stuff, that's over. Aside from this, which is like a little bit gambling. And I do this on purpose. I, I save the topics which are kind of off the main subjects of this show for the end, so you can turn it off if this stuff doesn't interest you. But if you're one of the people who uses this show to fall asleep, or to take long drives and have company, or to just have some noise in the background while you hike, or while you exercise, or while you grind poker, then you probably want to listen. So, I learned something new about this. I'm not a... uh, modern video gamer. I, I, I play like old classic games for fun once in a while, but uh, I'm not someone who sits there with an Xbox playing or anything like that. So I haven't really followed all the video gaming news in many, many years. But th- this story got my interest a little bit. There is an organization called the Entertainment Software Rating Board. That it's a nonprofit organization and they assign ratings to video games. And you probably see this on commercials for video games where they say, rated E for everyone. Well, that, that was actually assigned by this ESRB, 
it's not assigned by the game maker. It's kind of like the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association, is what gives a rating to a movie. So when they say a movie's rated R, the producers of the movie didn't rate it R. It was rated R by the MPAA. So in this case, the ESRB rates video games as either EC, meaning a game that's specifically made for young children, E for everyone, meaning that it's uh, anyone can play it and there's no, no problem, E10+, plus, meaning it's recommended for everyone 10 and older, T means at least be a teenager, M means mature, that means a 17+, plus. and then there's A for adults only. So the reason they'd rate these ones as like M or A would be because of violence or, or, or sex or anything else that they feel that people under 17 or under 18 shouldn't be seeing. If you remember in the U.S., the Motion Picture Association, the age that is considered kind of legal is 17, not 18. So if you're 17 then you can see any movie, no matter what it's rated. If you're under 17, you're supposed to have a parent or guardian with you if you're uh, watching an R-rated movie. And if you're going to an NC-17 movie, you you can't get in at all if you're under 17. I've never understood why it's 17 instead of 18, but that's just the way it's been. So here they have both 17 and 18, which is kind of funny because, like, how much difference really is there between a 17-year-old and 18-year-old? Like, just about none. So, why would there be like two separate ratings for M and A? But okay, fine. Back to the story. So, these ratings can be important because parents are, are often the ones who either buy these games for their kids or make the decisions of what their kid is allowed to buy. So, for example, if you're a parent and your kid either says they want a game that's rated adults only or comes home with a game that's rated adults only, you may say, no, you're not going to play this. You're not, you're not old enough to play this yet. Some parents will, some parents won't, but it definitely will hurt sales if a game that you think will appeal to teenagers is then slapped with an A or an M rating. So they want to avoid that. So some controversy has popped up recently involving things called loot boxes that come with certain games where basically it's it's a random award of some sort of mystery item that you can use in the game. It depends on which game it is, but you, you get something that either helps you in the game or, or something that looks cool or something like that. So... You can buy these loot boxes separately from the games. You buy the game, and you can also buy loot boxes to where you don't know what you're getting. You can get something really cool, or you can get something that's kind of crappy. Now, you'll get something every time. But it, there's a wide variance in, in the value of what you're getting, and you're paying the same thing every time. So, whatever you pay for these loot boxes, you know, $10, $20, whatever they cost... Sometimes you'll, you know, provided you you are really into the game and want these little extras, which can often really help you play. Sometimes you'll get something great and go, "Wow, that was a great 
use of my money. Other times you get some total piece of crap in there and you'll feel like you just wasted your money. And there's no way to know until you've already paid and there's no getting refunds. So you, you really are just gambling. Except it's not quite gambling because you're not really winning anything of value. It may be of personal value to you, but you can't go turn it around and sell it. You can't trade it in for money. So it's not gambling in that sense, but you are buying something that uh, you don't know what the item is until you open it. So some parents objected to this and said this is actually gambling. And we want games with these loot boxes to be rated A because it involves gambling. They're saying we don't want our, our, our kids under 18 learning to gamble by playing these games. And this is, this is like an introduction to gambling, some parents said. So they were hassling the ESRB to automatically slap an A rating on any game that had a loot box. And there were some arguments why these really are gambling and why these really feel like gambling. First of all, you're either spending real money or you're spending some kind of points or or currency that you've accumulated inside the game that you worked hard to get on these boxes. So you're you're really giving up something of value to you, either some points that you put a lot well, you know, a lot of time earning, or real cash. So you, so you're you're giving something of value to acquire these boxes, and then what you get anywhere from something that's a piece of crap all the way up to something very valuable for the game depends upon just a random number generator. And there's the argument that this is similar to gambling where if you lose at first, you have the temptation to buy another one so you can, quote, break even. So let's say you you, you buy a $10 loot box. I don't know how much they are. I'm just making this up. Let's say you buy a $10 loot box and you get something that you think is worth about 50 cents, something that's so lousy you go, you know, I'd pay at most 50 cents for this thing. But that's what you got. You may have the desire to buy another $10 loot box so you can, quote, break even. Because if the next loot box you get gives you a cool item that you would value at $20, all of a sudden, now it's the whole thing was worth it. Because combined, the two were worth about $20. Whereas if you buy one loot box and get something great right off the bat, you may, not, you may feel satisfied you don't have to buy anymore. You already got great value for your money. So some people felt that if you did not get something very good, there was a t- more temptation to buy a second one. And that's very similar to gambling, where if you start off losing, you have more to, of a temptation to keep playing to get even. So there's a lot of pressure on the ESRB to label all these games that have loot boxes for sale. Boy, oh. All the family just came on. <laughs> I do play the end song from All in the Family, but that's that's the opening song. I just it just I clicked the wrong thing. It came on. Apologize for that. This is what happens when you don't have an edited show and you have a live show. It's just live. What you're hearing here is really what broadcasted live. So 
That's why you have little bloopers like that. Anyway, the ESRB ended up ruling that these loot boxes are not gambling. An ESRB spokesperson told Kotaku, which is a gaming website, the following. The ESRB does not consider loot boxes to be gambling. While there's an element of chance in these in these mechanics, the player is always guaranteed to receive in-game content, even if the player unfortunately receives something they don't want. We think of it as a similar principle to collectible card games. Sometimes you open a pack and get a brand new holographic card you've had your eye on for a while. Other times you'll end up with a pack of cards you already have. So they, they're, they're kind of comparing it to baseball cards or, or other things like that where you... Some cards were considered subjectively a lot more valuable than others. But that doesn't make it gambling. Which, which is a good point, but... At the same time, I see what they mean. I'm kind of on the fence on this one, whether this should be considered gambling. I, I understand why it shouldn't be illegal, but I, I do kind of understand why some want this labeled adults because it really does give the same feelings that one would get from gambling. In fact, there's studies that the reason people like gambling so much is because when there's an element of chance to win something, when there's the element of danger that you will lose and then you end up winning, that your brain releases dopamine and you feel good. You get this good feeling that you could have lost but you won. And that it's actually more satisfying to people to have won in the face of possibly losing than, and, than to just win something outright you were going to probably get anyway. So it feels better to people, for example, to win $20 gambling than if just someone is nice and gives you $20. So that, that's, that's part of the reason gambling has such excitement is that you, you don't even know, you, know, you don't know the mechanism your body does. You just, you just know how you feel, but there is something natural in your body that feels good from winning when there is a possibility you could lose. And uh, that's... uh, Dopamine is also associated with other behaviors that people will gravitate to, such as uh, drugs, such as sex. It's all along the same lines. So uh, there's concern that this uh, the same mechanism takes place with these loot boxes, and I can understand that. I can see the connection. Should you label a game adults only just because of the loot boxes? I don't know. But I can see how that really does already prepare someone to enjoy gambling later in life. And some parents don't want that for their kids. For those of you wondering, uh, dopamine is it's like a chemical signal that uh, goes from one neuron in your brain to the next. 
So when that gets released from you winning something and gambling, that uh, makes you feel good. Alrighty, so we're we're done now completely with any kind of gambling related topic, and I will talk about. Well, we have a, this is surprising. I just looked at the ratings. I just had a feeling at at one thirty a.m. Pacific time that our ratings were going to be terrible because it's on a Friday night, which is not our usual night. We started after nine Pacific time, which is late. Now it's after one thirty, and usually at this time we've lost a lot of our listeners, just because people go to bed. But no, tonight we've kept most of the listeners. Most of the people who listen tonight are still here. I also thought because I was mostly talking myself that people are going to just go get bored and leave. So I'm, I'm glad I'm interesting enough tonight to keep most of you here. Maybe because it's Friday night and. A lot of the listeners don't have to wake up for work on Saturday. Maybe that's what it is. Anyway. I want to talk about the Harvey Weinstein thing. It's become a big story in the news. and There's a lot of talk about it. and I'm sure everybody has their own opinion here. But the most interesting part to me of the Harvey Weinstein saga, and for the few of you that don't know, Harvey Weinstein was uh, one of the co-founders of Miramax Entertainment. He was someone very powerful in Hollywood. If you wanted to get roles in movies, uh, he could facilitate that. He was he had a very uh, big say in such matters, either for or against you. So you didn't want to piss him off if you wanted to work in Hollywood. And if you were on his good side, then good things probably came your way. Now, there have been many people like Harvey Weinstein over time in Hollywood. So, he's not unique in that way. Where he also isn't that unique is that he seemed to employ what was known as the casting couch. And that's a delicate way of saying sex for parts in movies whether it be some perverted director or producer and some young wannabe starlet would come into their office and say, I'd really like a part in the movie, one of your movies. And they say, well, okay, let me see your body. I want to see how good your body will look on screen. So take off your clothes. So the girl will take off her clothes and then the guy comes closer to her and then he starts uh, touching her and, and feeling parts of her and then, he starts doing more and she gets the idea that what he's looking for is to have sex with her. And they call it the casting couch because, you know, they're lying down on the couch and having sex. And as the other end of the deal here, the girl gets cast into some good role in the film when she probably would not have gotten a role at all had she not done this. And this, again, goes back many, many years in Hollywood before most of us were born. So again, that's not unique to Harvey Weinstein, though he definitely did it. 
But where this takes a different turn and where it becomes more complicated involves the way he was behaving, not just with unknown girls who came to his room specifically knowing that this is what they would have to do to get an unfair edge. Because in in the scenario I just described, it really is a mutual situation of one person using the other. I'm not defending it. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying at least there isn't a victim there. Both people go in knowing that they're giving up something to get something they want. But that is not really what's being alleged here. What's being alleged is that Harvey Weinstein would do this also, and I think actually more commonly, to women who were already known somewhat, already had a career going to some degree, that were not unknowns, that didn't need to be plucked out of obscurity, that they already had a career going that was successful, but that they were afraid to turn him down or to at least tell him what they thought of him because they were afraid that he would ruin their careers, that he would derail what they had already accomplished. And that's a big difference. It's a big difference between, okay, I'm not attracted to this guy. I don't like this guy, but I'm going to have sex with him because if I do, then it'll really boost my career. So I'm willing to do it. There's a difference between that and my career is already going well. Oh no, this guy wants to have sex with me. I guess I have to do it because otherwise he's going to ruin everything that I've built. That's a different story. That's a very, very different story. And the latter is what it appears that Harvey Weinstein has done. Weinstein, not Weinstein. So, the, there's a lot of complicated and disturbing elements to this whole thing. I'm going to play something to you guys so you can uh, you can get an idea of what he was doing. This this really can speak better than anything that I could describe it. This is when uh, he was meeting with a model named uh, Ambra. What was it? Ambra Barciliana Gutierrez. He met with her in uh, in 2015. So it's, it's actually pretty recent. And she was wearing a wire that was put on her by the NYPD because apparently he groped her, he touched her breasts, uh, he, he did other things. He was, he, he at the very least committed sexual assault against her. Not necessarily rape, but at least sexual assault against her. And she went to the NYPD and complained and they said, well, look, this is your word against his. We, we can't take any action. So someone came up with the idea for her to go back to him, meet up with him, wear a wire, and then attempt to get him to admit to this. So while she was attempting this, I think this is in a hallway of a hotel where he always did this, uh, he tried to get her to go into his room again. And she was, of course, not only not wanting to do that, but she was trying to just get him to admit what happened last time, which he pretty much did. So listen to this recording. It's... uh, pretty disturbing. 
I'm telling you right now. What do we have to do here? Nothing. I'm going to take a shower. You sit there and have a drink. Water. Don't drink. Can I stay on the bar? No. You must come here now. No. Please. No, I don't want to. I'm not doing anything with you. I'm very embarrassing. I'm sorry. I don't know. No, yesterday was a kind of aggressive for me. I know. So she said, yesterday was kind of aggressive for me. And he said, I know. I need to know a person to I be won't touched. do a thing. I don't do a thing, please. I swear I won't. Just sit with me. Don't embarrass me in the hotel. I'm here all the time. I sit know, with me. but I, I don't promise. want to. Please sit there. Please. One minute. No, I, ask I can't. You. Go to the bathroom. Please, I don't want to do something I don't want Go to. Go to the bathroom. Come here. Listen to me. I want to go downstairs. I'm not going to do anything. You'll never see me again after this. Okay? That's it. If you, don't, if you embarrass me in this hotel, I'm not embarrassing you. Just it's just walk. that I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I mean, don't have a fight with me in Please, I'm not going to do anything. I swear, my children. I swear, my children. Wow. So, what he's trying to say here, when he, he won't see me again, he's trying to, and when he's using the term "don't embarrass me in the hotel," so he, they're in the hallway here. He's trying to get her to come into the room and then come to a bathroom with him. She, he, he likes having watch women watching him take showers and having them watch him masturbate, and then also he'll touch them other, other times. So. He likes getting women to give him massages when he's naked. A lot of times he'd invite women up to his room and he'd show up in a bathrobe with everything hanging out. And these, again, were, were, were women who already had some degree of fame and had no idea why they were coming up there. He just says he wants to talk to them. So in this case, he's already done all this to her and apparently he groped her breasts and, and, and was you know, touch, making unwanted touches of her in a sexual nature last time that's why she went to the police so she's trying to get him to admit to this and, and he already has partially admitted to this but he's trying to get her out of the hallway a public hallway and trying to get her into his room and into the bathroom there with him and when she said i don't feel comfortable let me go downstairs let me go downstairs he keeps saying don't embarrass me don't embarrass me if you if you embarrass me you're never going to see me again well what embarrass me means is if you don't come into my room I'm going to consider that an embarrassment. I'm, you're embarrassing me because we're, quote, having a fight here because I'm asking you to come in and you won't. So if I determine this is an embarrassment, then you're never going to see me again, a.k.a. you're not going to have any more jobs here. Your, your acting jobs are over. So I'll continue playing. This is about a minute left. Please come in. On everything, I'm a famous I'm, guy. I'm feeling very uncomfortable right Please now. Please come in now, and one minute. And if you want to leave, when the guy comes with my Why jacket, you can go. you touch my breast? Please, I'm sorry. Just come on. I'm used to that. So, so, so why do you touch my breast? <laughs> she says my breast. She's, she's foreign, but uh, why did you touch my breast? And he says, uh, "Hey, I'm sorry about that. I, I, I'm just, I'm used to that." He said. So he didn't say, no, I didn't do that. He, she said, why, why last time you touched my breast? And he, he didn't say, what, what you, I didn't do that. What do you mean? Instead, he said, yeah, I'm sorry about that. So that, that's pretty much admitting it. Are you used to that? Yes, come in. No, but I'm not used to that. I won't do it again. Come on. I won't do it again. Come on. Now go by never call me again because she won't come in. So you you see, I mean this is this is really nasty. This is the second time she's been there. So it's blackmail. It's come in my room and 
you know, obviously he wanted it for sexual nature. The last time she was in there, just very recently before that, uh, he was groping her and touching her breasts and stuff like that. So he's saying, come in, come in again. Otherwise, don't ever call me again. Goodbye. Now, amazingly, even though this pretty clearly is him admitting to it, the NYPD did nothing. They decided this wasn't enough. They didn't even uh, take action after this. I think there's a little bit more. Sorry. I promise you I won't do anything. I know, but yes, there was too much. The guy's coming. I will never do another thing to you. Five minutes. Don't ruin your friendship with me for five minutes. I know, but it's kind of like, it's too much for me. I can't. Please, you're making a big scene here. Please. But I want to leave. Okay. Goodbye. Thank you. So, yeah. He kept saying she's making a big scene. It didn't sound like a big scene. She just wanted to leave. So, not only did the NYPD not press charges or at least even attempt to further investigate this after this recording was obtained, this is in early 2015, but the media outside the U.S. was covering this. This was not something that was a secret at the time. The Daily Mail, which I mentioned before, they covered this story in detail. So you would think this would have been a big deal. Like if I had heard this tape back in 2015, I would have been pretty alarmed. I think if you heard this tape back in early 2015, you would have been alarmed. You would have thought Harvey Weinstein was a big creep. You would have thought Harvey Weinstein uh, uh, was, was grabbing women's breasts without their permission and you know, in his room where he pressured them to go up to him. I mean, this would have made him look really bad two and a half years ago. But I bet you did not hear about this in 2015, Right? I didn't. I bet you didn't. Why, why do you think that is? But that recording was public back then, Druff? The recording was not, but the uh, the story was very public. I found a story on the Daily Mail in like uh, March 2015 that described all of this. It just didn't have the recording on it. So, because I mean, if they you know they put a wire on her, what else would they want? What else would they want? Heard him to say. Yeah, that's, a, that's that's the first part. But the second part is the Daily Mail, for example, they had the whole story in, in early 2015. They just there was no tape to play the public, but they they had the whole story. They I don't know if they heard the tape or if they just got all the details. But the, I read the story, knowing what we know now from two and a half years ago, and it's right, it's accurate. So so why was there no coverage of this? That, that the NYPD was investigating, that, that this girl wore a wire, that, uh, the, that, that he was heard on the tape admitting to it. Again, they didn't have the actual tape, but, but that how come this didn't make news in, in early 2015? And the reason I feel it did not make news in early 2015 was that the, uh, the, the, media, the mainstream media wanted to keep him happy because he was a major studio executive that he gives them access to things that they like to get access to. And they, and not only that, he, he was a, a big liberal. He, he donated a lot of money to Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, that he was, uh, he, he had the same political views. He was on their side as, as most of the mainstream media. So that's another reason they, they weren't going to take any joy in bringing him down where if he were a conservative, they would have jumped on it in a second. So, this was swept under the rug for some reason. None of the uh, the media in the U.S. was interested in, in grabbing this story, which I, I would have thought is uh, you know, a model alleges this about Harvey Weinstein and then goes on a sting with a wire with him and, and seems to get him to admit it on there. 
I would have thought if that was known in the media two and a half years ago, which it was, that this should be a big story back then, but somehow it was not. So fast forward to today, or today meaning this, this month, October 2017. And finally the shit hit the fan. Because uh, some uh, the New York Times, and I think one other publication, did an expose on a lot of diff- that there's a lot of different accusations against Harvey Weinstein, including uh, a lot of payoffs he did to women over a long period of time. So yeah, it was the New York Times and the New Yorker both reported that. Uh, a large number of women, uh, something like 15 or so, uh, were accusing him of sexually harassing them, assaulting them, or raping them. And then after that, even more came forward with stories, including some very high-profile women such as uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, Rosanna Arquette and... Uh, yeah, a big big list of people. The one that, that has been most vocal has been Rose McGowan, and I'll talk about her shortly. That's the most interesting with her. But a, a big list of names. I think looks like about uh, probably forty names at this point that are now accusing him of, of basically the same behavior. I mean, hundred percent he did this. I mean, we even have it on tape here, and it's it seems to be. There seems to be a little variance on how far it would go and what he would do according to their accusations, but I have to imagine that some of it has to do with how forcefully these women said no. That the ones that were very, very offended instantly got really pissed that he backed off, and and, and then the ones that were kind of in the middle, that they kind of kept persisting but, but wasn't as strong, and then the ones that kind of weren't outright, like, Saying no super clearly, like one's going, no, no, I don't really want this. I, you know, I just don't think it's right. And then they press very hard and probably would start touching them. And if they didn't actually stop him, then he would just do it. So when this, like, when rape is is discussed here, I don't think like he jumped out of the alley and grabbed them. And I don't think that he was in their room and he just attacked them and threw them on the on, on the ground and uh, or on the bed and and just forced them into sex or forced them into to whatever else he did. I, I think that. It was the same kind of approach you heard on this tape I just played, except uh, number one, they were already in his room; they weren't in the hallway. And number two, uh, you know, he just starts touching them, and some of them are afraid to say anything, or if they say it, they say it kind of weakly, and then he just decides he's going to ignore it, and they won't stop him, and then he just does it. So, the the one who's been most vocal against him has been Rose McGowan. And she's been really going off on him on, on Twitter and on those in Hollywood who have enabled this in some way, either because they knew about it and kept quiet or, or ones that are currently defending him. That, that, so this has really turned into a, a civil war in some ways in Hollywood. Especially because usually in Hollywood, it's it's one side against the others. It's the Hollywood you know, like liberal political establishment that feels one way about all the issues, including issues such as uh, feminine and uh, fe- feminism and and female empowerment and stuff like that. 
And then there's the other side, the, the conservatives, the Republicans, who, who feel a different way on some of these issues. And since Hollywood is almost all liberal, they, they're all pre- pretty much one mind on this, uh, except for a few who, who break that mold, people like James Woods. So this is different. Rose McGowan, for example, is anything but a conservative. She's not conservative at all. But at the same time, you, you, the problem is Harvey Weinstein was a very powerful man in the Hollywood circles. He was very close with major politicians like Hillary Clinton, like Barack Obama, donated a ton of money to them. He was seen as a big hero to the Democratic Party and and in Hollywood was seen as very powerful. And even though these rumors have been around for years about Harvey Weinstein, uh, nobody wanted to confront them, which, which created this weird hypocrisy where you have all these people in Hollywood who are, are always railing on about female empowerment and feminism and, and how, how conservatives and Republicans are so terrible for being against a lot of that. And, and, and they're the party that supports women and, they, and, and Hollywood supports women, blah, blah, blah. And then at the same time, one of the most powerful men in Hollywood has been sexually assaulting and raping and, uh, and, and sexually harassing women for years and years and years and paying out major settlements to them after he does it and the, the few that complain. And everyone looks the other way. Why? Because it's, inc- it's inconvenient not to. Why? Because if you don't look the other way, number one, he can retaliate against you, and you, you don't want someone like that in the industry who's your enemy, so you just try to look the other way. And, 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 and second, um, he, he's been uh, very supportive of, of, of your political party. He says all the right things, supports all the right causes. Uh, you know, may, maybe you're afraid that you're going to give the other side ammo. That uh, oh look what a hypocrite these these leftists are for you know they they, they talk about feminism and then uh, one of their most prominent uh, supporters and, and donors is, is actually a rapist and, and everyone knew about it and kept quiet so like a, it, it's this vicious cycle where a lot of people in Hollywood would say one thing would support certain views and causes but then enable or look the other way when one of their own is doing it and. It, it, it's a little more understandable when there's somebody who is uh, really a nobody in Hollywood and trying to rise up and they're afraid if they say anything they're going to be shut out and their whole career will be ruined so they just kind of deal with it. You know, you'd like to think ideally still they'll go say something but number one, you have to get the attention of the mainstream media. You see with this story in 2015, we, we didn't know about it. It wasn't covered in the U.S. until until now. So you have to get the right attention in the mainstream media, and, and then also you're sacrificing your career at that point if it doesn't go well. So that's a big gamble to take with your future. I can understand why some women didn't come forward. But the ones that are a little more perplexing are the ones that are super established that could not be derailed by him, ones that are too powerful themselves to really suffer from it, or ones that have had such success to even if they don't get another role for the rest of their lives – that they have already had such success in Hollywood, both financially and critically, that uh, it wouldn't matter much. Nor would uh, do I think he would have the power to keep some of these actresses out, or even males that uh, that were aware of this. That that also said nothing. So 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 this went on for many years because there was just a silence that just everyone seemed to know. In that, in that little Hollywood uh, circle, but no one wanted to say anything. No one wanted to call it out. A few of them would, would, would try to sue him or complain, and then, and then there'd be a settlement. So 
Rose McGowan got a settlement of, uh, I believe, $100,000 in 1997. She had appeared in one of his films. I think it was The Craft. But she, she appeared in one of his films. And I, I guess something happened there. Some kind of sexual assault. Something happened. And they settled, and she also had to sign a, a confidential agreement to, uh, you know, to, to keep this quiet. So, I guess she did, but once this came out, she has come very strong, very full force against both Harvey Weinstein and all the people who have either been defending him or ones who kept quiet about it. And uh, she actually got suspended from Twitter at one point this week, which is crazy. She's doing all this on Twitter. But she got suspended. They said they suspended her account because she put somebody's phone number or something. Oh, really? I said, yeah, that's that. that. I think I heard that like is the main reason. But then as they kept reporting it, they never mentioned that. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I had heard something that was about like something she said about Ben Affleck, which I, if that was all it was, I thought that was BS. If it was for posting personal info, then I guess I guess it's no. Okay. I mean, I did hear that. I mean, I didn't see the tweet or anything, but that's. I mean, I saw it on something, you know, on Good Morning America. Or okay. Something like that. Yeah. So, but anyway, she's been going very strong at this, and she just she's not caring at this point at all. Now, yes, Harvey Weinstein's on his way down. This is a big scandal at this point now. You know, no one's no one's very few are defending him at this point. So you, it's a lot easier to be brave and stand up to him at this point. But but she has been the one not only coming after him, but coming after anybody who who was uh, supportive in any way. And she was also mad at those who were not coming forward immediately and saying anything. Like for example, uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, they both took five days for any statement to be made about this. When everybody else was making a statement pretty quickly, even though he was very close. With both of them. So they felt like, oh, wow, he gave so much money to our campaign, we don't want to say anything. And uh, finally it became too big. <clears throat> they had to say something. But uh, th- that, that already looked pretty bad that uh, they were afraid to condemn him simply because he had donated to their campaign. So, yeah, this has been going crazy. Now, this is, this is something to show you how Hollywood knew Seth MacFarlane, creator of Family Guy, American Dad, he did this in 2013 when he was talking about the Best Supporting Actress nominees. And this is what he said. This is a a clip that was found. The 2012 nominees for Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role are... Sally Field in Lincoln, Anne Hathaway in Les Miserables, Jackie Weaver in Silver Linings Playbook, Helen Hunt in The Sessions, and Amy Adams in The Master. Congratulations, you five ladies no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) So, so... Yeah, you hear the laughter back there, like some people knew what he was talking about. And he claimed that the reason that he did this was that uh, one of his friends, uh, I forgot which one it was, uh, uh, Jessica Barth, that she had been 
harassed in this way by Harvey Weinstein. This was his kind of passive-aggressive way to uh, take a stab at him. So people knew. You could even hear by that laughter that some some of those people there knew. They weren't just laughing because just from the general joke. That some people must have known in that audience. And it took all this time, even two and a half years after someone wears a wire for the NYPD, and he and he admits this on the wire, and somehow warms out of it. Somehow they don't even report that. So. Uh, also, who's been cro- caught in the crossfire here is uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, who are also uh, good friends with each other. They were both close to Harvey Weinstein. Uh, ben Affleck would not say anything for a while, which was getting uh, Rose McGowan angry. And so she started uh, to call out Ben Affleck here. Let me. Get, get what happened here with Ben Affleck. And something was found from Ben Affleck's past, which which isn't nearly as bad as, as Harvey Weinstein. But uh, So this is what happened. Ben Affleck, first of all, finally made a statement you know, several days after this broke. He's one of the people who kept quiet. He said, uh, I'm saddened and angry that a man who I worked with used his position of power to intimidate, sexually harass, and manipulate many women over decades. The, the additional allegations of assault that I read this morning made me sick. This is completely unacceptable, and I find myself asking what I can do to make sure this doesn't happen to others. So I, I won't read the rest, but that's the most important part. I find myself asking what I can do to make sure this doesn't happen to others. So Rose McGowan read that and was really pissed because she had remembered telling Ben Affleck at the time in 1997 what had occurred with her and that Ben Affleck responded to her by saying god damn it I told him to stop doing that so she was really mad that he was pretending like this is shocking to him when 20 years ago he knew so she tweeted to him at Ben Affleck god damn it I told him to stop doing that you said to my face the press conference I was uh, the the press conference I was made to go to after the assault. You lie. So she's basically saying you know, you're you're making all this up. Then if that wasn't bad enough, somebody else found a clip of Ben Affleck sexually harassing in a way uh, of what was then a, a young woman on uh, TRL. Total Request Live in 2003. You're always like, I'm just free-spirited. Oh. <laughs> it's so nice to see you. And he wraps his arm around me and comes over and tweaks my left boob. Nice to see you. I don't know what happened, but Hillary also was like, ooh. I'm just like, what are you doing? And there was a little squeeze. I don't know. We played the tape over sometimes. Yeah, he pulled that move. That's sure. move, yeah. <laughs> Some girls like a good tweakage here and there. Um, I'd rather have a high five. So that that was a little segment they did on TRL showing – they showed this in 2003 where Ben Affleck gave a hug to a, a host on there named Hillary Burton who was then like 21 years old. And he kind of reached over and grabbed her boob and like, like squeezed her nipple. And so they made a little joke on it like the, how shocked she was about this and that, and that was it. They dropped it at that. But someone brought this up and said to Ben Affleck, you know, how, how can you be saying you're so shocked by this? You, you do this yourself. Maybe not as bad, but you, you, know, you have a history with this yourself too. They even showed it on, on TV. 
So that that already <laughs> and then so someone brought that up and Hillary Burton actually responded on Twitter saying uh I didn't forget seriously thank you for that I was a kid. Now she wasn't really a kid, she was like 20 or 21 when this happened, but but still she probably means a kid like she was young. And uh Casey Affleck, who is Ben Affleck's brother, ha- recently has has been under fire because it was revealed earlier this year that there were lawsuits filed against him for sexual assault on a set back in 2009. So Rose McGowan tweeted out, Ben Affleck, Casey Affleck, how's your morning, boys? So she was, she was coming at them pretty hard. Uh, later, Ben Affleck uh, apologized for the, the tweaking of the nipple back in 2003 and said that he shouldn't have done that. It was inappropriate. But this is another person who also stayed silent until he had to say something. And then once he did, he was uh, lying about it, that he, he didn't know and he was shocked, blah, blah, blah. So uh, Matt Damon, the, uh, really disturbing allegations about him that he actually pressured a journalist to kill a story back in 2004 about what Harvey Weinstein was doing. That Matt Damon called up this journalist and, and put some pressure to, to get rid of it. To say there was a misunderstanding, and you know, it, it's pretty powerful to get a call from a big star like Matt Damon, and then have Matt Damon try to talk you into getting rid of it. He didn't have any power to do it, but but he was he tried and was successful in getting that story killed by trying to convince the person that uh, they were misunderstanding it, that Harvey Weinstein's actually innocent, that that he knows him well, that he wouldn't do this, and uh, that that journalist actually killed it. So that was accused, and what's interesting is Matt Damon did not fully deny it. He partially denied it. He said, I never asked anyone to kill the story, uh, but he did admit that he made a phone call to that journalist about this subject and said, well, I just vouched for him, but people vouch for each other all the time in Hollywood. So what he's basically saying is, oh, you know, I just called up the journalist and said, hey, I know Harvey. You know, to me, he seems like a good guy, and I, you know, I, just, didn't know the, I just didn't know better back then. But that, that's BS. It's uh, th- this is the, the Hollywood establishment protecting itself, and a lot of these people are very selfish. That's the bottom line. A lot of these people, their careers are what's most important to them, and they don't care if if others get hurt by predators like Harvey Weinstein. They don't care. They, they focus on themselves, and they say, "Look, I I can't do what I otherwise would do if this person was less powerful." Uh, because it'll hurt me. And in fact, sometimes they rationalize to themselves. Like, I don't think they go to bed going, ha, 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 you know, women are getting sexually harassed, but my career is growing, so that's great, so I, who cares? They don't go to bed thinking that. They go to bed thinking, look, this is something that's been going on in Hollywood forever, that uh, women trade sex for roles with people like Harvey Weinstein. That's just what goes on. It's not my business. I'm going to stay out of it. You know, later on they claim they're victimized. But that's not really fair. They're both getting something out of it. So, yeah, I'm just going to stay out of it. That, that's that's what, even if they don't agree with it, that's kind of how they rationalize not saying anything. But that wasn't the case. That's not That was not the case. This was not a typical casting couch thing. This was sexually harassing, assaulting, maybe even raping existing stars who just didn't want their careers derailed. And anyone who did say anything was either paid off or, or convinced to stop. So now the, 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 the now everything fell down. 
for Harvey Weinstein. He's he got fired from his own company. His own brother has turned on him. His wife is leaving him. He, he he's with a much younger wife. I think she's like forty two. She's like a yeah. He's with a pretty much younger wife. He's like sixty six. I think she's forty two. And she has no reason to stay with him anymore. I mean, I'm sure she was aware of this, but now she's leaving because what what can he give her? She's definitely not with him for his looks. Uh, definitely knows that he's cheated on her constantly and sexually harassed countless women. Uh, the status no longer means anything. Now she's with a disgraced, fallen person from Hollywood. So what can he do for her now? That's why she's leaving. But I... Here's, here's what kind of bothers me. I never liked when actors get political... I don't like actors shoving their politics down my throat. I don't even like it when I agree with the ones I agree with doing that. I, I don't like seeing any of that going on. Now, when I see the conservative actors trying to speak out, I, I, I rationalize it a little bit saying, well, look, there's so many on the other side, at least they're providing a counter. But I just wish it would stop completely. I know it won't, but that's what I wish. I wish they, an actor is just there to entertain. They're there to act. And that's it. We, they're no more qualified to speak on politics than anybody else. Just, just because they have more visibility in a bigger audience doesn't mean that they should. And if you're going to do that, though, if you're going to choose to put yourself out there as a supporter of feminism, of liberal causes, female empowerment, all that stuff, and if you're going to vilify the other side for your perception that they are not supporting these things, if, if you're going to use your position of fame to give yourself this soapbox to stand on where millions of people will listen to you, then you also need to take responsibility for sticking to what you believe and what you claim you believe. So if you're going to say that you're a big supporter of women's rights, of feminism, etc., and then you know of a person like Harvey Weinstein who's getting away with what they're doing and you say nothing, you're a phony. You're an absolute phony because you only support it in theory, but when you actually have the power to change something, to stop a predator, you choose not to. But, Drop, you also don't, you know... You don't really know who knew exactly what. Because, like, I listened to, you know, he was on Howard uh, a few years ago. And I went back and listened to the interview this morning. But And I didn't know much about him at the time, personally. I mean, obviously, the movies and stuff. He comes across as, like, such a likable guy. You know, Howard even asked him, you know, oh, what about the casting couch? You must be able to get all the way he's like oh no that's from years ago you know i mean just he came across just very good well i believe i believe there's some people who didn't know uh but there the thing is it seemed like there were enough this ha- people has happened to that it was likely you probably knew someone if you're if you're in that circle you probably knew someone who was affected by this or you knew someone who knew someone who was affected by this that's why right, but would they share that necessarily with them because if this guy if everybody's looking up to him you're in an industry and you know, and it's it's sad, but 
you know, they may not want to share that. Yeah, well, I'm not. Bl- I'm not blaming every. I'm not blaming everybody in in Hollywood. I'm blaming those that 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 thought it was likely, the ones that that likely knew, and that that uh, and that that believed it. That thought this was, uh, or ones that even heard from multiple sources that were unrelated. That's where it becomes very convincing. If you if you hear from one person, you think, okay, maybe there's a misunderstanding. Maybe. Uh, Maybe she did something and she regrets it. You know, maybe I should stay out of it. And then, then you hear from another, like another woman, or you hear from another person that says, "Hey, you know, you heard Harvey Weinstein did something to you know this this woman here." And you go, "Wait a minute, that's a different person than I heard it from in the first place." And they're totally like unrelated to each other. Like when you start hearing that, it's it's kind of like with scammers and poker. When when you if you hear about a scammer and poker from like two totally unrelated parties, you you like go, oh, "Okay, I'm sure of it now." Like I'm sure this guy's been scamming because like there's no chance that there'd be two different people with the same story who who don't really uh, know each other well. So, I, I I just feel that a lot of this silence, and especially like the story that with the NYPD wire that came out uh, two and a half years ago, this had to really get around. And and you know like if you're not following the industry really closely, like you're not, I'm not. Uh, that's why we miss stories like that. But in the industry, there's no way that like the Daily Mail. The UK has this big story about the a girl wearing a wire to try to get him for for sexual assault, and that he essentially admits it on tape, and that somehow nothing happens. I, I mean, you have to take note of this. You have to be aware something's going on. You have to think something's likely going on, and especially if you know somebody who who was a, personally who was affected by this, and, and you don't say anything, but yet you claim that you're you're a feminist and you and you support women's causes, and you're giving all these women's awards out and. It just, I feel it just makes you a big phony. You're a phony! Hey, this guy's a great big phony! So, that's that's what I feel about this. And, and the funny thing is, so, so we had this also occur with conservative figures last year and this year. Oh, right? and by the way, Jeff, let me just add one thing before you go on to the next thing. He does sound in the video like he's just sick. You, I mean, it's almost like he wants the last hit of crack or something. You know? <laughs> Seriously, if you listen to the desperation's voice, just come in for one minute. It's just like he's out of his mind. Yeah, well, you I, know, I, normally it's like people give that as an excuse. They're going to go to sex rehab or or whatever it is, but it's just like if you listen to it, he sounds like just sick. I don't understand sex rehab. I, I was I was just saying this to. Benjamin's mom when I was discussing this situation with her. I don't understand sex rehab. I understand drug rehab. I understand alcohol rehab. Any kind of rehab having to do with some external substance you put in your body that now you have to get over. That makes complete sense. I don't understand sex rehab because sex is it's a natural urge you have. Nobody like chooses to have sexual attraction you just have it nobody chooses to have certain sexual urges now yes you can show more restraint you can have certain sexual desires and say okay i might desire this but i'm never going to do it like for example let's uh, let's say it turns you on to, to rape women but you go wait a minute it may turn me on to do it but uh i know doing it is wrong so i never would and and you never even consider it that, that that's showing self-control so Yes, you could engage in more self-control and not do these things. Like, like I, yeah, Harvey Weinstein could le- learn just because you want to uh, grope young starlets, you don't do it. 
just be you may have the power over them and you might be able to get away with it uh, temporarily. Uh, you don't do it. That you can learn, but I don't see how there's a rehab because you're not rehabbing from anything. You're I, I don't see you're you're more just learning restraint at best. That's why I don't understand sex rehab. Like, what do they do there? Do you have any idea? No, no. I mean, I think for most of it, it's just a bullshit thing. Yeah, it sounds but, like you know. But but again, for him, it seemed like it was like a mental issue that he had, and whether that's something that's sex rehab or just some issues he has with control, I, I, I don't know. I don't even think. See, I I agree. That, like on the tape, he, there's something he did sound frustrated or, or kind of worn down by the whole thing. But he could have just been tired that day. It's hard to tell what the situation was. But I, I think what happened with him, I, I just felt, think that some people handle power very poorly. Some people, when they have power, they just get the idea that they can do anything to anyone and get away with it. And that just, if they want something, they get it. And I think he had enough years in a position like that, but this didn't just start recently. I think that just he, at some point he realized that he can do this and get away with it. And so he just did and just callously just felt like this was his right to do. And he may have even rationalized to himself that he's doing a favor for these women by helping their careers so that uh, they owe it to him. It, it could have been something like that. I, I don't even believe that it was some kind of craziness. I think it was just the guy was a jerk and decided that uh, he could get away with it. And, and as I was going to say, the, there, there are some conservative figures who had these scandals as well recently. There was uh, Roger Ailes, there was Bill O'Reilly, and again, with you know, both of them, there were multiple women that came forward. It's very clear that both of them were guilty, and you know, they, they lost their positions. But the the difference is that uh, those the, the the media pounced on immediately. And and with this, it, it seemed like it was held back until so much was brought forward that they, you know, at this point, they can't hide from it. At this point, they have to cover it. But but even there, I, I didn't feel the same amount of zeal was was there as, as with these these conservative figures. And it, it's what's also funny is that there's a reason on both sides of the political spectrum why this looks so bad when someone depending on what their political affiliation is so if you, you the right wing guys when they're caught doing this people say what a hypocrite you know he talks about morality and family values and decency and all that and then and then look what he's actually doing is is uh is, is sexually harassing women and assaulting women like you know the, what, what a hypocrite and on the left it's it's from a different standpoint. It's from the standpoint of uh, you're supposed to be a feminist, a champion of women's rights, a, a, a champion of, of women uh, not uh, being taken advantage of, and then that's exactly what you do. You take advantage of them, and you uh, and you assault them, and you, and you and you grope them, and 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 you actually have no respect for women. All the talk about how Republicans don't have respect for women, and then you actually don't, and you're you're much worse than any of them. So so that's uh, yeah. But Druff, th- those two have political shows where they're. Where they're just preaching about their point of view about that. 
he donated money to those two. He wasn't up there ranting and raving. Well, Roger Ailes wasn't about, really either. He, Roger Ailes was just, he was uh, he was quarterbacking the whole Fox News. Well, thing. yeah, he was he was he was he was, he was behind the scenes, but he was uh, right. But but what? But Harvey Harvey uh, Weinstein he produced movies. I mean, he no, wasn't. But but, but he know, was that he, is different. He very closely associated himself with, with with the Democratic Party. He wasn't just someone who donated money. He very closely associated himself and even. Uh, uh, spoke out on on liberal cause. He didn't have a talk show, but he was very much associated with it, which is why the right is so is, is the, the right is so excited about this for the same reason the left was excited about Roger Ailes and and Bill O'Reilly when they had their problems. So I I know on both sides it's it, it's easy to get excited when the other side is uh is, is you know, does something that that you can point out and make them look bad. But uh, I have a caller though. Caller on the air. This is really weird. He may have muted himself. <laughs> now he's gone. But I will add that Anthony Weiner is probably the sickest, most out of control one of them. All. Yeah, he was. That was that guy was so weird. That was, the, the weirdest thing with him was after he was caught, he continued to do it. After he was caught, <laughs> and then he was leading the race for mayor, and he did it again. Well, did you ever watch that documentary? No, no, I didn't. They, they were doing a documentary of his comeback for mayor. And it was going great, and he had a second chance. And then in the meantime, it came out that, like, during the documentary, all this stuff, and it came out during the documentary, and then he's in the white, in his in the car with his wife. They have it all on video, and she's just furious. <laughs> it's definitely worth watching. I was surprised she stayed with him when, when these things came out, and then, uh, I mean, I know she eventually left him, but I was surprised it took that long. And... It was clear he had yep. some real chronic problem with it. So even after he was exposed and, and, and his whole career was ruined by it, that he still continued. It was amazing. Even the, the comeback attempt, as you said. Yeah, that was – there was something really sick about that guy. I don't know I don't know what his deal was. but uh, And then the last one being the underage girl. That was the real killer. So, uh, so I, I, I just think that if you're going to – put out your if you're going to get involved with stating your political views and really broadcasting this to a mass audience as many of these Hollywood figures do you've got you've got to make sure that when it comes down to it that you practice what you preach otherwise you can look really bad and it it's always easy to talk about what's right and wrong it's always easy to talk about that if you're actually not the one who has to do it you don't if you don't have to if you put yourself in a tough position where you either have to refrain from doing something that you want to or uh, speak up about someone that you like that is doing something that you're against. And that's, that's a lot harder than just preaching, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong. The harder part comes from actually doing it. And that's... And and I also understand if there, you know if it, it depends how severe it is. I understand that in the perfect world, even if somebody's friend has done something wrong, they would still speak out against them. However, it, it is tough as a human being if there's someone you really like that's always been good to you, that when they've made a mistake, you don't want to just go kick them at that point. You don't want you don't want you know, it's harder to, it's harder to bring yourself to. Uh, to make them look bad, even if you're really against something they did, you think they did something very wrong. It's harder to do that if you like the person and you feel they've always been kind to you. 
And, and on the flip side, if someone has always been a jerk to you, or you really don't like someone, then you really take joy in calling someone out. Uh, and, and I've even experienced this in poker before, where, I, where, where the people who I, I most like talking about when they've committed wrongdoing are ones that I also personally dislike. And I, I, you know, but at the same time, if somebody in poker has has done something wrong, and, and I do like them, you know, I, I, I I've told myself I'm I'm going to say it no matter what. I'm I'm not going to cover it up or, or or not cover something just because I personally like someone. But but will I feel like oh I really want to cover this? Oh I really want to expose this hard? Like if it's someone I also dislike? Yes, and that's. I, I think everybody is like that to some degree. So, as far as people not speaking up, it, I, I, I find it less offensive of the ones that just knew and didn't say anything, uh, but but also weren't political and and and, and always talking about what, what good feminists they were, than the ones that actually were coming out in support of all these feminist issues, and then in reality were were huge hypocrites with the whole thing. That's a, those are the ones that bothered me the most, rather than just the ones who uh, who knew and chose not to get involved. Uh, so, and, and it's it also depends on what they knew. If they just heard some rumors, or if they heard something happen, but they don't know you know the full extent of it, uh, it, it can be seen as something you disagree with, but but you but it's not major enough to force your, your, yourself to get involved in the whole thing. So it, it depends how major things were. Uh, like like for example, uh, let, let's say someone I liked came over and told me that. Uh, that that he just stole something from a store, okay? Am I going to go call the police and report him? No, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Uh, if the same person came over and said, "Hey, you know what? Uh, um, I, I've never told you this before, but I, I really like young boys, and I, I just molested a seven-year-old boy." Well, then I'm not going to say, "Oh, I'll, I'll just let this go because I like him." I would report that to the police immediately. So there, there's the so there's the there's some line in between there. Where you think something's major enough, where you feel you have to say something, either to the police or, or in this case, if it's someone famous, to go to the media. Uh, there, there's some line there where you feel something serious enough has occurred that you disagree with that that you need to report or need need to make public. So when you're f- close or friendly with someone, you have to decide where that line is. And if some people who are friendly with Harvey Weinstein. Uh, didn't really understand the full extent of this and just thought it was, you know, maybe he's a little aggressive with, with, with some women that, uh, or, or he does some casting couch type stuff, but, but, uh, you know, they, they don't fully agree with it, but it's not terrible. Then, uh, did I just put myself on video? How do I turn this off? I think I put myself on video. You got to swipe. Are you, oh, I don't know. How you do you see me? Computer. I do. What's up, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't want it to be a video show. It's what do I got to swipe? But how, how do I? What do I swipe? There should just be an icon for the video, and you that needs to be. Okay, uh, I killed it. I killed it. Go. Okay. <laughs> I just see a still. I just see a still of you. Well, you you did worse one time. You one time you came on and you were like you had like no shirt on, or maybe nothing on. I don't know. I said one time you came on and I was like, yeah, you know, I, I can see you on with no shirt. <laughs> you turned it off. <laughs> At least I have a shirt on here. Yeah, you look like it worked afternoon. So, all right. 
I, I obviously he's never coming back from this, and yeah, uh, you know he's first of all he's old, so he's just going to retire from this eventually and try to slink out of sight. He may have some delusion that he's going to return and everything be fine, but it's no one's going to touch. Well, him he said, uh, "Did you see when they caught him? TMZ caught him outside of his daughter's house today." No, what did, what did he say? Yeah, no, and he's just, you know, they're all over him, and he's like, oh, he's sent about, he's hoping, you know, he can get a second chance or something. Yeah. But it's like, he's just got his, I guess he got in a big fight with his daughter. The neighbors called the police, and then the neighbors showed up. <laughs> I mean, then the police showed up, and then he's rushing out, TMZ's there. And it's just like you know, his wife leaves him. I mean, he has nowhere to turn. Oh yeah, it's, yeah, it's a disaster. Like it's, it, it's he's got no friends. And, uh, I, you know, I, I thought about this too. How do you go like from, from in early October, the first few days of October, everything's fine, and he's you know, so, so important, and everybody, uh, all these people who look up to him, and like everything's great, and then just bang, this happens. I think it was on October fourth, and then just everything crashes down so fast, and then just loses everything so quickly. And it's, it's got to be tough. I don't feel bad for him, but it's, it's got to be really tough when there's, especially since it's not even like he knew he did something to these women and was 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 afraid one day it's going to happen. He's he's been at this so long that this just became standard to him. And even he's yeah, I mean it's a sickness, and I and I mean and that that thing's on that, that Wiener thing's on Showtime, by the way. But it's just like they know, and then plus, I, you know, and I think they're digging deep. How many women did they pay off? Other people wrote. He didn't like write the check out of the company himself, and no one else knew about it. Well, yeah, that's the other funny thing. They actually had for his uh, company. They actually had an agreement written in there. That if he does things like this, that they had certain amounts of money that he'd have to pay the company, and then once he pays that amount, if he if he settles with the victim and then pays the company, I think two hundred fifty thousand for the first offense, five hundred thousand for the second, seven fifty for the third, and a million each time for for the fourth and beyond. That if once he pays off the victim and pays off the company for for whatever damage it might. We could possibly, you know, at these flat rates that were determined, then it's considered settled. So they actually wrote into his contract: if you sexually harass women or do anything similar, here's the consequences. And as long as you pay this, then we forget about it. Which is crazy. They actually had that in the and contract. Whoever knew about that contract needs to be liable. Yeah. So, so that that's that's insane. So now this might uh, this might really. Uh, change a lot of things in Hollywood. This might encourage more women to come out when there's other similar figures like Harvey Weinstein who are doing the same thing. And also might discourage other men from doing this again, seeing what happened to Harvey Weinstein. So that also may scare them away from this. And uh, so I'm not saying it's... Well, and, and the head of Amazon Studios got canned yesterday. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, and I just think the more people that come, I mean, all the people coming out because of this is going to make other people now, I mean, there's going to, the dominoes are going to be falling, I think, over the next several months. Yeah, I, I think so, too. So, and that's good. I mean, it's, 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 it needs to change. It's not, uh, it's not appropriate, especially the, uh, the, 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 
standard casting couch arrangement doesn't bother me so much because that both people feel they're getting something out of it. But uh, now I, I, it is unfair. It is unfair that uh, a woman will get a role based upon that. But uh, at least I don't feel there's a victim, a direct victim there. But the problem is it doesn't usually just stop there. Then unfortunately it extends to things like this where it, you're, you're pressured to do something to keep your status. And that's a different story. So yeah, I, it, it's a good thing that this is coming out and that maybe some change will occur and there will definitely be others that will fall as a, a side effect from this. And I'm sure those people are nervous at the moment because even if they don't really know Harvey Weinstein that well, they're like, oh, crap, I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> Someone's going to come forward about me and I'm going to be screwed. So that's uh, where we stand with that. And I want to talk now about baseball. And the four remaining teams, of which one I am a big fan of, that's the Dodgers, who will be playing now later today at 5 p.m. against the Cubs, a repeat of last year, except it's kind of a switch of position. Last year, the Dodgers won the West, but had an inferior record to the Cubs, who won more than 100 games and were considered the favorite going in. The Cubs had home field advantage, and even though they fell behind 2-1 in the series, they ended up winning the series 4-2 with three straight wins and went on to win the World Series as well. This year, the Dodgers were the team who won more than 100 games. The Cubs won their division, but won substantially fewer games than the Dodgers. And the Dodgers have home field advantage this time, and they are the favorites. So, same two teams, but different expectations. But, truthfully, both years, last year and this year, it wouldn't be a shock if the underdog wins. But, at the same time, I I am expecting the Dodgers to win this one. I, I won't be shocked if they don't, but I'm expecting that this is going to be the year that they actually do it. And I think they... I think it's going to be Dodgers and Astros, and not just because the Astros won today. In fact, I, I should have. It's kind of too late now because I'm sure the odds changed. But I considered placing futures bets before both of these series on the Dodgers and Astros. In fact, I was even considering it before the NLDS and ALDS because I really just thought they were both going to... That was kind of what I was thinking is going to happen, though I was a little afraid Cleveland was going to mess it up for the Astros, but I I just thought the Astros were underrated. I didn't expect Cleveland to lose in the first round, but I felt the Astros were underrated and that they would be the ones to make the World Series this year for the American League, and, and I felt the Dodgers were going to finally do it this year. This is the first year I think I've seen where I really believe they have the best team in the National League. So... I mean, even in 88, when they won the World Series, they didn't have the best team in the National League. They just managed to ride Oral Hershiser and some other unlikely performances to barely edge the Mets, who were a better team in 88. And then they did the same thing to, the, to Oakland by crushing them. So I, I think that the reason I think the Dodgers are going to win 
against the Cubs this year, and I know it's going to disappoint a lot of Cubs fans. There's a number of Cubs fans who listen to the show. But the reason I think the Dodgers are going to do it this year is, first of all, if you've been watching the playoffs, the starting pitchers are not lasting very long. Even when they're doing well, they're not lasting that long. They're taking them out because there seems to be a new strategy with postseason pitching, postseason starting pitching, in that you go really hard for five or six innings. You don't hold back. You don't try to... uh, you don't try to extend yourself so you can you know, not tire out and, and, and get through seven, eight innings. Now it's pretty much just go all out, and, and when you tire, we're going to take you out and put it in the bullpen. And in fact, they, they often don't even want these pitchers facing a lineup a third time around. So this puts a lot more burden on the bullpen, and the bullpen has to be good and deep in order to succeed in these games. Otherwise... Uh, even if you have these good starters, they last you know, five and a half innings, and then you put the bullpen in. If the bullpen sucks, then, then you get clobbered. So for, finally, the Dodgers seem to have a good bullpen, especially with Kenta Maeda converted into that role for the postseason, and so far he's done very well. So you know, obviously Kenley Jansen is, I, I believe, the best reliever in baseball. Then uh, Kenta Maeda has, has done very well so far in his relief role. Brandon Morrow has been excellent the whole year. I know he allowed that one home run, but that's uh, he, he's been excellent this year. And then there's uh, a number of other pitchers on the Dodgers. Pedro Baez seems to be out of gas here for the year, but I don't know why they put him on the roster. But Actually, I haven't looked at the NLD, NLCS roster. I'm not sure if he's there. But uh, the Dodgers have a very good and deep bullpen. And they also have a number of competent starting pitchers. So you have Clayton Kershaw, of course, who who isn't even 100% right now. Like the only game he's pitched in the postseason so far, he gave up four home runs. But you have him. Then you have uh, you have Rich Hill. You have you Darvish, who can either you know really dominate or be terrible. You don't know which one you're going to get. You have Alex Wood, who hasn't even pitched this postseason yet. But he had a great year. So there's there's a number of starters the Dodgers have that there's really no easy opponent to face. And and then you have a, the, the offense, especially the top four in the lineup, is, is very tough, and they, they can put up a lot of runs. So I, I just feel it's 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 hard to consistently beat this team except for that one weird streak in September where they lost 16 of 17 where they just weren't themselves and everyone slumped at the same time. But they seem to have shaken that off that they, they don't look like that bad version of themselves that we saw briefly for about 3 weeks. But the rest of the season they were just super dominant. They swept the Diamondbacks who were a pretty good team in the NLDS and also just like the Diamondbacks, who were very tired coming into the series because they had to burn so many pitchers against the Rockies to win that wildcard game while the Dodgers got to rest, here they really burned a lot of pitchers, including their closer, I'm talking about the Cubs, in managing to barely beat the Washington Nationals. 
So they're going to come in very worn out, and the Dodgers are going to be fresh. So uh, it was like a four-and-a-half-hour game they played with tons of pitches thrown on, on Thursday night. So I think between the tiredness, between the Dodgers having the home field advantage, between the Dodgers having a better team this year than last year, not just by record, but by the players. There was no Cody Bellinger last year, no Chris Taylor last year. No you Darvish last year. Alex Wood was not the same pitcher last year as he is this year. So I, I think this is going to be finally the year the Dodgers break through in the NLCS because the Dodgers have not been to the World Series in 29 years. They have been in the NLCS five times now. This will be their fifth time since 2008. Which is pretty impressive if you think about it. This is the 10th season since 2008. And they've been they've been in the NLCS five times, which means not only did they make the playoffs, but they actually made it to the NLCS five times in those years, in those ten years. But the previous four times they lost. So I, I think this is going to be the time they break through, and I think they're going to face the Astros. And at that point, I don't know what's going to happen. At that point, uh, the Astros are going to be very tough. The Dodgers will have the home field advantage, but uh, which is especially important because you they don't have the DH in, uh, when they're at home, which the DH favors the American League team. But I really think it's going to be Astros-Dodgers. I know the league and the TV networks would love to see the Dodgers against the Yankees, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the Yankees are finally going to meet their match and not win this series. And I thought that before even this game started. So, Astros up 1-0 right now. Dodgers are going to be playing later today. I was disappointed to see the Cubs win because I wanted to go to an NLCS game, and I, I think I'm priced out now. The The Cubs, they have too many fans in Chicago, or too many Chicago fans in L.A. who are willing to pay a lot of money to see the Cubs in the playoffs. And... They drive up the prices because I get my tickets on StubHub, and StubHub is a function of if you want to get a good deal on StubHub, you have to wait till the last minute and wait for someone to panic sell. But no one's going to panic sell if the tickets are are, are selling very well. So people start out at a high price on StubHub, and as people don't buy it, then it goes down, 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 down. And the advantage on StubHub is that you're buying these from individuals who are not willing to eat the cost of the ticket. So they, they feel like they have to sell it, and at some point they get desperate and just lower the price and they say, I want to be done with it. And, and I'm the guy who sits there waiting for that, and I jump on it. So, like, I went on the Saturday, Saturday game. Oh, by the way, I want to mention this. On Saturday, I was actually very briefly on TV. If, if anyone who has access to the recording of the Saturday game of the Dodgers against the Diamondbacks, if you go to the fourth inning and look at the, uh, at the first pitch of Chris Taylor's at bat, you will see a foul ball, and you will see me reaching for it and barely missing it. You will clearly see me on there. Also, I was on the Diamond Vision with Benjamin. 
Benjamin's been on the Diamond Division two of the last three times we were at a game. Which is funny because prior to that, I had never been on that in my life, in all the games I've been to. And yet two of the three games this year, they put Ben on Diamond Division. But that's because we're near the front, at the field level, and, and, and he's this cute kid, so they want to, they want to show him. I don't think I'm going to go to an NLCS game, though. I think, see, I, I want to sit in good seats. Like, I, I have a friend. I've known him for many years. I've I've known him since '88, uh, and we talked about going to a playoff game. Then he was going to be out of town for uh, the NLDS. And the NLCS, he just informed me, oh, I got tickets for the NLCS for a hundred dollars. But then he, it was the top deck, and I don't want to sit on the top deck. And he knew that, too. He's like, yeah, you probably don't want this. I said, no, I don't. He's like, okay, well, I'll offer it to somebody else. But I, I don't want to sit in bad seats. I'd rather watch it at home if I have to sit in bad seats. And they look like the ball. I don't want to see the ball players looking like ants. So I have to have good seats. I, ha- I want to be on the field level, at minimum the load level, but at, uh, preferably the field level. And I, it needs to be between the bases between first and third base, and it can't be behind the foul screen, and it has to be the first eight rows. So I have like a, I have like a lot of requirements here. And I was able to fulfill those requirements in the division series, and I would have been able to do it in the NLCS probably, but not with the Cubs because just everyone's buying up these tickets. And I'm looking at the prices here. And they're still quite high. I'm looking for Sunday's game. I, I couldn't make tomorrow's game anyway. In fact, I should go to sleep soon because I have a lot of stuff to do tomorrow. But the Sunday game, I'm looking, and, and like everything where I would sit is a minimum of, uh, of $500 per seat. And it'll come down some, I think, but it's not going to come down to where I want it to. Like, I think I'd want to see it come down to 300. It's just not going to do it. So, I think I'm going to have to miss this. Not miss it, but miss it in person. I'm going to watch on TV. I do have a nice TV to watch it on. Uh, it's a, I, I don't bother. It's a pain in the ass setting up because I don't get the Dodgers. I have to do some shenanigans to get them normally during the regular season because that's a stupid TV deal situation. But, of course, in the playoffs, I don't have to worry about that. But I, I have a I have a hundred inch projection screen here with a seven channel sound, so it's really nice to watch sports on. So and it's HD, even it's a, it's an older system, but it's like it's like ten years old, but it's it was ahead of its time when I got it. So it's uh, I enjoy watching on there. So I think I'll have to do that instead of watch the game. What do you, do you think the Dodgers are going to do it this year? At least to the, at least get to the World Series. I sure hope so. I think they will. They're looking good. Now, are, are you uh, the, are, are you that? are you perhaps going to go to any of the remaining games here in the NLCS of the World Series, or is it too expensive? No, I mean I, I don't know. I mean I, I'll probably wait for the World Series and then figure it out. Now, would you? Be happy enough, like at the World Series, sitting in one of the crappy seats, or or or, uh, or, or you feel like I do, where if, if the seats suck, you don't want to bother. 
I mean, certainly not like upper level, but, um, you know, I mean, maybe second level wouldn't be too bad. Well, yeah, like a second level between the bases that I could do as long as it's not under yeah. the, like, I hate under the overhang though. That I hate being under that overhang because it feels like you're indoors. And, right. And I, I, when I'm at a stadium, I've got to feel like I'm just part of the whole atmosphere. I can't, I can't have a roof over me. Like, I'm not talking about like a high roof like like at, uh, in Arizona where they have that retractable roof. I mean like a, I can't have an overhang or anything over me where I feel like uh, I'm obstructed. I can't see the whole view of everything around me. I feel like I'm indoors in a way. A, a lot of the fun of going is really being just immersed in the atmosphere there. So I, I, yep. I, I will not sit in the thing with the overhang. But yes, I am willing on these later rounds to compromise and not sit in the spectacular seats that I usually get, because just because of the crazy expense that those same seats would be. But it's it's got to be a certain minimal standard, and and that's what I've, I I'm seeing here. And and the, the, part of the reason I get the field, the good seats in the field, is that honestly, especially if you wait to the last minute, you're not even paying that much more money than you would be for like the load seats or 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 the worst field seats, like a. There's so many people at the stadium who are paying the same thing I am, or, or, or a tiny bit less, that are getting way worse seats than I have. So I, it should, a lot of it's about timing too. But if there's so much demand, like last year, I tried to go to these Cubs games, but I, I'm telling you that the, the prices never came down. In fact, I think in one case they went up. So I said, all right, screw it. I went, I, I got a spectacular bargain for the Washington series last year. I, I sat and just in really good seats for $109 each in a playoff game. It was insane. But I, I knew I'll never, I would never see that deal again, especially uh, and then with the Cubs series. That's, forget it. So Anyway, I'll be rooting for the Dodgers tomorrow. I'll be watching the game at, at 5 p.m. hope they uh, crush the Cubs here, especially so I can laugh at various Cubs fans that either read the forum or listen to this show. And Lou Father asking, Todd, are you afraid of Verlander? I, actually, I kind, of, I kind of am. I mean, we're, we don't have to deal with him with the Cubs, but he kills the National League, and he did well against the Dodgers this year when he when he pitched against them. He just he's just really good against the National League somehow. That's where he should pitch. So that is. And we it. had a chance to get him too. That can come back and haunt us. Yeah, I know. I, truthfully, I would have rather have him than you, Darvis, especially with his success against the National League, Verlander. Darvis, he just he just kind of scares me because you never know which one you're going to get. You can get this great dominant pitcher who strikes everybody out, or you can get this guy who kind of just blows up and just once he goes bad, he just gets terrible. So you just got to hope you're getting the good you, Darvish. But fortunately, he's not the ace of this staff, so. He's just one of several starting pitchers, and they, it's a good bullpen that can eat up a lot of innings. So that's I, I, I feel good about this whole thing. I, I think they're going to do it here to get to the World Series final. They, they can't just lose every single NLCS. It's got to happen at some point. I think it's this year. So. Trader Risky, I thank you. I thank you for hanging out with me here the entire time and uh, Calwad has been in dreamland the entire time here I, I want to stop something I, 
saying the word dreamland reminded me of something. When, when you realize that you're in a dream, uh, are you happy about that realization? Like, what do you do if if you are in a dream and you realize you're in a dream? What do you do? Wait, if I realize I'm in a dream, what? While you're in a dream, you're you're, you're dreaming and you realize you're in the dream that you're dreaming right now. What do you do? Depends what the dream is. Well, if it's not bad, if it's if it's if it's neutral or good, what do you do? If it's a good one, I try to stay in it. I guess. I'm not sure what I do. You know, it's kind of hard to. I mean, uh, if it's a bad dream, I try to like force myself to wake up. Right. Okay. So and I certainly don't feel that if it's a dream that's positive. Okay. So I, I've had a problem lately that I'm going to share with the audience. I have been increasingly become aware that I'm in dreams, and as soon as I realize it, I panic and I want to get out. Whether it's good or bad or medium, I, I just want to get out. And it, it's this weird feeling that I'm trapped in a fake reality and that almost like if I don't get out, I'll be stuck there forever. And I, 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 I don't think I mentioned this on the other show, but I, it happened today. And I, I kind of felt a little bit stupid about it because it was actually a good part. It was kind of a weird dream, which I won't, I won't go into telling you guys about the dream, but the very end part, I was kind of jumping from scene to scene really fast, and one of the scenes I was in, the one right before I woke up and realized I was in a dream, I had Benjamin like sitting on my lap, and he was talking to me, but I realized it wasn't the current Benjamin, it was the two-year-old Benjamin. And I thought, oh, this is nice. I've, you know, I haven't seen Benjamin look like this in a long time. And it was very realistic, too. He really looked like he did when he was two, and sounded like he did when he was two. It was like, <clears throat> my mind created a very good representation of, of two-year-old Benjamin. But I thought about how I kind of missed him being that age, and, and, and I was enjoying it. And I even knew that he wasn't currently that age, and I was trying to figure out in my mind how this is happening. And I, then, so I said to myself, well, that's weird. You know, I'm, I'm really liking this, but how am I doing this? Is this, is this like a memory? Is it, am I just remembering this? And I go, wait a minute, this isn't a memory. This never actually happened. I don't remember this at all. So if it's not a memory, and he's sitting here as two... When he's not really two, what happened? What's what's going on here? And they go, oh, crap, this is a dream. And then right then, I'm like, force myself out. And then I woke up and I go, you know, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Like, I should have just enjoyed the moment there. But but I, I get so upset of uh, believing that I'm in a place where everything's not real that I can't enjoy it. And part of me wishes I could, that I could just go do whatever I want with no consequence and just have fun with things. But just the fact that I'm there, I think if I knew I could just get out easily at any time, I would do it. But I get to worry, like, what if I'm trapped here a long time? Think of the movie The Inception. So, and it is true. I, I have noticed before that you can have a dream that feels very long and then it turns out like 10 minutes has passed. So, like, I, I start to worry about that. Like, what if I'm stuck here a long time? And, you know, what What if I have a few more hours to sleep before I wake up but it feels like an eternity to get out? So, but I've had a lot of dreams where I'm realizing it these days. 
And I wish I didn't now because a lot of these aren't even bad dreams. But I just instantly want to get out. And and then once that happens, once I wake up from it, then I feel all stressed, and then I I don't want to go back to sleep. Then I get up and I go, well, I can't go to I can't go back to sleep after this, and I have to like stay up for at least twenty minutes or so before I try to go back to sleep after one of those things happens. So it's very frustrating. That's that, that's truthfully why I'm tired today. I was going to sleep longer today during the day. I was taking a nap during the day, knowing I'm doing radio, and I had this happen, and then I didn't go back to sleep after that. I just I just got up and said, oh, screw it, I'm not going to go back after this. I don't know. I'm, I wish I could stop that. I, I, th- I, I actually think it's the same... It's the same mechanism in me that makes me not want to drink or do drugs, which I guess is good. But I just, I just don't want any fake or alternate reality. I don't want to... I, I don't want to not have full perception of everything. I, I don't want to be in in, uh, in fake worlds. So it's too bad though. Because part of me wants to enjoy it, but I can't help it. I just, every time I know I'm in a dream, I panic. So if you panicked because there was no poker fraud alert radio on Wednesday. You'll probably panic again because there will be likely no Poker for Alert Radio the upcoming Wednesday, but I think the latest it'll be is Thursday. But just check twitter.com slash poker fraud alert. Twitter.com slash poker fraud alert to learn about when the next show will be. And the following week we should be back on Wednesday. I may actually establish a presence on Facebook for Poker Fraud Alert. I don't know why I haven't done that yet, but I think that might help. Let's make a Poker Fraud Alert Facebook. You sound like you're breaking up for me, Drop. I don't know if it's that way. Yeah, it's because I'm playing playing the music. Can you hear the music or no? Oh, no, I can't. Okay. Hold on. That's all right. That's all right. I restarted the music. I'm going to move it back to the middle. I'm not going to put you guys through that again. Dead stupid thing. Here now you, you'll be able to hear when I start. You started. Can't can't even get through the damn. Th- no, it's my fault here. Well, it's Skype's fault. You can hear it now. Yep. Okay. So Trader Risky, thank you for joining me. I, this is the latest you've ever made it. I think. I thank you for taking the nap beforehand and uh, refraining from drinking too much herbal tea. Got it. And. Made things a lot easier on me tonight. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I always appreciate having an audience. And anyone who I haven't spoke to before, or if I don't know you exist, you can always text me the main radio phone number, email me dandruff at pokerforalert.com, tell me how you found the show, stuff like that. Always happy to hear from new listeners. Good night and shalom. shalom. <laughs>